James Colley. This is The Colley Problem, and I did not approve that theme song. I want to start by justifying the existence of this program, which I feel is something that all podcasts should have to do. It's the kind of thing I think should be regulated by a government. If you want to start a new podcast, you should have to justify why you are doing it. And if you fail to... I think the sentence is death. I think there's no middle ground here. You're taking a risk by even applying, and that's just how it should be. So he is hoping I can stay my execution with a decent explanation. I wanted to make this show because for the last few years, everything I have made has been as part of a very big team and very often is made on a very quick time scale where writing on Thursday and we have to film it on Tuesday and it will be on the air the next Wednesday. Like we're doing very, very quick turnarounds. And I want to do something that I got to take my time with. I got to work alone on and I got to work to my own schedule. So part of what will make this a bit non-traditional in the podcast format is I am going to take my time with it. I, I do not feel beholden to you. That was really aggressive, but I thought, you know what, let's, let's keep you on your toes there. Listener. Uh, I don't feel the need to put these out every week. And, um, that is partly why I have made these so long and also deliberately entirely unmarketable uh it's a clever strategy i'm making which means if it is impossible to profit off something i won't be tempted to try and turn it into a job this is a bit of fun for me what i want to do here is talk to people about stories that interest me topics that interest me and talk to people that interest me i want to make something that's fun to listen to, and that you can take your time going through. A real, here's a show to just listen to a chunk of when you're doing something else. Um, When you're going for a walk, you know what other things are. I don't need to explain to you what a secondary activity is. 
these episodes will be about four or five hours, which means you shouldn't listen to it all in one hit, but maybe I'll drop a code word at the end or something. And if you find out what it is and text it through, you'll win a prize. I'm not doing that. I that As I was saying, that already sounded like too much work. And as I said, really taking it easy on this one. Part of why I wanted to make this now is that I feel I'm personally at a very interesting point in my life. And I want to start this first conversation with someone else who is at that same interesting intersection. So my first guest on the show is Alice Fraser. Alice is an incredibly talented comedian. You might have heard her on The Bugle, her own show, The Gargle, her various stand-up shows. Uh, Very, very, very talented comedian and podcaster, but also about to become a mother for the first time. And I am currently days away from becoming a father from the first time. And so I caught up with Alice just before her due date to talk about what it's like to be on the precipice of your life changing forever. So let's have a listen to that. So what I wanted to talk about was a bit of the um, the strangeness of being in the stage where you are about to have your life change forever, but not quite yet, and you also don't get to pick the time. And so for this, I brought in Alice Fraser, who has been, you've been somewhat of my uh, pregnancy journey buddy throughout this trip. We've both been uh, going through this uh, at our, like, <laughs> I, I say that I've already overegged myself. I have been adjacent to this experience, but <laughs> we, we've both like have the knowledge that our lives are about to greatly change you within the next couple of days in most likely, probably by the time people are listening. Yes. Yes. I think in some ways it's easier for the birth giver um than for the partner in that way because it's a slower process you know i was talking to the to my gp the other day and she said you're already a mother um because you're you've kind of you know you've you've been engaged in this process for like months and months and months from the point at which it sort of switches Mm -hmm. over from being something weird that's happening with your body to the point at which there's sort of a second presence in the room which happens at a certain point in the pregnancy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it is, it, you know, like apart from all of the changes that are kind of getting used to that in theory is this reality of like my whole life will change for minimum 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... like but so certainly for the next, you know, five to ten years, there, there has to be this real kind of shift in the way that I think about what I do and how I choose to go about things. And I've been so lucky in my life to have so much freedom and choice and, and all of these incredible things that, you know, feminism and civilization and uh, electricity have given me. And then, <laughs> yeah, I just don't know what it's going to look like. You know, what does it what does it look like? What do they need? You know? And what kind of a parent am I gonna be? I I think you're like me in that we 
we prep hard for everything. Like it's there is not a problem that you can't study your way out of. And yet even as you're doing this, you're told by people on the other side, well, no, they won't really give you much of an idea. Like everyone has their, like from, from what I've heard, everyone has this belief that most of the books are garbage except for this one, but which of the this ones it is is always different. <laughs> well, yes. Like, how have you dealt with oh, that side? So first of all, so many of the books about, particularly about the birth giving process, but about parenting in general, but specifically about labour, are either like brutally clinical or they are such wank. Like they're just, you know, imagine <laughs> your cervix is a rosebud connected to the centre of the soul of the universe and you're just like, please don't make me, please don't make me imagine that. You know, and so there's the, like the tonal stuff, the, to the the shift in tone between those two extremes. There doesn't seem to be a middle section that suits my taste. But then, mm. you know, maybe maybe they, I, I assume it's helpful for some people to imagine their cervix is a rosebud connected to the centre of the universe. But <laughs> for me, it's not helpful. It's distracting and annoying and and weird. Um yeah, and then also equally the clinical stuff, the medical, the medicalization of it is annoying because it is this process that, you know, literally one half of my ancestors has managed successfully, you know. Yes. <laughs> and it was fine, you know. The the partner guides I've found in a similar way are um like every one of them should be described as the dead shit's guide to pregnancy. Like the biggest, <laughs> the, the, like the biggest bit of advice is like, it's, it's, here's, here's the level I can give you. Oh, she's going to be crying. Try and listen. Or if you see a pile <laughs> of plates and they've been there for three days, wash a couple of them up. You know, <laughs> like it's a real, like, surely I've bought a book. I'm somewhat engaged in this process, but there's like, there is this real, knowledge gap and i and it feels like it's because like we're saying like we just know everything will be different i find it very interesting that we're on like one side of a fence here that you know as soon as you cross it's there's no there's no going back and there's no prep now usually when people are in this kind of situation like there's the the fairly modern concept but like the baby moon you go you go out and you celebrate and you live all these moments that you're supposedly like grieving the life you're about to have or whatever that like you get to go out and have the excitement that you won't be able to have but we have both been in lockdown for the entirety of this time so have you had any form of like what is your your experience of like is there anything that you've tried to cram in now <laughs> that you suspect is about to go away late night reading so i've i've been doing i i, I in the last week or so, other than that, I've been sleeping so much of these processes. I think lockdown is really good for pregnancy in that it allows you to have as many naps as you need. But, um, yeah, I've I've ha found myself doing that real, I don't know if you've ever done this, when you're working really hard or you have something tomorrow that you need to do and you find yourself, like, plunging into just some sort of fantasy novel or it might be, for you a game or a television show or whatever whatever it is that you like and you stay up way too late because there's something about it that like this is time where I can't be working because it's too late at night and so you're yep. indulging something for yourself uh, even though you're taking it out of your own hide tomorrow 
there's something exactly really like- i always feel like i am deliberately robbing future james when i do that like it's not just a well i'm indulging this now i'm doing it out of spite like that jerk tomorrow has to work but me now i am pure hedonistic joy yeah it's a mild form of self-harm and there's something really anti-authoritarian <laughs> about it even though you're the adult that you're rebelling against <laughs> but yeah it's very very pleasurable and satisfying and i sort of feel like I will no longer be able to be rebel against myself as adult because I'll have a child. So I, yeah. this this kind of self indulgence is a form of of of, of self nurture or parenting myself. I don't I don't know, uh, but I, I should recommend my brother's um, podcast, which I think might have gone down now that he's got a job as an academic. But he was the primary carer for his daughter for two years, and it's called the Man Mum Podcast, and he talks about the process of being. A male parent fig- figure being the primary carer uh, and the ways in which that is. I found it really interesting because the ways in which it is hard are in some ways different from the ways in which it is hard for a woman, but in other ways it's harder <laughs> and in other ways it's easier. But what it definitely is is more visible. And I say that as, you know, it's it. it the work involved in primary caring as a man is more visible to us because in that way things that we expect are invisible you know you don't you don't notice things that you've yep. already registered and kind of filed away in your head so that it it, it just a couple of really and I, I think you might enjoy it particularly. But one of the things that I noticed when I was walking with him and his wife from St Pancras Station to Euston Station in London uh, with their daughter Lucy in a pram was that when Linda was pushing the pram, people got out of the way of the pram. But when Henry was pushing the pram, it didn't register in the same way. They didn't have a slot for that. So they kept bumping into him and getting him in his, getting in his way. It was so distinct because it's a, you know, it was like a 300-metre walk, you know. Yeah. And, and it was such a distinct, like it was It was really marked. Like it was really noticeable that people didn't have a program for dealing with a male. Oh, they, yeah, they sort of read him as a man and therefore more capable of dealing with being jostled, despite the fact he wasn't there in his role as a man. He was there in his role of as a parent of a very small infant. Yeah. So, yeah, really interesting. Part of me, like my mentality right now is that old line of everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Like what I'm going to do is prep for the stuff that is like emergency. Like when, you know, we've done the CPR course, we've done the, when things go bad, here's what you really need to know. And everything else is you're just going to be on the fly and going. But what I want to know is have you, have you got anything that at this stage, and the thing I like about this is, both of us are going to check back in on this in, let's say, four months, five months and be like, oh, you naive idiots. So I like being on this side of knowing we're naive right now. Like, is there anything that at this stage you are taking in as like, this is this is my philosophy or this is this is something that I hold dear about how I want to be doing this? Yes. Yeah, I think um, because my, my, because I'm one of twins, right, I feel like this mm-hmm. is doable in a way that, you know, my mum had twins and MS. So if she could do us, then I can do this with just one baby. I feel like I feel confident in that. <laughs> I think I've got this model 
of 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 um of that and i think my look so i've got this kind of obviously like jewish buddhist background that means i'm kind of leaning i lean more on the holistic side of things of just mm-hmm. uh, so i think my policy is the baby is never doing anything on purpose yeah until they get to a certain age they're nothing they're, they're not doing anything spitefully they're not doing it on purpose they're not doing it to you the idea of sort of sleep training or letting them cry or making them wait to feed all of that stuff feels to me like imposing trying to impose order on a system that will just be chaotic until it starts to fall into its own pattern and then at a certain point the baby starts to fall into a pattern you can start to try and control that pattern I feel like maybe two weeks of no sleep, all those kind of nice principles about just let, just follow what the baby needs might evaporate into a, I need a fucking schedule, I don't know. But at the moment I'm like, <laughs> go with it, you know? We did that thing, like unplanned, but we did that thing a while ago where um, you, you pick up a puppy and in the same way, like I always thought like the natural progression is like you get a plant and if you can keep a plant alive, you can have a pet. And if you can keep a pl- pet alive, maybe you can, you're in a place where you can consider being a parent. And um, mm-hmm. we we had a puppy and I don't think that like I I am already preemptively annoyed by people who are like having a pet is exactly the same as having a baby. Obviously, it's not. There are very different factors to it. But what I think it has prepped you really well for is how to love something that is constantly annoying and you cannot communicate even the simplest thing to like i feel like that that is a valuable lesson that it's very hard to get prepped for how to love something that is just pissing you off day in day out Yes, I think that's an important skill and how I just infinite patience and I, I, I don't have a pet, but um, my mum mm. was sick and would go through phases of, of really bad physical and, and psychological things throughout my uh, teenage and twenties years. Um, so I feel like there's nothing a baby can throw at me that that I didn't get in full size. Um, yeah. Except except for the feeling that this will never end <laughs> which i think is the thing about parenthood <laughs> is that parenthood is now forever you know there is a fundamental change in state yep. and, and then you know even people who have been parents in the past who have lost their children they're still parents in a way it, ch- it fundamentally changes your identity yeah, in a way that is you just don't go back from it um and I think that's the thing that is the most terrifying to me because I am a bit of a commitment phobe in that way of just like, <laughs> you mean I can't take a day off, you know, at least certainly not for yeah. the first while. You can't stop. I feel like both of our personalities also and the natural thing, I think, when you're when you're about to have this change occur is the worry you go for all of the like what can go wrong how will things change how are things going to be bad but let's look at the other side of that coin just for a little bit what are the things that you are really looking forward to so i think one of the things that i like about myself <laughs> which is you know it's taken me till my 30s to even be able to contemplate saying something like that. One of the things <laughs> that I like about myself is that I take pleasure in small things. 
and babies are some of the smallest things you can get. <laughs> some of the smallest things there. But, you know, things like, you know, how cool plants are and how nice smells are and look at that sunset and isn't this nice? Those small pleasures I still am surprised by and shocked by and I still really appreciate them. And the idea of introducing a tiny mind to how nice gum leaves smell or what a lizard looks like is so exciting to me because I feel like it will dial up my enjoyment again on these small pleasures that bring me such joy. That's I'm really looking forward to that of just like blowing her tiny mind. I feel the same way. Even like, I, I think it's like, uh, partly for me, it is like, uh, I, the joy of explaining the world to someone who is obliged to listen to me is really, uh, lovely to me. <laughs> um, but even very, like I have these, these other thoughts of like the first time we go out and kick a soccer ball or I read a book to you with it. But I, I think a lot about just, I'm so excited to, 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 make this child try different foods like I'm, I'm very big on the like what are you gonna here's your first like ice cream here's your first slice of lemon i'm very much looking forward to the cruelty behind the first slice of lemon <laughs> well it is it's an incredible thing to watch so, so my twin brother has two children and it's it's so much fun like it's so much fun to watch their little brains come online mm. To watch their little, you know, their personality. They come out sort of with an attitude, I guess, like a pre-personality, and that's really distinct between babies. Like from day one, they have a an angle on the world, which is so wild to me. But like before the lockdown, um, before Mel Melbourne Comedy Festival, there was a scare in in Queensland, and I was on a family holiday in Queensland and cut short. Unfortunately, it was the last time uh, that I got to visit my brother, but. Um, he had at that point a two-and-a-half-year-old son. Sorry, two-and-a-half-month-old son, a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Uh, so his two-and-a-half-month-year-old son uh, was sitting on my dad's knees, staring up into my dad's face, and my dad was poking his tongue out. And over the course of about three-and-a-half, four minutes, I watched little Leonard go, you have a tongue, I have a tongue, I can control my tongue, I can poke my tongue out. This is an act of communication. This is hilarious. And it was so wonderful to watch. Like it was such a transcendental experience just to witness this exchange um, between my father and his grandson and the fact that they look, look quite similar and they have similar facial expressions made it even more intense. But, yeah, it was just this incredible thing to witness. And, like, that stuff, yes, please. I, I will say one of my um, favourite photos I have and my favourite memories I have is holding my niece when she is but a few months old, uh, the first time I became an uncle, and uh, sticking my tongue out at her and having her stick her little tongue back out as well. And I agree with you. It is it is such a joyful and beautiful moment. And between that and I... Um, 
taught her particularly early on that we'd always uh, greet each other with a, a knuckle punch with just a little uh, ride on fist bump. Uh, <laughs> and there was just a, a, a real joy of that. And like, I, th- I think you're entirely right. It's all the, <laughs> it's, <laughs> do you know what's an incredibly millennial approach to this? I keep thinking like, oh, like the best analogy I have for this mentally is a Pokemon. It's like having a Pokemon. So it's like having a Pokemon. <laughs> Watching them evolve. <laughs> ah, that's so silly. It's also these kind of these mixed feelings. I have these like a few interactions with my with my niece where it was like just mixed. So one time she was crawling over my back and she came down wrong on her neck, mm. and I had this moment of like I've killed the baby, and then you know she had a cry, and that was okay, and. And one time she was having a little, I let her play the piano. So we have little piano lessons where she just bangs away, learns how to make noise. And I shut the lid and she'd stuck her fingers in and I hurt her fingers. And those things where I'm just like, that is going to happen as well. Yes. This is not in the context of me looking forward to that, but like trying to prepare for that, trying to prepare for knowing that I'm going to do things wrong that will hurt my baby. And like there's no way to like shelter your heart against that Mm. and then also there's an incredible power that you don't want to abuse in the fact that even if they're having a tantrum at you or because of you you're the one they have to turn to for comfort Mm. and that to me is a terrifying amount of power (laughs) that is um a lot of a lot of my fear going into this uh which I feel I've mostly allayed, but it was um, how much am I going to teach my child wrong as a bit? And I feel like I probably won't do that much, but I'll definitely pick my moments to do that. And that that is something so I'm I looking s- forward to, honestly. I saw a tweet the other day of someone saying, as an adult who ha- who makes a salary, I still can't take anything from a mini bar at a hotel without thinking I'm going to bankrupt my family. And my immediate thought was, I could just not do that to my kid because we all have that. We've all we all have the idea that you know if you take something from the mini bar, it's so expensive, it's the worst thing ever. It's expensive, but it's like seven dollars for some nuts. <laughs> like it's twice or three times as much as you'd pay in a shop. But it's a hotel. It's a special time. You want some nuts, everything else is closed. I could just not blink any time in the future that I'm in a hotel with my child, assuming my lifestyle is such that I can ever be in a hotel with my child. I could just never blink. I could just be like, have some nuts. What? <laughs> like, yeah, thinking about all that weird programming that we have, like I could totally just not make her afraid to walk alone at night. I, I do a lot of like um, counter pro like do you because you, of course your so your marker is your parents and even though my parents are very good and lovely and supportive you still like back program of what what embarrassed me as a kid and what will I try not to do and then comes the next horrible revelation which is that your parents were doing the same about their parents and what happened was a whole new range of embarrassing things they never thought about turned up that were just factors of their personality that's cooked into your DNA that's something that plays with me quite a bit yep 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 and 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 there's other things that they did on purpose like my mum thought it was hilarious 
when I so I I got my first period. I went into her and I was like, "Mom, I've got this thing," and she was like, "Oh, it's in the bathroom." Very low key, not no big, not not a big deal. I sort of sorted it out. I was, you know, but the next time we were in the supermarket and she was walking down the ladies' sanitary area, she shouted at me, "Hey, you need these now, don't you?" And I, as like a teenage, oh, so embarrassing. It was so embarrassing. And she did that because she thought it was it funny. It is funny. <laughs> and it is, in retrospect, very funny. But at the time, mortifying. I always think of, um, so like it's when I was going for my driving test, I remember thinking um, I no, I'm not the worst driver in the world. And that was comforting to me. And a lot of the comfort I get now is I know, even if I'm worrying about this, I'm not going to be the worst parent in the world. And I often think about the teaching methods of my uh, my very German grandfather. And he was trying to teach me <laughs> that um, the, the cigarette lighter in the car was dangerous. Uh, this is when there were cigarette lighters in cars. And he um, mm-hmm. pulled it out of its little socket and he said, uh, give me a hand. And he and I gave him my hand and he put it on my finger and burnt it. And then went, there you go. Never touch that again. And a horrible teaching <laughs> method. To his credit, I only ever touched the cigarette lighter again once when I was trying to retell that story and accidentally burnt myself terribly. <laughs> oh, that's. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's so you you learn these lessons. We don't we don't pass on all of the traumas of our parents. I was talking to my friend Justin Rogers on on my podcast Tea with Alice about parenthood the other day, and she's about to start doing a course of uh, family therapy. So she's a legal. She studies legal ethics and stuff, and she's starting to change her area of research into the ethics of family and apology and all of that stuff. She's a member of a very large family, and. Um, and she was saying, "This is one of the. Th- this was the insight she had, which is that what we want for ourselves when we've done something wrong is for someone to understand our actions in context and forgive us as part of a whole system of things that fed into what we did and why we did that wrong thing. But what we want from our parents or any one who has wronged us is a linear apology, just like I'm sorry, I fucked up." I ruined your life. You you want that from them, but for you, you want a little bit more understanding. And I was like, yeah, that's so true, man. That's so true. Like you just want, you want your parents yep. to be like, yeah, I did this thing wrong and I did this thing wrong. We don't want to know that they were fucked up for their own complicated reasons. Well, uh, in whatever it is, a couple of decades, let's send a copy of this recording to both of our children and let's hope it gives them (laughs) some context. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Alice, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. And And uh, good good luck. luck. Yes. Yes. Let's do some baby dates at some point. Absolutely. And let's come back and and reestablish Parent Corner and see how we're going. Yeah, I'm up for that. I really am. That was Alice Fraser, who you can find on The Gargle, on The Bugle, at Alliterative, on social media. And right now, she is on a break because she has had a beautiful child, which is a lovely way to cap off that segment. And 
let us transition now from the miracle of life to an ape heist NFT story. Because obviously that's, it's called balancing a show, people. You think I'm an amateur at this? I've been doing this a long time. You traditionally start with the birth and then you move quickly onto NFT fraud. If you don't understand what I'm talking about here, that's okay because I didn't understand what the hell I was talking about either. So I invited on James Hennessy from Business Insider Australia to explain what the hell is going on. All right, so I want to bring in J.R. Hennessy for this because I feel like uh, you wrote about this for your newsletter, The Terminal, and I think that it set off every Google alert I have. It's all my favorite topics. It's ape-based. There is an art heist going on. Now, Mm -hmm. there is a lot to understand here, and I'm not still certain that I do. So if you can just use your imagination to paint me as somewhat of a rube, somewhat of a, a Luddite fool who might know let's say the concept of an NFT and how that works, but not where apes come into this and how one would steal an NFT. Can we, can we start with the ape part of this story? Sure. All right. So the ape part of this story is that it all centers around this NFT collection called the born ape yacht club. And basically it's so to paint a picture, if you spend a bit of time on like Twitter or social media, you've almost certainly seen guys around that have like these awful looking monkeys as their yeah. avatar. And you've you've probably seen, even beyond Twitter, you've probably seen trafficked around on various social media these like gorillas looking sort of disgusting apes. Um, and they they come largely from this thing called the Board Ape Yacht Club, not exclusively, but that was sort of the one that kicked off this strange sort of ape craze among um, <laughs> NFT fans. So even at this point, I need to drill down on like four different things of this. Sure. <laughs> like, so <laughs> was ape posting, was event, like was drawing your new fresh apes a trend that I just missed that had been bubbling under the surface for a while? Like is, because I honestly, like I was looking at this for a long time thinking, oh, this is some gorillas tie-in. And then I didn't realize that, no, it's its own arts thing. I don't no. know what level of irony it's on. Are they, do they love these apes or are they pretending to love these apes? What is happening with the apes? <laughs> It's kind of hard to extricate that. I'm, it, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent. I personally can't say there. There is kind of like there is a, like a, a piece of slang in like the crypto world, which is like aping in. If you like, if you're jumping on like a token or like a cryptocurrency mm-hmm. or an NFT that you think is going to like go to the moon and make you a shitload of money, you say that you're aping in. I'm not actually a hundred percent certain which came first, <laughs> but it just means I'm, all this is that monkeys and apes are kind of like really deeply integrated into this into this community. Okay. Um, and because the Board Ape Yacht Club, which I'll get into in a second, has been so popular, there have been so many clones of it coming up. The one that I saw the other day is called like Desperate Ape Wives, where it's like <laughs> a, it's a desperate housewives like that old TV show. Um, 
<laughs> so I should accept that they're all like these like sexy monkeys, basically. Uh, <laughs> and I, I could, anyway, this you know it's one of these things like the, you know it's it's passe at this point to say like the, the future is like really dumb and weird. But this is really the thing that's made me be like, I can't, I have to, I have to tap out of this. Yeah. I can't be part of this, this future. As much as I personally love apes in the abstract, you know, this is, this is too much for me to put about. Anyway, so getting back to uh, the center of it, what the Board Ape Yacht Club is, and it's good. Understanding that means you'll kind of understand everything people are talking about with NFTs right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is, it's a collection of 10,000 apes, right? Um, which are minted on the Ethereum blockchain. So it's d- this decentralized ledger that says who owns what ape. You know, people kind of derisively say, you know, th- it's it just shows it, you're just buying a JPEG or whatever. Uh, but every you know. every question I have here feels inherently insane to ask. But are they sure. is are they unique apes or are there like five apes that you each own a unique serial code for? Like. Is that what I'm asking? Is are there ten thousand different ape pictures, and there's some there are ten. There is yes. So there's ten thousand different apes, um, and they all have various attributes. You know, some apes are like smoking a cigarette. Some apes are wearing like Hawaiian shirts. Some apes have like golden fur, and some of those traits are rarer than others. So it's it's got kind of that um, when there are ten thousand of them, there's never going to be any more of them. It kind of has that, and a lot of these NFTs have that kind of Pokemon card quality yeah. where you open a, a booster pack and you have various things in there, except you mint an ape on the on the blockchain in that initial sort of minting process and it will have um, attributes. Some of them are rarer than others, you know. Um, there's only, I think there might only be one or one or two apes that has like golden fur, but there are heaps of apes that have a Hawaiian shirt, right? Mm-hmm. So some of these traits are rarer than others. So you get this kind of like system or hierarchy of value. And it's really great to have like a rare ape, right? Yeah. Um, and oh, yeah. I, yeah. I understand how great it is to have a rare ape. I've, I've <laughs> looked at the fucking yeah. economy. <laughs> um, so, and this is the, the kind of thing where it's kind of like, you know, everyone's like, well, they're just JPEGs. Yes, you're right. And that's kind of like a, um, a hurdle that the whole sector has to get over before normal people start actually being interested. But within the system, you kind of get it's like if you're really immersed in this mm-hmm. and you really believe in the board ape yacht club, having a rare ape, you know, within that community, kind of, kind of, you, you, you get why that has, I guess, value yeah. in that sense. And like everything I've seen of people of it is somewhat of a, a status symbol element to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's someone Absolutely. someone flashed their ape to me, and it was a very impressive ape. Yeah, exactly. No, that, that's that's totally right. Um, and also, you know. It's so they've they've done a, quite a bit to try to make it uh, more valuable than just you know owning the rights to this JPEG, which you know as many people isn't really legible to the, a normal person. They'd be like, okay, well, you know, all the people that go like you know right click save, I have your ape too. Those people are never really going to be convinced. But the um, uh, what the board ape yacht club tries to do is it builds this sort of community around it. So if you own one of these ten thousand apes you get access to like this special discord server. You can go to events that they put on in the real world. You know, they just um, had a cruise in um, from New York city where it was only people that own apes were allowed to go to. They had like a clubhouse also in New York, the strokes played for the other day. And it was only pe- <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> no, it's true. 
I was, I had my, I was, my mind was blown. I was going through all these tweets with all these ape owners freaking out because the Strokes were playing at their club. It really kind of like intensifies that early 2000s vibe of the whole <laughs> yes. thing. Yes! They, they look like the Gorillas, the Strokes are playing. But like, you know, this is the sort of thing where you kind of, even if you're an NFT skeptic, which, you know, I, I am quite often, mm-hmm. um, you can look at that and go, okay, well, cool. It's like, it's like a country club. Whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at least there's, there's something big... in the physical world that you are Yeah, part. totally. And it all kind of interfaces. So anyway, that is, um, so that's like kind of like the broad idea of the board. Idea. There are a couple, there are other things in there. Like if you own that ape, they give you sort of like the commercial right, rights to it. So if you want to like print shirts with your particular ape on it, you can then sell them. That is um, actually a more interesting detail that I realized because I like that seems to, like, as you can imagine, I always think of this in, in the terms of, you know, it's as if you actually owned the Mona Lisa or whatever, if it's in, in this world. And that that's a very interesting wrinkle to me that, like, you can imagine I'm the person who gets to make Mona Lisa merch suddenly does have a, a value to me. Yeah, totally. Um, and so you can do whatever you want. So the idea, I think what they're kind of trying to do, it's almost like they're building a streetwear label from the ground up. So and then eventually the idea is that Board Ape Yacht Club becomes cool. People want to wear jackets with the Board Ape Yacht Club on it. And then all of a sudden you owning a piece of that becomes valuable because you have you own something that has like cultural oh, cultural okay. capital. I get so again, like, you know, um I don't I'm not personally entirely convinced by it, you know, whether they can like build an IP from the ground up, like build Gucci from the ground up yeah. instead of about like cartoon apes is like a different question. But it's it does take it a little bit out of the realm of just you're buying a JPEG, what that's worthless, whatever. Hmm. Um so anyway, I feel like you gotta you gotta attack it on its own merits rather than relying on that argument because I feel like it's kind of melting away a little bit. Um, anyway, to the heist. Yes, um, to the heist. Now- so, <laughs> so just to just to paint where we get here. So now we know that there are there are apes in this world that are very valuable apes, and they're digitally based. Digitally based, ten thousand very valuable apes. There was also a robbery in the digital ape world, and like I love an art heist, and I do not understand. I do not physically understand how an art heist happens in the NFT world, and I haven't. Oh. Is this is this a unique occurrence? Is this a, a first of its time, or is this all the time? N- not remotely. It's like, <laughs> this is a really this is a really funny example, but it's not even as anyone who's even like spent any time looking at this space or being immersed in it is that scams and like robberies and flim flams and you know um, are insanely common. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. One, and as I'll get into, it's it's not that hard to pull off. <laughs> and two, um, there are just so many when they, there are a lot of idiots around, right? There are a lot of marks yes. in this yeah. world. As there is there anything where people suddenly see that um, people are making large sums of money? Yeah, when you're flocking, uh, you're going to yeah. have someone selling stuff. Pe- yeah. People are gonna are gonna pour in, and then you know if you're unscrupulous, you can find some pretty easy marks in that world. So the, obviously, the other thing that I, that I didn't mention because I think it was probably um, I think uh, kind of goes unsaid is that you know some of these NFTs and the board apes are going for a lot of money. Like one of them sold at a Sotheby's auction for like I think it was two point three million dollars. Um, anyway, again, whether it's actually worth two point three million dollars is up for debate, but people. There's yeah. that status element, you know, and that's also part of the art world. Like a lot of exactly, people are like exactly. This is how you launder money when you're when you're exactly. rich enough that this is a thing. This is how you do it. 
Sure. And um, the exact the same stuff is happening. It's not super pertinent to the story about the tell, but obviously laundering of money is very much uh, a live issue in the NFT world as much as it is in the art world. Anyway, um, so to get at sort of like the mechanics of how like a monkey JPEG heist actually <laughs> happens, mm-hmm. um, obviously the thing that the people that love the blockchain and NFTs talk about is that, you know, your the record of your ownership is not, stored on a database in on some privately held company's computer it's not in on a computer in the basement of the board at yacht club it's on the blockchain the ethereum blockchain where it's um completely visible to anybody you can look at any given token your favorite ape go to the blockchain look at sort of you can see a a process of who had it when who bought it who sold it how much they paid for it all that kind of stuff it's all uh right there now the other thing about the blockchain is that because, and some people say it's a benefit, some people say it's a huge con, especially as normal people try to get into it, is that, you know, transactions are not inherently reversible, right? If you get scammed, if someone um, manages to lift your uh, MasterCard or something, goes mm-hmm. on a shopping spree, steals a bunch of money from you, there are like avenues of recourse, right? Yeah. Like you can call up your card provider, you can call up your bank, whatever, and say, hey, I've been scanned and they can reverse the transaction all that sort of stuff yeah i got uh, beat by the not... wallet inspector i need your help exactly yeah. I, I can be helped. you can't really do that in um nft world with the blockchain because as i said it's this public ledger it is, really is that partly because this is a world where a lot of the currency was originally built to buy let's say illicit goods and weaponry and you know well a lot of people that that this is the thing that the people that love cryptocurrency and the blockchain and whatever are big fans of because in their world it means that it's resistant to censorship right mm-hmm. nobody can come in and suddenly say your your money is not welcome here they can't lock you down because you you can always access the blockchain and then so on the one side you can look at that and go okay great that's wonderful you know you, you're never going to be you're never going to be censored by big tech you're never going to be censored by a government on the other side you know in terms of what normal people do to with their money with buying stuff it, there are lots of negatives to that yeah um so i, I really was fascinated by this particular house like i said it happens kind of all the time um there are scams all the time i'm i'm in heaps of these discord servers just because i like to get a sense of what's going on for my newsletter and, and work and whatever uh, of what's happening in nft and crypto world um and every simply from being in you know six to ten discord servers my discord is currently sorry constantly popping off with people trying to scam me just like messaging me constantly <laughs> trying to be like hey come by hey i've got an ape for you to buy i can you know i've got i can sell to you real cheap it's only one one ether or whatever which is like four four thousand sorry thanks about six thousand dollars now rather than paying two hundred thousand dollars come in and then obviously if i wandered blindly into that trap that could be so this is the tech world of someone coming up to your park with an overcoat full of rolexes well exactly yeah absolutely um no totally uh so um and there's even like a there's a because the the funny thing about this is kind of an ancillary to the point i'm making but one of the funny things about nfts that they haven't really worked out a way to resolve is that you can just mint your own collection of apes that looks exactly like the board api club and be like Here's what do you want to buy mine? Yeah. It looks exactly the same <laughs> as the other one. It's just it's pointing to exactly the same JPEGs. Do you do you want to buy that? And there's they don't really so there's like a um a channel in the Discord for bought out your club that's like re- report 
illicit apes or, 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 it's, or it's just like apes that look the same but they're not the same but you know again it, they don't give you access to the strokes concerts so yeah how real other um so this particular one caught my eye because a lot of people were sort of clowning on it on twitter and then you know for obvious reasons there's this guy called um cal his name's like calvin becerra becerra um and basically it, this guy's very funny. You, you need to go to his 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 website to get a real sense of the the kind of dude that he is. He's, he's like Calvin Becerra. It's like B E C E A dot com. And the first thing that greets you is gigantic text that says, "All I know is the hustle." <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then all I know is the hustle fades away and is replaced with all I know is work ethic, which then fades away to say, "All I know is family," and that's his website. Um, <laughs> Anyway, um, so this guy, he's, he's, he describes himself as like a motivational speaker and g- generic sort of inspirational tech guy sort of uh, <laughs> vibes. Um, so, <laughs> All I know is the hustle is, is will not break away from it. It's like Hemingway-esque, like short pastiche. <laughs> it says something yeah. dramatically horrible about our types. So he has a Twitter account. His Twitter account has a has a, a, a um, one of the, one of his apes is the uh, picture. He basically he took to Twitter on at the end of October and he tweeted this. He was like, "Major news: All three of these bored apes were hacked tonight over GIFs Discord. Guys posing as buyers in Discord were helping me troubleshoot a problem we thought was happening. They walked me through the language settings in my MetaMask, that's a crypto wallet, um, and had me choose an option." And then took everything. So basically, he had three apes, which are market value worth over a million dollars. You know, um, <laughs> and these guys contacted him on uh, Discord. I, he was having. He, he said he was. Uh, I don't know what the exact problem he was trying to troubleshoot was exactly. And also, like I've used MetaMask, I have no idea how he stumbled through this procedure obviously yeah. not a hugely bright guy it does fine. seem like a, a like a wallet inspector situation here really really it was uh and anyway they've absconded with three of his you know cherished apes um and this is where it kind of this is where the, the, the story kind of gets interesting hmm. for me just like looking at the crypto space from like bird's eye view or whatever so he goes there i've looked through the, like the the discord and you can just you can see him in sort of a blind panic Saying to people, oh shit, I've like I've had my um, beloved ape stolen from underneath my feet. Mm-hmm. Um, what can I do? What, what am I going to do? We um, all we all know the pain of losing your apes. We all know the pain of having something so valuable uh, taken from you. Absolutely. Um, and basically, in his panic, he didn't really know what to do. These guys kind of vanished from the Discord. And this is obviously the thing about the crypto world is that everything's pseudonymous and anonymous. So you have absolutely no, no idea where these guys were. All he had was like their crypto wallet address and this is the, the this is the incredibly funny part to me he hand wrote a note basically begging for his apes back uh <laughs> took a photo of it made it into a token like an nft and sent it to their crypto wallet oh so, no oh, <laughs> oh millhouse so, oh dear sweet millhouse so so he sent this though i, I got a i've got a um a a, a, oh, a, no. a picture of it <laughs> Somewhere and basically his note reads, "I want to buy my my board ape yacht club back. 
They are forever marked compromise now. They are blacklisted now. Please, let's work out a deal. It's better than nothing. Write me on Discord, Instagram, or Twitter, Calvin Becerra. I will gladly buy back. So the idea was that he hopefully would pay them a, a lesser figure. Because here's the thing. What he did, and this is really fascinating in terms of crypto law. Like I said, there's no backsees. There's no Trump. There's no... Yeah reverse transactions in the crypto world. But what he did essentially is he went to all the big NFT marketplaces and the biggest one is OpenSea. That's where a lot of people do all their trades Mm -hmm. and basically got them to blacklist those apes. (laughs) So he told them, do not traffic in these stolen apes. Uh, These these guys are are sold. And as you can go to OpenSea and see that they've they've marked all those um, transactions as fraudulent or or suspicious or something, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is like, opens a really interesting question for the crypto guys. They're like, you can't censor it. You can't, um, you know, there's no backseas. This Nobody can can block you from anything. But then, on the other hand, these major sort of exchanges and, like, the, the major place where people actually do NFT business has been able to go in and be like, okay, these can't be traded anymore, uh, you know. And the next step would be to go to Board Ape Yacht Club and be like, do not let these guys into the strokes gig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do not let them onto the yacht. Uh, anyway, so- back to it. he sent this sort of hostage note. It was like, please return my apes. Yeah. Um, and they, what the the thieves did, rather than acceding to his demands, is they took that NFT of the hostage note and then listed it on OpenSea for sale. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so you, you could go, I, it may be gone now. I've got a screenshot of it, but um, you can see it's like there's, the name of the listing is like, let's work out a deal, please. Let's create a win-win. And then just a picture of his note. Uh, and the, and like an account that's been obviously flagged so, um, for his activity, so maybe nobody can buy it. But I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions on, on top Please. about this. So I found it interesting that um, what we know about these and what seems to be the unique thing of NFTs is it's not like stealing a barrel of cash or whatever. You can say here are the specific stolen items, but we also know from the art world, like what. The Mona Lisa we talked about before, what made the Mona Lisa famous was it was stolen once and then recovered. And that worldwide press it got for that story, like rocketed its value up because it was then a famous painting and a famously stolen painting. Is there any chance that this particular interaction makes these the rarest of all the rare apes and changes the ape dichotomy here? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this specific one is necessarily going to do that but i can kind of see that dynamic playing out generally speaking like mm-hmm. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is like i mean you cannot you can argue that the mona lisa itself i mean many people have argued over the years that it doesn't have any inherent qualities that makes it any greater than anything else you know it requires kind of like as you say the theft like an idea of its history and its creator and all that kind of mm. all that kind of stuff it's very funny to apply this to and I, I'm going to describe the the ape that was stolen, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was stolen. It's a there are three of them, but most prominently one of them ha- has a hat that has Board Ape Yacht Club on it. It's mm-hmm. got a nice teal background that might be rare or might be not. I'm not 100 sure. An earring and it's also smoking a cigar. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's also wearing a blindfold. So and you know it's less than the sum of its parts. It just it just looks like shit. <laughs> You couldn't imagine Da Vinci sketching this? No, I can't. I can't. So anyway, you go to the replies of his panic tweets and there's just people like tweeting the image back at him and like, yeah, here, I found it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it. Uh, all good. And I think he blocked all those people based on some of his replies. But anyway, the thing that is just 
I find so fascinating about it is that you have this like combination of a space that has just an absurd amount of money being pumped into it. Mm -hmm. And you can argue for days about why that is, you know, is this the beginning of a brave new era or is it just people with way too much money during the pandemic and no way to spend it and they're just dumping it into, you know, illiquid JPEGs that they can traffic amongst one another. Is it like a um, money laundering thing? Um, Is is the other sky high valuations just a scam in and of themselves? Is the big question because you know there are people that sort of just trade NFTs amongst themselves and sort of push the price up and get a frenzy going. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to do that. Um, but there's that. There's a guy that is you know whichever way you look at it, lost a large. He could have liquidated that the uh, Ethereum that he used to pay for it for like I said over a million dollars, yeah. but he chose to spend it on this instead and then you have an entire outside world that's not part of this community who looks at this and goes that's that's fucking stupid what are you talking about like what do you what do you mean you had a million dollars of eight jpegs taken from you like literally just by guy by literally guys doing a wild inspector trick it's completely illegible to the average person absolutely so like when i was trying to understand this world the thing that was the best, and I still do not, but the thing that was the closest they could get was um, the, the MBA's NBA Top Shot program, which is seems to me like, like it's about highlights of things, but it seemed like as close you get to digital like basketball cards, which is something that I understand people trade in rookie cards. They pick up someone early and hope it becomes valuable later. There's rareness subscribed to it. This, it's... It, gets strange for me when it blends into the art world because it feels like it gets so much of the noise you already get from any kind of modern art world of it's not worth this it's garbage and it's hard to differentiate what is just people who you know this isn't for or who don't participate in these circles and what is a genuine concern of what are we building here and how does this fundamentally function yeah no absolutely um and it, it is kind of interesting when you, you look, as you said, like the Top Shots thing was, and Top Shots was probably the, that was when all normal people started to like understand what NFTs were and like get involved in that conversation. Cause I don't, it, they've been going like the, there have been all sorts of, the big one is like CryptoPunks. That was like a really early one from like 2017. That kind of actually created the groundwork of like here are 10,000 unique little dudes you know, mm-hmm. they they create they they basically started. There was Crypto Kitties, which is the same thing, but with with cats, and that's kind of been chugging along. But Top Shots was actually the first one where people were like, "A, that's an insane amount of money," because that was that's how it broke into the news. People were paying a hundred thousand dollars for an NBA clip, and mm-hmm. unlike you know, at least with Board Yacht Club, you can say, as I said before, you get the commercial rights to this ape, etc., etc. Yep. You don't own shit when it comes to like the NBA yeah, Top Shots. <laughs> like uh, you say, you own that clip, but if you tried to like. Tweet it. <laughs> like, no, I would actually like, own yeah. LeBron James doing a Eurostep, and every time he does yeah. one, he owes me twenty five cents. Exactly. There's no, yeah. There's no no residuals there. But obviously, in terms of like sports collectibles, that has a long, rich history. I'm sure there are plenty. Of, every time someone sells a baseball card for X amount of money, most people would be like, you know, yeah, what are you good. doing? That yeah. does that doesn't make any sense. So you, on that level, you get it. But yeah, as you said, when it, when it interfaces with the art world, which is even more kind of like abstract and kind of rich in criminality, whether it be heists or money laundering or whatever whatever it is you want to do, 
And the funny thing is, is like the actual art world is kind of tentatively getting into this. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that like the NFT guys really want. They really want the art world to actually be like, this shit rocks. Like yeah. we're, we're getting into it. And you know, you hear those stories about like, oh, this NFT, like Beeple, whatever that guy was, sold this uh, thing at uh, Christie. I think it was Christie's or one of those big auction houses yeah. with $30 million or something. People were like, oh my God, that's insane. Um, just just for to um if I'm thinking of the right one, just to fill people in on this, I believe was about the grade of shit editorial cartoon kind of level of Basically, yeah. Yeah. Donald no, Trump no, looking at a phone and a Twitter symbol coming out. Like you know the the area we're talking about. Exactly. Like it was not good at all. Like uh, you know, Banksy ass sort of like shit, but you know. Um so yeah, a lot of these uh, debates do come down to very similar ones that have already been happening in the art world forever. As you said, modern art is a great comparison because you know, for fifty years people have been going, "All this stuff is dog shit. I could do this." Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of has echoes of the same thing where it's like, it's just a fucking JPEG doesn't do anything. So you know, th- those those arguments are the same. But the thing that I find really interesting is just like I've never seen a piece of technology that is so divisive in terms of people that are like committed to it with like religious intensity versus people who either think it's stupid or just like viscerally hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Like the energy consumption question, all all those sort of things are are great reasons to actually viscerally hate it. So I totally get that. But I also think people use that as a get out of jail free. Oh yeah, totally. I hate it for the energy reasons. Definitely. No, you hate it because it's a monkey that's going for a lot of money and that's a fine reason to hate it. It's okay. That's fine. No, I think you're absolutely right. It's just, it's an easy way to package it up and go, it's bad, whatever it's. So I do think we need to think a bit harder because if they do manage to solve that energy problem, which, you know, there are lots of these guys who obviously get very wounded when people complain about the energy thing are trying to resolve. They're trying to like move to renewables or make it less energy hungry. They're trying Mm -hmm. to, anyway, I don't want to get too involved in that because it's a very boring conversation. But um, yeah, I feel like people need to come up with better critiques because what happens when they fix that, if they do, (laughs) you're you're like, you can just fall back on the now I need this to get is, the mortgage on the ape. They've taken got, away my one I problem. I got to do it. But and then in the middle of this, you have this poor inspirational speech coach hustler <laughs> losing a million dollars worth of tokens, and nobody cares. That's just that's just the saddest <laughs> thing to see. Everyone's clouding on this guy for having his beautiful tokens stolen. His apes. He loved his apes, and they are gone. And I feel for him. Um, oh, absolutely. Just before we go, I have to ask, has there ever been one that you've come across? Like, let's say a batch of any form of MFT that you're like, you know what? Like, it's let's say even if you were play money, I don't I don't expect you to take your life savings and put it in. I, I Look, I don't want to ascribe your personal accounts, but I don't know if you have walking around eight money. But <laughs> have there been any collection where you're like, you know what? I totally get this one and I would have shelled out on it. Were I able to? Um, yeah, well, there, yeah, there are some that I think are like trying to do something interesting. So the one that um, comes to mind, which again is one of those ones that sounds insanely stupid when you first encounter it, but then when you think about it a bit more, you're like, okay, well, this maybe this has a little bit of valence beyond you know the speculative world. Uh, it's called Loot. It was started by the guy that um, founded Vine. Actually, it was one of the the Vine guys started it. And he kind of did it as like a little experiment. Um, basically, what it would do is 
it's the same sort of thing. I think it was also like all these things, 10,000 items, but rather than being a picture of an ape or whatever, it was just like a text string that was, that sounded like fantasy items, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, the leather belt or like the gloves of strength plus one, you know, whatever. Yeah. So something that you, you would encounter in like Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. And basically his thing was like, all right, I'm going to mint these things. They don't actually cost anything to mint. Like you just got to pay the, like the, the blockchain fee um gas they call it to to make it and then you can own that and then boom everyone all of a sudden had like these loot or mm-hmm. all these people i think was, you, you would get a bag that was full of those items actually rather than each item individual okay you get a yeah bag, i get you and you open it again the pokemon card model you open you're like oh great i've got like a, a sort of whatever um <laughs> or I've got, anyway so and but the idea was that that was it and it, like that's all he was giving you um obviously Again, on the blockchain, it proves you own all these items, but these items don't actually do anything. Then all of a sudden, this sort of community sprang up that was like, okay, well, everyone owns these items now. And you've got it. Let's like make that into something. So they started developing all these apps that would like automatically visualize that item. Oh, they okay. They're starting to build like uh, people are trying to, trying to build like games and fantasy worlds or whatever where it's having those items actually lets you do something mm-hmm. and they're building all these sorts of things. It, it all comes down to these back to these like metaverse concept where, where it's like um, living in a digital world where you have items that you actually own that you pay whatever. So, and the idea was that if you build up all these sort of like systems that include these items and use them and give them sort of value, like building like the web browser type Neopetsy kind of game where having those items does something um, all of a sudden. And if you're having fun playing that, yeah, and all of a sudden, there's your there's your value right there. Um, again, I don't think I would necessarily buy into it, but I looked at that and I was like, okay, well, I that is an interesting project. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I have um, to say, my biggest takeaway from this has been that I like when people refer to the NFT community, it's something that makes me shudder to my core. But then I realized I'm, I'm now, sure. like what you're saying is, a lot of these are actually almost like entrance tickets into an actual community that like people might like it's it's at the core of every internet fan is a desperate hope for friendship and it seems like a welcome pass in i look that's it it's all about there's there's an element of community building there and look you know when i saw all the photos from like the board out yacht whether it was the actual yacht that we're all in and i saw the people that was there i was like that's not a community i'd be interested in being a part of like <laughs> i'd rather go to the pub with my real friends i don't like these people said but you know if that's your thing then i can see how you could get into that and be like these are my people we all have apes as our picture on social media this i'm leading with it these are all my weird fucking ape friends who respect my like Eight flexes. When I say I have the gold ape, mm-hmm. they go, "You are the fucking king of this." <laughs> like, I get you. Not for me, but, but I, yeah, I, I get, get it. I get that aspect. Yeah, I've, I've got uh, equally insane hobbies. I will say. Oh, mine are not, are not as insane. I have very normal hobbies. <laughs> All right, I'll see you at Larpen tonight, mate. Thank you for being part of this. Oh, no worries. Glad to glad to explain it. That was J.R. Hennessy talking about ape NFTs, which hopefully we all understand a little bit better now, but still have no actual interest in buying into. You can subscribe to Hennessy's 
Substack, theterminal.info, and get all the latest. In the ape world, yes. Also the technology and business world. I would love to say primarily the ape world, but I'm not sure that is the selling point he would like. No, I'm going to go with it. Primarily ape talk with a little bit of the other esoterica of the technology and business world. But mostly ape stuff. He's a big ape guy. All right, let's move on. Next up, I wanted to talk about the churn and anyone who works in a creative field and has worked in it for a while knows what I'm talking about in regards to the churn, the need to continue making creative things every damn day if you ever want to pay your rent. I think a lot about vaudeville comedians when I think about this. I think about someone... You know, touring the American Midwest in the late 1800s, early 1900s, let's say, who had to think of about two jokes in their lifetime, and then they could just retire. (laughs) Someone who wrote three episodes of I Love Lucy and then went to their beach mansion for the rest of their life to live off the royalties. You know, back when the getting was good in the creative industries... (laughs) And to talk about this, it's a hell of a thing to complain about, isn't it? Very charming complaint to have. But I also think there's just an interesting discussion to be had about the mentality of having to create things, having to be creative to a salary, and also having to look at working that job the way you look at working any other job that you are going to be going in every week. Hopefully, if you are lucky, for a very, very, very long time. And so to talk about this, I want to bring in someone who I think really understands this situation. And that is Victoria Zerbst from Freudian Nip and The Feed. So let's chat with her now. Vic, what I wanted to talk to you about today is that we both have this quite unique perspective in Australian comedy, which is relentlessly having to release things particularly based on the news both your work with Mm. Freudian Nip and the feed and the chase are my own with the weekly and QE and various other things of having to just absorb and turn around the news at a fairly constant basis but also over the span of years and the first thing I wanted to know from you is has this Mm. changed how you absorb news like has this changed how you watch the news or how you engage with media Mm, it definitely has i think that i mean i kind of have my work days and my non-work days 
Uh, and on my work days, I am, you know, logging onto Twitter. I've got my, you know, ABC News up. I'm looking at articles. I'm engaging and I see what's happening and I go, oh, no, this is happening. Oh, no, this is happening. Well, actually, sometimes it's, oh, thank God, something terrible is happening because that is going to be great. <laughs> um, and then on my non-news days, I do not read anything. I refuse. I do not read anything. I don't. I don't like to know what's going on. I do not like it. I do not do it. I just um, switch off. And it's so beautiful because I um, my my girlfriend is incredibly offline. Like she just doesn't follow mm -hmm. the the vibe of, um, you know, the constant turn of something always happening. Oh, just the madness of, of the tweets and the humor and stuff. So I just will exist in this space where that doesn't really impact my life, which is wonderful. Uh, but on my actual days of being being on when I'm online it's um it's usually a f like a race to the a race to the idea so you're kind of absorbing mm -hmm. stuff really quickly and you kind of know what's been happening and unfolding because most stories have like one to two days to kind of pop off um to jump on and to write something about and then some are kind of a bit longer and you think oh what's the interesting take the difficulty is obviously coming up with something new about something that every single person online is talking about and then having a package that is something new and fresh. But yeah, my online days, I read everything. And my offline days, I read absolutely nothing. I feel like that's an interesting area for us to get into because something that this generation of comedy has had to deal with more than I think any other is the fact that everyone else gets to make a joke instantly. And like, it's, you don't get to wait until, mm. you know, a new story happens on Saturday. And what is Johnny Carson going to say about at 11 PM on Monday night? And that will be the take. It's that everyone go. And I think like exactly. in the best shows that I've worked on and in the mm. best, the things I enjoy the most, people have to work hard for what is the joke that Twitter can't do? Like what yes. is the next step above that? And doing that for, Two or three stories is fine. But when you are, again, in your third, fourth, fifth year of doing this all the time, like, how do you, I want to put it this way. How do you find joy creatively in that work that you have to, because the news is often quite similar, but yeah. you can't be, we can't repeat our mm. favorite like in a in a perfect world, Very I'm sure true. like we're always aping our worst qualities or whatever. But you can't. Mm. You're trying not to repeat yourself. Absolutely. How do you how do you take on that challenge? I will first say there is no joy in any of this for anyone involved. After a certain period of time, there is no <laughs> joy involved. It is pain, and we live through it. And we have to believe that we're doing some kind of service. That's what keeps me going. I say I'm trying to get young people involved in what's going on. I'm trying to offer a new way of seeing the news. It's, if anything, I'm a martyr, I'm a saint, but I'm, I'm really, there's no joy, joy involved. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing is, other that I will say is that the way that we do, you know, uh, deal and survive with stuff that is like, you know, the two main things are like, but, you know, the last two years have been climate, COVID, climate, COVID, climate, COVID, politician do bad thing. That's been the whole time. What we do is we sometimes do a reverse engineering based on what kind of costumes we want to wear that week. I'm sure you will notice that. No, this is entirely true. This is not, I'm not kidding, Collie. I'm not kidding. We literally have, and we still have like forms. Like we really want to do a king, like a jester and a king, like an old timey king and a, and a court jester. We haven't yep. found the right idea for that yet. And we'll say we want to do like a goblin thing. We want to be in a cave or, and you'll go back and notice being like, why are they in a freaking alien costume that has nothing to do with the, the sketch? And we're like, that's what we want. I want to be scary monster this week. 
and then you find a way to make the new story fit into that because it, that's the only way you can really stay creative is to change the form. And it literally is silly costume, silly costume <laughs> or different way we want to use the camera. I would say like that we, particularly when we're in um, doing lockdown seasons of the weekly, that is a very similar process to what I, like, I remember one of my proudest moments ever at the helm of that show was uh, getting to finally do a balloon drop. I had always wanted to trigger a balloon drop on a comedy show and mm. we managed to, I believe the joke was oh, that on the same yes. day, the the Matildas had, had like Australia had won the rights to the host the Women's World Cup and COVID had hit 100 million cases worldwide. And so the balloons didn't oh, drop yeah. for the Matildas and then they were miscued when the Perfect. 100 million dropped. And getting, getting to do something like that. And I, I actually think this gets to something Perfect. like, so like what we both try and do and what I think you do very well is distill very mm. difficult like heady concepts and and quite fraught ones a lot of the time quite things mm. that are hard to look at hard to pay attention mm. to mm. into simple one but mm. the thing I really love that you do is never lose the silliness like my my favorite well my favorite sketches yeah. you put out for the last couple of years is you playing the prime minister as just a toddler who doesn't wanna mm. and like it's toddler. that beautiful exactly like, silly like mm. the joy the joy of silly it's of like silly. I feel like satire yes. gets in a bad place when it's trying to be smarter than its audience and when it's happily dumber, oh, it gets into a great place. Absolutely. And that was one of the cases of like, I honestly, because I was in the middle of lockdown, I was acting like a baby in my office and my workplace, like on <laughs> Zoom and stuff. I'd be like, oh, I don't want to. I, I, I felt it. I didn't want to do anything. And I felt like if I'm going to have to go and film a sketch, I want to be baby. Like I'm going to be a little baby. Um, and so it was, it was really wonderful. But, you know, to that point, I think the real key that has unlocked a new kind of engine inside me in terms of coming up with ideas is really distilling down, you know, the work, like the headiness, the, the, the politics of stuff into human emotions and concepts. And I feel like a lot of the super heady stuff really comes to the ba like the most ba basest human emotions and mm -hmm. alex lee actually said this to us in a meeting it's one of the things that we do really well is when we figure out what the idea is we, we don't think what's going on we think what are people feeling at the moment or what's the what's the we take the temperature of the emotional state of the nation what is the what are the thoughts and feelings and then i think for me and jenna when we do a lot of our stuff our whole thing is taking the political and making it personal finding mm -hmm. the connections that are just about the emotion. Um, and that seems to um, to resonate with people. And then you can hang your bells and hooks and whistles and funny wigs and hats. But it really comes down to the emotions of the time. Where that is fraught is obviously when there is one emotion that pervades a society, which is uh, ennui. Um, mm -hmm. Not many ways to play ennui. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we try. I think that's that's interesting. That's something that it took us a few years to consciously acknowledge writing Gruen mm. is that um that a lot of the time like you also have to get that a lot of people don't spend their lives watching the thing that you're watching over and totally. over again looking totally. for the sixth level esoteric point that you can make mm -hmm. about it whereas like mm -hmm. our our like shorthand is the best like particularly when we're talking about reactions to ads the best reaction you can have to anything is coming off it and going yuck that's the, the <laughs> most sure it deserves nothing more and to just go yuck will always work and always be fun <laughs> and That's, oh so funny yuck is a really it's a, just a human yeah the most human reaction 
Uh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's correct. <laughs> and that's what a lot of this, like, like we like a game that yeah. we often play on a lot of these things is a rehearsal game, which is like your reaction to every clip is, what a dick. And yeah. Like, yeah. You're, you're, you're right. A lot of time. And it also gets you more at the heart of, I think you're right. Like what you're mm-hmm. hitting is you are so much better writing the the emotional point and it's also like Mm. it just makes you more fun to watch because it's so easy to be Mm. particularly particularly in satire's job i feel is Mm. to try not to lecture people as much as your instincts tell you that you're Mm. lecture you should be lecture like there's yeah. there's this that old idea of like too many journalists think the job of journalism is holding the public to account and too mm-hmm. many satirists think the job of comedy is like to instruct and beautifully like well totally like hold court to your audience well totally i remember you actually posting this article or writing it i don't even know what it was no i think you wrote it i'll give you that credit about like the point of satire not actually being able to change minds but just being a spotlight and just shining a light on what's happening. I I really, ever since reading that, plugged to your own work, was like, actually, yeah, that that is so true. Like, we're not actually going to be changing, like, you know, minds with this stuff. But especially, I just think, because I obviously care about, like, young people and political literacy mm. for, like, people who might not get access to those kind of conversations. I'm just like, if I make a funny sketch about something, that might, you know, inspire someone to be like, well, what was actually, what was the real story behind this or what's going on? And I think a lot of people are getting their news comedy first. I know I am. I see fucking mm-hmm. something tweet, something, well, tweet, what's that thing? It was viral, like a, one of those hashtags. I look at them and I go, um, well, what, what's that about? And then that's how I know, that's how I know things. So I think it is a really fun spotlight. You know, there's the sweet sugar to the bitter medicine of life, as, as Gatsby would say. Gatsby, Gatsby. Have we done that, Gatsby? The Great Gatsby. Oh, the Great Gatsby is a fantastic. We, I think we've we landed that? on okay, something wait here. Wait a second, I'm going to pitch that. That's going to be a new show. Okay, The Great Gatsby. Um, there it is. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think you're spot on. We're not changing any thoughts or, or, or minds or whatever, but we can offer a bit of light and we can shine a light on something. Yeah, at, at the best, like I feel like what you're giving is uh, uh, like articulating an argument at the very mm. best that you're like what like he's he, like here's the gist is about the best you could get to like totally. which is something you get very well like this is what we're talking about is the emotional reaction here's the gist this whole thing sounds like bullshit and it deserves mm. to be treated as such or whatever it may be absolutely um i want to talk about though something that um always impressed me about you is you never let yourself become limited to this you do so much of this and it's so easy when you do political satire and particularly for political satire mm. to make their whole comedy world satire mm. and everything has to be capitalist and saying something about society and mm. hector people on things. I like that you have never lost the breadth of your creativity that we, we were just talking before this about you've putting mm. away another draft of a musical that you mm. always, you've done short films that like that you're always doing different creative projects. What is it about that? Is that like an escape or is it your real passion mm. or is it a factor of the Australian industry that you have to talk about the news if you want a job? That I mean all I mean all of the above really. I think definitely the feed has been the best thing that's like ever happened to me like to even mm-hmm. work in television. I never thought I would be able to do that. Like I never thought oh I'm going to work in TV. I didn't think that was something that people could do. Like I for some reason it felt like this magical door that would never be opened and that as soon as we started just out of like like pure fun and joy making funny kind of sketch videos for the internet getting a little bit of attention for that and then being offered this kind of this key into this world is a dream and I 
adore it. I think the thing I love the most about the feed is that we work within a show that is also like a news and current affairs show that has real stories and it really makes you mm. have a lot of perspective about how silly the things that you do are. Like when people are nominated for Walkleys and are figuring out, like, you know, uncovering stories, you're just kind of like, we just do this fun little thing and that's great. I don't think it was ever something that I, I thought I, I was the, you know, I had the most insight into. Like I wasn't like the most political savvy kind of person, but it is something that you fall into, I think, if you want a job in the Australian TV industry. That being said, the thing that I I love about sketch and, and writing short form stuff is it really trains you to find the most interesting way to tell the story in the quickest amount of time to really play with character. I'm really interested in like like duo like duologues. Obviously, I work with Jenna, and mm-hmm. the idea of having two people as a way of kind of having this a dialectic between two ideas in the back and forth through character. And I think that forms a really great foundation of like longer narrative stuff. I also think, sorry, this is going to be so long-winded. I also really like power and all the things that I write about, even when I'm writing musicals or, you know, doing short films is about how different people react to the power or status that they have. And political Mm -hmm. satire is about, you know, finding out, you know, because you have to punch up, you have to punch up at the powerful. So you have to know where the power sits. And I think one thing that's been so interesting writing comedy now, especially about like female oriented comedy, is that we're living in a place where where we believe power comes from is kind of shifting. Like when mm-hmm. women are, are moving through this this um, this movement of empowerment, you're you're sitting in this really difficult kind of space where in some moments you feel really empowered and others you don't. And I feel a lot of that is really kind of funny. Um, and especially looking at like how female politicians are treated when there is still this, this cloud of misogyny, but then they also are empowered to have the same jobs as men and they still are messing those jobs up. It's really interesting to figure out where you sit and how power can be, you know, how, and even how people like their little brains melt. I'm so interested in people not even being able to really understand you know, like I, I think the best example is like the Gladys Berejiklian um, scandal. You see so mm-hmm. many people on Twitter losing their minds trying to defend her. And then, you know, then you say, oh, it's just, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole thing. I don't even want to go into it. I don't even want to go into it, James. But it's really interesting how people talk about that. And I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do as well is looking at how people talk about this kind of stuff is very easy. I have yeah. to do lots of other stuff just to stay sane. Like I have to have different projects going on at different times. The feed is so good because it's like really quick turnaround. But I, I don't want to ever be beholden to that quickness because I think there's something so beautiful about the patience of working on something long form and redrafting and thinking about something. And um, I also, yeah, I just, I love yeah narrative and, and story. And I think sketch is an amazing training for that. And political satire, if you believe that everything is political, serves a really nice foundation for looking at how power works in the world. And that is my essay. Thank you for reading. <laughs> no, I thought that was really interesting. And I also like mm. the idea of like not needing to be the prisoner of the moment, which it feels like mm. a lot of like like what you say, and I think Glass is another good example of it, that I think there is a trend, particularly to need to know your take on something. And here is my take and here is my easily surmised mm. view on things. When like even when we're trying to get like I feel like when we're trying to consciously figure out what is my take on this we are actually more complicated beings than that. We don't have yeah. a like snappy one line. We're like, well, I I think the thing I believe most is this, and I've got totally. a little bit of this secondary thought, and I can see it from this side. I don't really, but like we have all these different elements, but that's not quite savvy enough for a really punchy that doesn't bring in the faves. So like you've got to you've got to transform that totally. that mentality. 
Um, here's a question for you. Mm. What is still on your to-do list? Because so much has been done. What is it that you're like, I will be incomplete if I hang up my boots without having done X? Oh, that is such a good question. I think anytime anyone ever asks me, like, what, what is your favorite thing? Like, what would you want to do? I I always go back to, like, narrative television. Like, I love TV. Like, I love mm-hmm. um episodic narrative form where characters change over time and I you know grew up watching television I think there's something so special about the form one of my favorite critics and writers is Emily Nussbaum who wrote the tv criticism for the New Yorker and just reading how she like right you know writes about television and how television is consumed and you know that for me is like one of the main ways that we um consume story and media especially from like young ages and, and up so I would love to work on a narrative TV show. Um, I love that more than anything. And I think that I do, I don't know, I, I feel like that's kind of where I'm moving into at the moment. Um, I've, you know, I'm just, I've got this musical, which is one thing, and I'm doing a lot more like, you know, screenwriting and, and, and writing like screenplays and like, you know, I've, I've got, God, I've got so many like, you know, I, I always go by, I'm like, I want to write a pilot of something and now I want to write a, a screenplay of something. And then all those sit in the background and you're just kind of, teasing them out mm-hmm. and just seeing what what can actually be done um i also wouldn't mind getting into the audio space i'm really into audiobooks at the moment i'm mm-hmm. like i love what what has books. won you over oh uh, i like um um empire of pain oh um, which is good about choice. The, the sackler family yeah, yeah yeah it's really really good it's um i really like non-fiction audiobooks mostly mm-hmm. Um, because uh, yeah, I, I, it hel- helps me switch off my brain a little bit more than if I'm listening to like how someone's writing a sentence. I just want to know the story, give it to me quick, dirty, hot. And I love Empire of Pain because it is about this family, the Sackler family who, um, run this company, Purdue Pharma, who kind of like instigated the opioid crisis. And it's just, they are also just such fraudsters, the way that they put their names in all these art galleries and, you know, philanthropic organizations, but then hide their name from the opioids that um, destroyed uh, the nation and the world. Um, so I'm obsessed with that. I want to ask, I, I like am similarly like you, uh, really, to, like mm. I'm a heavy nonfiction audiobook person, yeah. and particularly like yeah, I was yeah, a terrible, yeah, yeah. I was a terrible history student as a kid, and now I will... Mm delve into them i think it's this is real preparation oh, for dad areas you have to get deep oh, I into love that. pathetic you're gonna be a history dad exactly but what i want to oh. know about this is i wonder mm. if you have a similar thing to me which is like when you are constantly like you've got to be working on something of course you do having a mm. non-fiction mm. history book is a lovely way to both mm. not like switch off and stop caring but still mm. feel like like well i'm adding something to my brain so i'm not wasting this time oh Absolutely. I am so into, yeah, I love my non- nonfiction. I really love at the moment, like I'm going back into the Obama years. Like I, I was listening to The World As It Is, Ben Rhodes' book about his time being a speechwriter and, and foreign affairs kind of like consultant guy for Obama. And now I'm listening to, oh my God, A Promised Land. Like I'm listening to Obama's oh, wow. uh, presidential diaries. I am. And I also, because, I mean, he's talking and I'm just like, I always love saying, okay, now my Obama's going to read me to sleep. Like, Obama's <laughs> read me to sleep. And he does, which is amazing. He's got an amazing voice. Um, but I'm like super fascinated, like going into like recent history. Also weirdly, like after 9-11 started watching all these movies about like the Iraq war and about, um, you know, that kind of 
all, all that time and mm-hmm. just seeing, oh, my God, how racist all the films are, like how it was literally <laughs> like propaganda. Like I was like, this is shocking. Like I was I was shocked. I was shocked at how, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be shocked, but I was like this, the fact that this is so like obviously like racist and Islamophobic and is propaganda for the U.S. military, I that was shocking to me. I, I um, like the period just, just the action film period just, just before 9-11 where they're not quite sure who the enemy is. So it's Gary Oldman yes. playing a Russian. <laughs> yeah. Just falls in that, oh, let's look, it's yeah. somewhere in this region. They they have an yeah, accent yeah. that's a bit weird, but they're primarily white. Truly, truly, because they're like, oh, we're kind of over the Cold War, but like there's a bit of a hang up. But then they're like literally every single film becomes so transparent and very um yeah very interesting time capsule of, of time um which is yeah i i love nonfiction as a way and i love the darker the better the more there is to do with like you know drugs and like disaster and war and stuff i'm like bring it on absolutely like i it's a regular argument in my house i also love to go to sleep to an audiobook and i will pick like like a good example is i was currently going through the knights templar and uh, there is like there is a moment where you're Particularly, uh, know, your yeah. partner wakes up in the middle of the night and says, can you turn down? They're on a chapter, there's a lot of pillaging and it's affecting my dreams. And can you please stop playing that? <laughs> like, maybe this isn't healthy to just But absorb. dude, oh my God, do you have, no, do you have one of those headbands? This has changed my life. It was one of these headbands that I got online mm-hmm. that is like the soft kind of Bluetooth speaker thing designed by doctors do you have one of these? Miranda one has these? one of these, so I should I should be oh, employing well, it myself yeah. because you need, to, yeah. you need to get into it because that's literally me and my, my my girlfriend and I. All we do is we'll get home, she'll put on her audiobook, I'll put on my audiobook, and then we'll just we'll just lie there because I because I think another thing is working like like on screens all the time. I can't look at a screen mm. and I can't look. You know, we both have like bad eyes, so we can't really like look at books. So we just lie there. And I put my legs up on the wall to stretch out my cuffs. Um, and literally, we look crazy. I've just got my legs up on the wall. <laughs> she's lying down. We're listening to our respective audiobooks. And that if that is not love, I don't know what is. I'm so glad you have found the New Yorker cartoon that you were always destined for. I have one more question for mm-hmm. you, which is when this is all done and you have mm-hmm. – and let's say you have you have reached the end you want to retire you want to hang up your your golden satire pen your golden feather uh, i don't know what satirists get mm. um but mm. and you have the opportunity to do <laughs> what you will for the rest what does what does retirement look mm. like for you and i ask this because i don't think people our age ever think about this mm. so what does retirement look like for you no i actually think about this way too often um being like what if i could just do whatever I wanted to do and not, not have to do this daily grind thing. And I think it would honestly be like just reading and writing, but like really slowly mm. and finding like, I'm so fascinated. Like I've just, Oh my God, I've been dying to write for so many years, just like a screenplay based on like the, I'm reading Lenny Riefenstahl's memoir um, about the, the woman who did the propaganda for the, for the Nazis and she's like this filmmaker girl boss. And I think there's such an amazing kind of Itonia-esque <laughs> version of this story. And I'm like a Jewish woman. I want to write the story of this young propagandist for the Nazi party, engaging with Hitler, engaging with Goebbels. As like, she was like literally in her like late 20s, early 30s, making these incredible films. I'm like, that is, I want to write that. But it's like, when do I have time? So retirement looks like sitting with a memoir and writing, you know, screenplays. That's all I really want to do. And writing like really fun indulgent like 
you know, indulgently long time frames to, to make work that I love. Cause I don't think I will ever be able to stop. Like it's one mm-hmm. of those things. I think my brain has been poisoned enough that if I see something or read something, I just go, Oh my God, that and connect that, like, you know, making a narrative and I'd love to read that. Or like, you know, I just, it won't, it won't stop. Can't stop. And even if no one ever watches it or reads it or anything, like I also think one thing I'll do is all my dad's writing that he wrote, you know, when he was at uni and stuff, like all his failed, you know, plays and stuff, like mm-hmm. there's something that I want to do kind of to memorialize his work in a way that is also, you know, kind of, you know, how like in Mouse, like the the dude like was talking about his dad's stories and like mm-hmm. he made his whole new form. Like I think there's so many stories that I want to tell from my dad's youth and childhood because he was in like the army and then he was the editor of hustler magazine and then he was an academic and oh my god you know about this no i did not know you about know, this you know about this he the reason that we were even able to emigrate to australia is that he was the editor of hustler magazine and yeah my whole time growing up in my feminist household my dad was uh, literally would edit porn <laughs> Um, but, you know, only for the articles, only, only for, the for the articles. They're very only good articles. Article. Look, pe- people don't understand where that trope comes from, but it used to be that Hustler and Playboy had the best yeah. writing in America. Yeah, well, Hustler maybe less so because they, they call Hustler the poor man's Playboy. So I think it's like, um, you know, Playboy for for a more generic kind of bloke. Is, is, this, is, yeah, is this sacrilege yeah. for you to say in your household? Are you exposing, are you saying a Capulet saying the Montague's actually a pretty cool yeah. right now? <laughs> No, I think it's a, it's a very kind of self-worth, self-deprecating house where we just know that um, these things have happened and they're deeply, deeply, deeply funny. But, yeah, I just feel like there's there are too many stories because, I don't know, I have this thing where I... I don't know. I don't know how... I don't know how you feel about this because obviously you're a new dad and I, I've got a new dad coming up. I've put my foot in it so many times, especially with some of my colleagues who've been, like, pregnant, where I go on my, like, anti-natalist rant about how I don't think I'm ever going to have children. Mm-hmm. Um which I think for me is half because my ovaries are cystic and also I'm in a queer relationship and like who knows if we'll ever be able to afford IVF or like maybe we'll foster. I think fostering is like something on our, on our mind. But I always just think like if my like family lineage ends with me, the, the burden of all their stories needing a place to go, um, mm. even like what is, what is that amazing um, that amazing movie about it's like Day of the Dead, it's like a, a Coco. You know, oh like yes, Disney, yeah, 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 yeah. That I, that really touched me so much. The idea that like you stop existing when someone says your like name at the last like the last time that someone says your name. I think I feel that so strongly for like my you know ancient Jewish ancestors who like fled Spain during the Inquisition, ended up in mm. Rhodes Island. I mean Rhodes in in Greece, and you know then migrated their way through South Africa and then Australia and stuff. Being like, I want to tell their stories um so yeah i think there's a real real drive to yeah and a real rush to tell those stories i think as well before anything happens i feel that a lot Mm -hmm. that all i want to do is make sure i get every last thing i want to write out of my brain before i'm done and like you say like i don't think there ever actually is an end to that it's the it's the you're pulling out Mm -hmm. the handkerchiefs and there's more and more and more coming out yeah but like that's like even at this mm. point I'm like okay well all I need to do is finish these three things I want to get done and then I can do that fourth thing and finally look at that fifth thing that I would love to yes. start working on which exactly is- exactly and I think the only thing yeah. scarier than never getting to it is the well running dry and then you're like I could farm I guess would I be a good farmer I can't keep plants yeah. alive but I'll try 
oh, I think the well will never dry up because there's just too much. There's too, I always feel like there's too many things. I don't need any more things in my mind. I just want to get through these things done. Like, a, you know, the well of my dad's stories and my family, like Lenny Riffin style, like all these books, everything mm. that comes up. I don't want any more things. I don't want any more inspiration. I just want time. I, I want to not have to worry about money. And then when that all ends, the last thing that I've been doing in lockdown is I've been doing an online TAFE course to study marriage celebrancy. So I would love to um, officiate um, weddings. That I is that's a really gorgeous. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it lovely? Because I just realized that I love people and I love people celebrating their relationships and, you know, partnerships. I think it's beautiful. I can also say we were married by a dear friend and it is a just very oh, lovely nice? thing. It, it feels like so yeah. simple, but like when that part of the ceremony like feels like part of like belongs to you like it's so easy for that to feel yeah. disconnected but when it belongs to you, it's really yeah. lovely so that yeah that... i get really yeah i get emotional thinking about how much i care about love as a concept and as something that we do that is a lovely note to end it on vic surf Yay. thank you so much for joining me oh my god a pleasure That was Vic Zerps, who you can see on the feed, as well as doing a million other things as we discussed. Now, if you're worried that so far this show is all deep discussions, life, art, apes, digital apes, digital apes all the way down, well, don't worry. We'll also have some less heady topics. Although I suppose we are about to talk about love again. We're about to talk about very specific kind of love. A kind of love that took the internet by storm a short while ago. It was a particular GQ profile of Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox. The it couple, I suppose, right now. And I want to talk to Jen Fricker about this. And we had this very interesting conversation about both this article, which we will get you up to speed on if you haven't read it. And it's a fascinating thing. But also, we want to talk about the concept, the weird zoo-like experience of this modern celebrity profile. What's in it for them? What's in it for us? What's going on here? Why? Why? And then specifically relating to this article, why? Like 12 different parts of it, why? So here's Jen Fricker and I discussing exactly that. And seriously, why? Let's bring in Jen Fricker to talk about this article. Jen, could you take us through what is going on in this piece? Where do I begin? <laughs> There's so much going on in this piece. At surface level, it's just a profile on two hot people who are dating. <laughs> That's the simplest 
and it's uh but in terms of the implications of this it's i guess about true souls redeeming <laughs> each other uh through a connection that i think is once in a generation from the sounds of it i don't know man i really don't know how i feel about it but basically machine gun kelly who i don't think i've ever said his name out loud before <laughs> but machine gun kelly who is a former rapper turned punk rocker and megan fox who is obviously one of the hottest people who's ever lived uh are dating and uh they love each other that's it at its simplest yeah, that seems to be so. I'm I'm sort of like I know uh, Machine Gun Kelly from the time that Eminem built up and then ruined his career in the place of one song. Oh my god! Uh, so like that's that's my whole background of him. And then um, this piece is kind of the next time he really emerges on my radar at all. Mm. Uh, you're right in though. It's it's a love story, love story, but it's one with a. Um, the quality, I would say, of an MSN Messenger like subtitle tag, like the everything has a real sixteen-year-old overridden drama to it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I can't tell if it's like something that the writer is perceiving into it, or if it's real, or I don't know. I, like I understand. Oh man, I don't even know. I understand falling deeply deeply in love with someone mm-hmm. and look i've definitely been in relationships where i'm like we should get matching tattoos <laughs> <laughs> this has always usually been towards the end of the relationship <laughs> when you're just holding on to fucking anything just looking for a life raft out of the in like inevitable waterfall that is the end of your relationship <laughs> So this is where this piece picks up. We meet them. We meet the couple getting match- giving each other matching tattoos on the shoot mm. on a stencil. Uh, we also hear uh, the other big takeaway that really uh, caught fire about this piece was um, their first meeting, which was apparently years before they actually got together, but it, at a party Megan Fox says to Machine Gun Kelly, who it is reported is faceless, does not have a face, not really any explanation of this, but he doesn't have a face. And she says to him, you smell like weed. And he says, I I am am weed. weed, And then disappears in a smoke bomb. So these, these are the terms we are starting with here. Yeah. I, how do you feel about the idea of dating someone who has said that to you? (laughs) I like I can't imagine I would say like it makes a lot of sense that you do not see this person again for years before <laughs> you start dating them. Like yeah. you, you need to put some space in like, oh remember that really weird thing that happened here? At that party? Yeah. I'm trying to think like if what is the weirdest thing someone said to me at a party and then if I gave them two years after that, would I date them? <laughs> and I just I can't at this point think of anything stranger than someone saying I am weed. But it's also like the equivalent of your mum is. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And it's also got a real um, nerd at a party vibe, which is strange because these are both incredibly attractive, incredibly successful people. Mm. And the party is a GQ party as well. It's not like it's just someone's housewarming or whatever. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, look, we've all said regrettable things, but I mean, is it really that hard for hot people to find other hot people that you have to like engage? I don't know. But this is what, like, the the article is at great pains to make the point of, like, this is not a purely physical relationship between them. And a lot of the time as I was going through, I'm like, you know, it's fine if it is. It's totally fine that, like, if what, like, they have a lot of, like, it, it feels like, uh, you know, Elon Musk and Grimes areas, like, a lot of soul-bound, like, deeply spiritual, our, oh. our hearts talk to each other. At one point, one of my favorite moments of this is um, uh, Machine Gun Kelly shouting at a restaurant because they're playing music too loud for Megan Fox's talking uh, discussion about how both their souls meld to be heard properly. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's a bit in it, and I wrote it down, and I underlined it, and it's I think that bit you're talking about where she speaks about how they met at the time that, uh, she believes their spirit guides knew would be the right time. She met, She says the word spirit guides, and I just always think, like, if white people are talking about spirit guides, like, there's something wrong, and that's either mental health problems or drugs or both. But it's just, like, this idea that your love is written in the stars, or it's of the ages, it's something that the universe has... Um, has created specifically for you i just feel like it's the whitest shit ever that's colonizer shit right like this is uh, this i found this this is for me uh, this was meant for me i don't know does that make sense no i think it makes sense because as a white person you should know that the spirit world is not on your side if the, yeah. if the spirit world gets a say in the conversation you are not coming out well in it yeah i, I will say though the second you started doubting that a rolling hit of thunder happened outside mm -hmm. so maybe i should believe in it a little yeah, bit yeah yeah oh yeah <laughs> it's a round table with thunder yeah, it's very atmospheric oh in this oh my god um, um but i i think that's right though i think that speaks to something that's that's very strange about this and it almost gets to the point we we're talking about before that what this is at its core is two very attractive people very into each other like the, and which is fine for it to be but as soon as any relationship gets this it's in the stars it's fated thing i don't for me personally i've never liked that i've never thought i always thought like there is something more romantic even about the fact that like our relationship was not written in the stars but i found you and you found me and we work at this every day to make it more perfect for us both yeah like i think that's nicer than yeah god just stuck two playthings together and now you're stuck with it yeah yeah i don't know it also just reads like red flags to me because all this stuff like working on my shadow self just like really sticks out to me as like over therapized language and by over-therapize, I don't mean, like, an actual uh, mental health professional getting in there, but, like, yeah, like, people who probably need mental health treatment not getting it and instead, like, turning to, like, esoteric religion. Yeah, it I feels don't know. like uh, Instagram philosophy. Exactly. Like, like a lot of self-actualization. And I'm, like, again, like, whatever floats your boat, but also, like, it seems very fatalist and dangerous. And not in a sexy way, but in, like, a cult leader type of way. I don't know. Absolutely. The whole thing, it's like they're dehumanizing themselves as they go, right? To, yes. And the constant yeah. comparisons between 
like them and their favorite movies, which are like true romance and these ones about like couples that are basically like psychopaths and murderers. I'm just like, ah, like I remember doing that when I was 15. Yeah. Like, and it was because I had really fucked up ideas about what love is like, but you both in your thirties, that's wild. At a point in the story, they recount taking the uh, journalists to different places as if it was almost famous. And I did have a moment of like, do you remember how that film ends? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did you guys um, watch the end or did you start making out before the end? Like, <laughs> which again is fine. Like, I just, I don't know. I understand in some le- on some level, like you read these profiles, right? And it's about celebrities performing celebrity. Like, you're never reading mm-hmm. these profiles to find out, like, oh, actually, these people are pretty normal. Like, it's always I'm reading this profile because I want to know what, like, wacky, goofy shit these people are doing that is completely out of my, like, perception of reality, you know? So I understand that. But then also it just makes me feel very profoundly sad to see people dehumanizing themselves like that. This style of article has changed it's gone from being a profile of how great your life is and how perfect and unattainable every day of your life is to how messed up you are and how disconnected you are in a kind of non-charming way uh we talked about like how in the last pandemic in the last pandemic in the early in the pandemic there was uh the robert patterson piece where he oh yeah in the microwave starting a fire or while it was over zoom he i think about this profile every week at least once a week Absolutely. Sorry, you keep going. No, no, absolutely. But that's it. It really captured like that. He tries to invent his own pasta in it, like a takeaway version of pasta, which feels like a depression plotline from Parks and Rec. Like it's like, but what has happened? What has happened here? What is what is this change? And why? Well, I understand why we like this because it's mm. fascinating. It's good gossip. Why are they letting us be part of this? Mm, I like to think it's performance art. (laughs) I'm sure that's giving, like, too much, like, credit to these people. But, like, for instance, with that Robert Patterson one, I really do think about it a lot because I I do think maybe it is performance art for him. Like, he seems, from what I've heard about him, he seems like a nice, normal person, as Mm. much as one can be given the life that he's had. So I do kind of feel like it's odd. But then I'm, I don't know. It's also like these profiles are so uh, subject to, I mean, obviously like most writing, like who is who is writing it, you know what I mean? Mm. Another GQ profile that I think about a lot is the Tom Hiddleston one. I don't know if you ever read it. This is from a few years ago where basically the main takeaway from it is the interviewer is clearly like in love with Tom Hiddleston and thinks that they're going to hook up. (laughs) (laughs) And so I do also wonder that like how much of what we're like getting across is the like journalists inserting themselves or like setting an agenda that isn't real. I don't know. It's also like quite a short profile of the couple. I know to do a profile as a couple as well. I'm like, okay, so you both, I don't know. Yeah, I really don't know why people do this. I would love to think that Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly, Colson, whatever his name is, got went home, opened up the computer, read it, and just had a laugh and a glass of wine or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But then, I don't know. 
being publicly horny as your brand as well. Like, what is that? What is, what is the long game from that? I don't know. Yeah, it does feel like like it's because there's a certain kind of iconic relationship area for this, and it feels like they're trying to hit that. Like, and and they might look, they might. And, but it also feels like a lot of the reaction to this, uh, the comedian Chris Fleming put this quite a, uh, well, which is like, I don't know if anyone actually has an emotional response to this relationship at all. And that's also something that comes through in this article. Like, I don't think anyone's takeaway was like, that's pretty weird, but they're so in love or whatever. Like, I'm sure they are. But it is kind of emotionless. Is that weird to say? Is it weird yes, to say about yes, a madly yes. in love? <laughs> There's no like center to it or there's nothing that watching these two teaches us, which I assume is like why these things are written in some ways, like for us to gain an insight into what it's like to be around a couple like that, what it's like to feel the love like that, what it's like to be around famous people, like, you know what I mean? But it's just, it's just kind of like this happened, then this happened, then they said this and that's the end. Absolutely. And like a series of set pieces as well, like overly designed, it feels like. And I guess yeah. that is part, like part of these profiles is they are designed. You don't just happen to have picked that day to tattoo each other with mm. your, the um, dark fairy tale phrase that you came up with listening to some 41 or whatever. Like the, Totally. Like, There's um, teams. And I kept thinking like, what are they promoting at the moment? Like the album came out from Machine Gun Kelly last year. I don't think Megan Fox has a new film out that she's doing promo for. So I'm like, so why now? Why this? I don't know. It's weirdly like on that. It just feels like very not intimate. You know, like like people who talk about how much sex they're having, it's almost like the least sexy thing ever. Exactly. So- Exactly. It, it, it's a very um, non-intimate intimacy. Uh, like, mm. this is this is a weird analogy to pull out, but I was listening to Paris's, Paris Hilton's album yesterday. and um, Yeah, exactly. But, like, it's it's also hits this weird... Like, this is because of the irritin, but it's an album entirely about sex that is completely sexless. And this is like... like the. I always think of this this great um, piece about the Marvel films where, like, these are films entirely made of... I love how the light like, hit right on Marvel films there. Marvel the really gave, <laughs> really Disney the Corporation owns Thunder. <laughs> it's a brand mark. It's a trademark uh, <laughs> merchandise from the Thor character. But they're, like, they're, they're films of all the most attractive and uh, built-up people in the like in the world and they, they are entirely sex free they are yep. like and, and it's not like you watch an, a 90s film or even early 2000s like the fuck scene was part of it man like yeah it was a real big yeah. part awesome like definitely like the camera fucking someone you know what i mean exactly um, or the big pash at the end even to just go for that like pg cliche part of it like mm. it's always like it was the old i remember like like the classic dad reaction to these things was like stop kissing and run out of the tunnel that's collapsing kiss later but that doesn't happen yeah it's weird it's like sex as an act or a way of connecting with someone isn't brandable 
isn't a commodity mm. because it's so intimate, it's so personal, right? Like how do you sell that? So then you have people who are like, well, sex is my brand. You know, there's this comparison between Machine Gun Kelly, Megan Fox, and Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson, mm-hmm. right? But the difference is like Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee literally leaked a sex tape, yeah. right? Like that's it's it's on record them publicly fucking. Well, not publicly fucking, <laughs> but you know, like their fucking was made public. Yeah. Which is a level of intimacy that is almost uncomfortable. And obviously there are ethical like uh, considerations around whether Pamela Anderson was actually like she didn't, I don't believe, consent to that publishing or whatever, yeah. right? But this is like, I don't know, just the uncanny valley of sex where it's like mm. it's what they're speaking the language of sex and intimacy, but it's so chilling (laughs) that it doesn't resemble any kind of humanity that i encounter i think that's why like i get such msn messenger vibes from it because it doesn't feel like people talking about sex it feels like people who have never had sex talking about the sex that they've definitely been having this whole time with someone from another school yes totally totally like this is my girlfriend and she's definitely real yeah definitely have done it all the way it's like that's and I'm not saying that they don't do it. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they like, fuck. I'm sure they fuck. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? <laughs> but it's just like, is that even intimacy now then? Yeah. Fucking is separate from intimacy. But then they're trying to conflate the two. I don't know. I've been reading Esther Perel's Mating in Captivity, which is all about the difference between desire and intimacy uh, and how like desire is often about the otherness of the person you're with whereas intimacy is about trying to bring yourself as close as possible with another person and so i feel like they're objectifying themselves they're creating desire for themselves and for each other as a couple as a brand but it's also like extremely jarring and kind of robotic yeah and it's also like it's the the article and this might be just a factor of gq but it's not horny no. like and and it's kind of dries up like there's not like there's there's a, and i don't mean like a like uh um uh, this reporter this feels kind of great i mean like there's no sensuality to it and i think that's it like we found like the most heavily sexual sex-free piece possible yes yeah it's just sexless it's sexless, it's sexless. but it's like so much talk of sex that you're like i don't think you know what you're talking about <laughs> are you confusing the word sex for like like sudoku like that's what i feel like um before to close off i do have to ask you one thing which is yep. if have you, i rooted yeah have you ever Thank rooted you for asking this is what not. we ask every <laughs> guest on this show <laughs> have you done a root before i absolutely have not i am waiting for christ <laughs> For Christ, okay. Um, um, I want to ask, like, if you had the opportunity, I think about this a lot, if you had the opportunity to be in the GQ profile, what over-the-top activity are they happening happening to catch you doing? Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. We happened to stumble across Jen Fricker on a day when... Oof, that's a good one. I mean, honestly, I think I would go high stakes and go, they've come across me. They've joined me at uh, a laser hair removal session. I'm getting <laughs> my butthole hairs lasered off. 
And so they deal with like the smell of that. The vision. And I don't mean smells and I've got a smelly butthole. Grower. I mean, like, the cell of burnt hair, the vision of me on all fours having to, like, pull my cheeks apart for some, like, lovelessly <laughs> untender. That's intimacy. You know what I mean? If I, to, like, if I wanted to give an intimate portrait into what my day is like, I would be like, look at my butthole as it is lasered. Much like how a cat flares its asshole in the face of other cats as a way to uh it's like the the scent glands are like a book that they provide for other cats to read that's why cats always sniff at each other's butts i just feel like that would be a thing and then we'd go and from there anything that happens afterwards <laughs> is fine you know what i mean it's like and then after that we just went for a coffee across the road like <laughs> but they would be like but she started at 11. <laughs> That is and you know, and every time, every time, like I'm sitting down at the coffee, I've got to like kind of shuffle a bit because it's like a bit tender. <laughs> a bit tender to sit on. Well, I cannot wait for that profile to come out, Jen. Thank Please. you so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. What a dark fairy tale we have. <laughs> Now, let's be very clear off the top. This is an indulgent program. Every element of what I'm doing here is insanely indulgent. Look at how long I'm pausing between thoughts here. I'm enjoying the hell out of this. And you would be a fool to think that I would have a program this indulgent and not also indulge in my favourite topic of all, the Penrith Panthers. Sorry, I should say the Premiership winning Penrith Panthers. Uh, For those of you who do not follow NRL, which I can't imagine has a huge Overlap in the podcast fan Venn diagram. Uh, Penrith, my hometown team, won our first premiership since 2003. During lockdown, where they were playing the grand final in Queensland, and so the vast majority of fans, obviously, weren't allowed to go or even meet up with each other. And in the week following that victory... I recorded this interview with Cassie Derrick, who is another diehard Panthers fan who I have known for well over a decade now and who has suffered with me throughout the years of Penrith fandom. And we thought we'd just take 10, 15 minutes just to relish this victory. Hopefully there's something in there for those of you who do not care about this one way or the other. But if there isn't, you have to understand this is my four plus hour 
radio program. And if you don't want to talk about the Penrith Panthers, you are welcome to get your own four-plus-hour radio program and not discuss them on that. And I will not be listening. Is that too aggressive a start to this interview? I don't care because we are champions now and that's what we get to do. We're no longer the cutesy little team. Now we're world beaters. World beaters. New South Wales and Queensland beaters and like one Victorian team, you know. But world beaters. Come on, we're champions now. So here is Cassie to talk about the mighty Penrith Panthers. What a topic. Now, uh, to talk about the Penrith Panthers' incredible premiership win, I thought it was best to bring in someone who was on the hill with me back in the days when it wasn't as good. Uh, <laughs> someone who was there for the bad times as well as the good. No bandwagons here. I want I want someone who, who suffered through it all. Uh, Cassie, thank you for joining me. I just want Hello. to start by asking... Um, how how do you feel now looking back on that time like does is we went through some very bad days as Panthers <laughs> fans and I remember you being like one of the few people I know as passionate as me about this how does it feel to ascend the mountaintop <laughs> this has been this has been the best week ever like <laughs> what <laughs> one thing I'll say is I think being a Panthers fan you know how to lose. Like mm. I think I think I've learned a very important lesson of my life about how to lose. Learning how to win feels good. <laughs> so it feels so good. It's been it's been the best. It's been a the 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 week since well not even it's not even been a week, but the the since we uh, ascended the mountaintop has just been like all sunshine all week. <laughs> So this has been a um, an interesting transition for the team because there have been times before where we were, like we had runs where we weren't embarrassing, but this is the first real run of the team, at least I remember, particularly in my adulthood, of going into games expecting something nice to happen. It really wasn't yeah. how you approached things like that. Like I thought that was very no. interesting what you were saying, learning how to win. I think yes. that's. I think that's. How did how did you feel going into the grand final? I was, you know, I've. I, I think. I think I expected to win, which is a weird feeling. Mm. But I was very nervous. I was. I was extremely nervous. My, I um, I live in South Territory, and it was the whole. It was just terrifying. The whole day was terrifying. Um, my husband started making me margaritas at five o'clock. <laughs> that was the, that was the only way we were going to get through. But I feel like in the week leading up to it, like you know, we we um, we beat Storm the week before, which you know, people thought we'd meet them in the grand final. And so once we beat Storm, it was like, oh my god, we can win this. We can. We're gonna. Oh my, are we? Oh my god, we could win this. So. There was there was a little bit more confidence than you'd be used to, I think. Absolutely, and so 
to get there, like if anyone isn't familiar with uh, the Panthers, we had a a difficult road last year. We we seem to be on the kind of dream run that, particularly for teams that are more used to the bottom of the table, the way you tend to win a finals is you have one year where everything goes perfectly, everyone stays healthy, you rack up the wins, and you you manage to have a fairy tale season. We had that fairy tale season last year. <laughs> and it was snatched from us at the last second. I remember I I went with my in-laws and my wife to the grand final and they are neutrals and they are from the Northern Territory and they were just enjoying the spectacle. I was feeling like a bad <laughs> son-in-law because I was fairly unable to talk from about 10 minutes in where it was clear the dream was not going to happen. How, how did you feel after that moment like did you feel we were going to get back here oh i feel like i've blocked out last year i think it's it's like i i i all i remember is like nausea but i don't remember anything else but i think yeah i thought we'd get back here we had to imagine if we didn't well Honestly, imagine if we didn't. It felt like, to me, I was really worried about coming second this year because I felt like this is a real, the window is closing. For, like, insiders, you've got Matt Burden is leaving, who was a spark a lot of the time. We had up Guy Jr.'s, like, amazing pickup through the season and run. It felt like a lot of things had gone perfectly for this year, which might not be there next year. So big time. How do you, are you, uh, uh, when you were watching this game, now this was very tight all the way through. It wasn't one of those grand finals where you know with 20 minutes to go and you can start celebrating your team's victory. (laughs) When did, so another thing, as Panthers fans, we know how to lose. We know when these things get snatched from us. (laughs) At what point did you become, like, what point did you feel like we had won the premiership? (laughs) Um... I did. I definitely did the ten-second countdown at the end to the eighty minutes. You know, to, to the to the final whistle. Um, but I don't think I even felt confident in that ten seconds. I, I, I get. I, I, I get yeah. exactly what you mean. I felt the same. I thought like there'll be some technicality. They would pull yeah. up an old yeah. rule that means South can get yeah. one more play. Yeah, there'll be that someone will throw some kind of dodgy pass, and then someone will run the whole length of the field, and <laughs> you know, it'll just it'll just be devastating. There was. Yeah, I, 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 I counted down. I also spent the whole game. Obviously, we're in lockdown. You can't go to the game, which is weird. I spent the whole game, I think, maybe 10 centimetres from the TV because <laughs> it was just unbearable. So I, I was shouting that you 10, 9, 8, but the whole time being like, just hurry up, just hurry up because <laughs> I, I'm not confident we're going to win. Terrifying. And then... When you got to bask, how how do you celebrate when this finally <laughs> happens? The first time since two thousand and three. How do you celebrate? I, uh, as I mentioned, my my husband started making margaritas at five, so I was you know um, feeling feeling celebratory. I rang every single one of my family members on Facetime uh, and just played the Panthers the team song to them. <laughs> over FaceTime and just like sung with them and then, you know, hung up on my dad, called my brother, did the same thing, called my sister who doesn't even care about football, did the same thing to her. Um, and then I 
watched the last time we won the premiership, which was 2003. Uh, then I, my husband pulled out one of the like fancy cigars that we bought on our honeymoon in Cuba. That. <laughs> you then genuinely pulled out a Cuban cigar. <laughs> seriously, a, co- a big fat Cohiba, <laughs> which is supposed to be saved for like the birth of our children or something like <laughs> that. Um, then I rewatched the, the game that had we had just won with all the shouting, my poor neighbours. And then I watched our first ever grand final win, 1991, and that brought me to 4 a.m. <laughs> when I sort of finally took myself to bed and spent the whole next day just not doing much but being gloriously happy. <laughs> so, so I want to ask now, you are already in a better position than most to assess this. Where do you rank them now? Because we are now a team that can rank our premierships, <laughs> which is never something I – certainly when you and I were growing up, when we were first attending Panthers games – our rank was one. 91 yes. was the best and only. <laughs> now we have a list to choose from. <laughs> um, that's actually so, it's so hard to say. It's so hard to rank them. I mean, they're, they're all amazing for different reasons. This year, a ridiculous number of our members were playing with like broken limbs mm. and were just amazing that is just I'm still my my mind is just blown whereas in 1991 we were like losing the whole way and we snatched it back at the end so you know and that's our first ever one 2003 I was there at the game and it was raining and you know so I don't even know if I can rank them maybe like maybe like skill wise and whatever maybe this game was like more exceptional but like feelings wise impossible I feel they're all perfect. Um, yeah. This this one, though, now, not speaking ahead of turn and not to jinx our, our team. See, this is this is how a Panther fan talks. We can win the premiership and I'm still like, now cross our fingers that I don't say anything wrong here. But this feels like still a young team on the come up. We have our, like, our halves pairing of Cleary and Luai having finally ascended the mountain feels like they could do that again. It's... Do you feel like like what excites me about this premiership is it doesn't feel like the the one time we could win this? No, that's such a good point. This could be the start. We could be that insufferable team that just wins <laughs> heaps of years in a row and everyone hates and everyone bets against. But as you know, as long term followers, we could be those insufferable people. <laughs> I've been that would I've be been amazing. pitching I've been pitching to Miranda that uh we are we are only a couple months away from our first child being born and just 18 wins in a row and they may never know the Panthers as anything but a championship <laughs> team throughout their childhood. Yeah. It's hard to Amazing. pull off an 18, Pete, but it's worth believing for now. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it. I think it's possible. Absolutely. And I just want to ask about your family. You mentioned like when you, when you won this, you called all of your family. Now, I certainly talk with my dad but he's a Souths fan and I was being antagonistic your uh your family you had much more of an inherited Panthers fandom right that's right well my um my dad was a manly fan but which you know we're trying to forgive him still but moving out to Penrith he wanted us to go for the local team and Mm. um we did obviously (laughs) and uh 
they they won the premiership. I was born in 1991 when they won the premiership. So there, there was, you know, my brother was seven and we were all just really obsessed with it. So, and now my nieces and nephews are all really obsessed with it and have all the jerseys and everything. So it's, it's a, uh, and, and my, my, uh, my mum and sister don't really care, but they know, they, they watch every game because they want to know how we're going to feel and react. <laughs> so it's, it's a family activity. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I really like about this, that it feels like, particularly with this team, like it still has community, like community is still at the heart of it. And it feels like I, I can understand when you're outside of any sporting world, it often feels like you're just wearing a shirt and shouting at people in other shirts. I understand that. Mm. But this does, in a way that NRL often doesn't even, feels like a family event. It feels like, like I'm sure, as as with you, someone who's currently locked out of Penrith, watching video of people absolutely clogging up Mulgoa Road, even in a lockdown, I'm like, mm, no, you've earned it. We'll cop this. this is- yeah, watching, <laughs> watching the parties going on in Mount Druitt, it's just, I mean, yes, it's dangerous, but... It's beautiful. It's beautiful to see. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful to see. Yeah, and and I think as well, you know, with our club, there's lots of reasons it feels like community. There's a lot of it's it's the sort of heartland of the sport in in Western Sydney, and and there's a lot of junior clubs, but there's also the club itself is community owned. It's not owned by a celebrity or a packer or someone as well. So I think that helps with it all having to come back to the community and, and and that can be really hard to see in in a sport like NRL. Absolutely. And I um I absolutely loved watching the the presentation of the medals and you would hear everyone coming from the area as well, which is very rare yeah. in sports. Like particularly yes. when you follow American sports and things. It's a lot of like, oh you've you've won with Los Angeles, but you're from Detroit or whatever it is. Your LeBron James is from Cleveland and he wins with the Lakers. Like it, it felt felt like it. We were hearing. I was hearing towns and telling my wife how we used to match up against them in soccer. Like, oh, he's yes. he's from St Clair. They're our they're our big enemy. And you know, yes. it really felt like yeah. an inter community team. Absolutely, yeah. That was yeah. No, that oh, oh, he trained with brothers. That's Dommies. That's the school around the corner that everyone avoided. <laughs> like, absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. It's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me to chat about this, and I think we should have you back on after we win the next grand final, of course, to bask absolutely. in that one as well. I'll lock me in for the next eighteen years. <laughs> we're, we're, we're ready. We're done. <laughs> Happy to talk about. Happy to talk about winning for once. Absolutely. <laughs> it is what a joy to be able to bask in a grand final victory. And thank you. I, I, I can understand no one listening to this is enjoying it as much as me. But again, <laughs> I have been locked away from every other Panthers fan for so long that this meant the world to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and next year we'll be there in person. Absolutely. <laughs> we say like a toast over a dinner. Next year yeah. at Stadium Australia. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. <laughs> That was Cassie Derrick, and I would like to thank Cassie and all of you for indulging me for that whole time. Next, I wanted to talk to 
an up-and-coming comic whose work I really enjoy because it's like no one else's. It's like no one else's I've really seen. Uh, her name is Lucinda Price. You might know her as Frooms or the Frooms World CEO. And what makes Lucinda amazing is not just that her content is, and I say this with all love and affection as you're about to hear, properly off the wall. She also talks about things other comics don't talk about. And I don't mean this in a, uh, you're painting yourself up as the Joker for your comedy festival posters. Oh my God, I'm so edgy. I've just invented racism kind of comedy. I mean, financial comedy, so to speak, actually making the business side of your comedy front and center. She's very interesting in the arts world. People don't do that in general in the arts world. It's considered uncouth. And Lucinda incorporates all of this and it makes her work more interesting than anyone else's. And so I want to talk to her about that world. So part of what I want to talk about today was the business world and how like influencers and modern comedians are talking about business and aren't afraid of this thing in the way that we used to be. It used to be like if someone did an endorsement or even appeared in an ad, it was a sign things were going bad. Now it is somewhat of a um, empowerment movement. And the person I want to talk to isn't just a... Um, like let's say influencer, comedian, content maker, but also a CEO. So listen to Price, could you take me through this a bit? <laughs> yes, I am a CEO, James. I'm a boss. Um, mm -hmm. Originally, before I became a boss, I was employed by a company called Pedestrian, which is part of Nine Group. And I was a video producer, a presenter and a writer. So I was doing pretty much what I do now, but for a company. Um, and then in COVID, I got made redundant. So I was forced out on, on into the world alone. And I thought to myself, I have to now fend for myself. I need to make my own business. So I created Frooms World, which is the hat that I'm wearing here today. Mm -hmm. And it is just a it's just a business, kind of like a fake business all around me making content. So when I got made redundant, my first kind of concern was, oh, no, I don't have support behind me. Now I'm just my mm. own self. And I kind of didn't feel very empowered by that. So I thought if I create this company, then I will feel as though I have something to do. And it kind of, it, I think it legitima legitimizes what I do because I think when you create work that's pretty much prim primarily just online, people can yep. think it's not very, it's not worth as much as, other stuff um so i thought create a business and just pretend to be the ceo but this is this is the thing i love about this is you're not playing pretend you have built a very successful business of this and but i think like the pure process part of this intimidates so many people like the idea that even like i've known like when you first have to get your abn to do paid gigs and things like that it's a frightening process like is this was um the the business side the adult side of this world let's call it like was that 
something that you had any experience with before or was this did you just dive headfirst into this brave new world <laughs> um well I guess I have kind of an interesting background I my first ever job was in a car yard selling tint sorry take me through <laughs> this a little bit so <laughs> straight out of uni oh well I, I finished school and I went to uni and I went for about a week and I thought oh god I can't do this I'm not ready so I got a job at a car yard. My dad is a car salesman, used car salesman. He works for himself, which I think is part of why I'm doing things alone. Mm. Um, and he introduced me to somebody that got me a job working at Hyundai in the city, selling tint. So there's this job and it's primarily done by women and they call them in the derogatory term for them is Ming Moles. <laughs> M-I-N-G. <laughs> Ming Moles because... It's a job <laughs> where people like the men sell the car and then once you've bought the car, you before you go to finance, they bring you into the office of the Ming Mall and the Ming Mall will try and sell you, upsell you on tint and insurance. <laughs> so these people would buy this brand new Hyundai from this old car dealer man and then they come into my office and I'm just this 18-year-old girl wearing like Q or cook eye trying to sell them 100% marked up tint <laughs> and like shoddy insurance deals. Um, so I guess that gave me an understanding of cutting a deal and mm. um, fucking people over for lots of money. Um, <laughs> Were you a good Ming Mole? Were you a successful <laughs> Ming Mole? I was so shit. So the first <laughs> time I ever got paid... <laughs> I looked at the pay and I was like, oh, fuck, it's $3,000. And I was like, this doesn't really make sense because I have sold probably one package after a month or two. Immediately, I go direct to Chadston and bought a $3,000 Prada bag. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, next day, I go into work and the car dealership boss brings me into his office. He's like, Lucinda, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but yesterday we overpaid you. $2,900. $2,900. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'd made like 100 bucks. <laughs> I come into the office like with my Prada bag on my fucking arm. <laughs> um, but I didn't pay it back because I couldn't, I couldn't return the bag. So, I mean. <laughs> They're welcome to borrow the bag whenever <laughs> they die. <laughs> we can put it up on a plinth. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that, that gave me some business acumen in terms of dealing with uncomfortable conversations and having to cold call Mm -hmm. people. So I think that gave me a lot of confidence in being routinely rejected and pushing a product, which is shit. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I guess, yeah, my dad has his own small business, which is not unlike Froome's World in that it's one man and he has a similar personality to me. He's quite confident and like a big bullshit artist. So Wait, a used car salesman that's a big bullshit artist, really? (laughs) I know, crazy, right? (laughs) Um, So his kind of like small business mentality definitely probably rubbed off on me and and made me a little bit less scared of going out as a sole trader, definitely. Absolutely. And so... What I also love is that you you take this like the like hustle mentality, which we hear about a lot, but like you take this to the nth degree. You do have your hat. Like I think we um one of the first things of our interactions was me talking to you about how very funny I found your shade worn billboard. <laughs> which was just like because like for anyone who doesn't know about this, this is the kind of bit that like you would see like that 
someone might do. I'm into you, Shane Ward, or whatever, like messaging him online. You put a billboard up. You took <laughs> that to the physical real world in a start. And this was before billboards were a go-to comedy stunt. <laughs> this was a big deal. Like, can you take me through that, actually? Can you tell that story a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. The Shane Warne storyline. So the way that I think of what I do is I have like recurring storylines. So one of the recurring storylines is my love of Shane Warne. Mm -hmm. It started in 2016. I was doing red carpet interviews. I went to interview Shane Warne, but we had to wait a bit. Anyway, I look over at him and he was looking me up and down and licking his lips. I, 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 in the, at the moment I was like, I was like, I don't know if I saw that correctly. Then I got home and I had it all on film. Oh my God. You have the tapes. Yeah. I'm in the tapes. And yeah. You got him in 4k. 4k staring at my nogs. Um, and that just like set a fire within me because he was always such a legend and obviously Cap and Kim, um, sent him up a lot. And I just, mm -hmm. I was very interested in him because he's the world's best cricketer, in my humble opinion. Anyway, mm -hmm. then I kind of kept just making content about him. I guess he just became like a bit of a a figurehead. Like a running joke. Yeah, like a, like a running joke, yeah. And I guess he's great fodder because he's always doing interesting, outrageous things and he's quite shameless, which I like. Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah, I'd like make videos plunging myself into the ocean at Brighton and doing all this kind of stuff because the whole mythology around him is amazing. Like mm. he's got a club in Melbourne, he's got gin, he's great. So I was doing all that kind of stuff. And then the billboard came about because how did it even come about? First I did this big documentary, which I can link to you, James, which is just me trying to find him and it's kind of like a long skit. <laughs> And then I did a bit, yeah, I did a big photo shoot and I'd always tag him in things. And then he started following me on Instagram. And this opportunity came up to get this billboard. This company that followed me were like, we've got this space mm -hmm. over this amount of time that we need to fill. We want to give it to you. Come up with something that you want to do. And it was either promoting Froome's Old as a business or trying to get Shane Warne to fuck me. And <laughs> naturally, I went with the latter. <laughs> <laughs> but he's you know what james he is the best sport because this has been going on for years mm -hmm. it would be considered harassment in any other circumstance and he, he's been such a good sport about it and sometimes he'll reach out and like we'll have a few messages back and forth but he's never untoward like he's never doing anything sus i just think he's yeah got such a good sense of humor that also brings back to mind you uh appeared in one of the last live shows that i used to run out of giant dwarf called nailed it and uh i still remember your piece david spade is fuckable which uh weirdly like <laughs> even years after i stopped doing that show would come up every so often and i'd see a spike on things because someone had stumbled upon this <laughs> argument again and it would travel around <laughs> it's always enjoyed to find <laughs> Oh man, I was so nervous. My God. I, I really enjoyed what you were saying about having all these different storylines going. It's something that impresses me about your output is the sheer amount of it. Like you really find a way of making just just every moment of your life uh into different segments in these and into different storylines. And I so personally I'm a um I'm a crafter. Like I, I have such a hard time putting things out. And then when I do, I'm a big deleter. Like I will put something out and then pull it away. Cause I'm like, I actually don't care for that anymore. I liked it for four seconds and I do not care for it anymore. How do you 
do this? How do you like it? It feels like the kind of anxiety phase of it and the um, everything has to be shaped in a certain way is such a barrier for so many people as well that you're like, you're always like concerned about reaction, but you are very unapologetically yourself and it works for you. So take me through that a bit. Something that I think about whenever I'm posting anything or creating anything uh, is thinking about what I find funny. So whenever I post something, it's because I think it's funny primarily. And then whether or not people like it doesn't matter as much because I back it. So -hmm. there's been times in my life when I'm creating things where I try and think of a certain person in mind, like, oh, this person might see it. I want to impress them. Um, And it's often when I do that kind of stuff that I post things that I regret. I guess my biggest thing is I've got like certain people in my mind that inspire me and I look at what they do and I think, oh, it looks like they never care. And also sometimes they do things that are a bit embarrassing. So I may as well give myself a go anyway. And I kind of think because I've been posting every day for like five years now, I know that sometimes I'll post something that I don't, yeah, I guess that I don't think is that funny or that I don't think will do very well and it will go crazy. I guess the biggest part of it is remembering that for me, posting a lot and putting things out a lot is easy because it's something that I enjoy and I enjoy the process of it more than I enjoy the response. Yeah. That's me on a good day. Like, of course, I fucking love when something goes bonanza and I love when I get attention. That's probably why I do what I do. (laughs) But (laughs) in terms of... um, uh, having the courage to put whatever up and like put my whole life on online, it's because I am being honest. And also I think I have power in that I don't really give much away about my personal life. Like yeah, the that's things true. that I post about, you know, I post about poo all the time and I post about like not wanting to do anal, but I'm never going to post about like actually having sex or like embarrassing stuff that I find um, a little bit too personal. Like I'd make sure there's a really big divide between those two things Mm -hmm. because, yeah, I think if I started giving too much of myself away, then I would start really second guessing it. Like I guess that's why I have the CEO character because I can, she can do or they can do whatever they want and I'm just the person controlling this character. I think about it like that. I like that. I like that because I used to have this, particularly when I was starting out, I, um, would love crafting things each day, putting things out each day. But if something went, and I was very good at like the making things for myself, but if something started to really resonate, if things went it went off, I would be under my desk. Like I had an agreement with my editor over time of do not contact me. If something is going viral, I am turning off my computer. I am walking away from it. It's like, um, you know that, that thing about how pokies addicts hate when they actually score at the pokey because it means they have to stop playing? Like anytime oh. like something went off, I'd be like, well, this has ruined this for me. I don't like this anymore. I'm going away from this. Are you serious? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't handle Like I was in this for myself and I'm fine when I'm talking to myself. And it's why like I feel I'm better when the last couple of years where we haven't been able to have audiences when doing television shows. It's really helped me because I don't care for the audience being there. They're a distraction to me. <laughs> me like The line I always say is I'm the comedy professional. I'll decide if things are funny. And the <laughs> audience is nothing but a barrier because either they'll love things too much or not enough or I'm then in my head thinking about them not about myself and I cannot stand it right that's so interesting James that's like you it's like a fear of 
not a fear, but yeah, it's kind of like a fear of being perceived. Like I guess it can make you uncomfortable thinking that people are watching, do you think? I think it's that in general. Like it's, yeah, There's because there's an interesting thing in satire of like trying to be a satirist who doesn't enjoy upsetting anyone. That even when like, even when you know someone's a piece of shit and you will stand by your principle of saying that, like I still don't want you to have a bad day about it. All you're doing is destroying <laughs> the world. Like <laughs> have, a, have a real, real element of that. And like, it's like, as I've grown older, it's easier to not give a shit, but like, there, there's really, I, th- I think there's a telling factor in this that I have become somewhat of a, like, my career has pushed me into a puppeteer position. <laughs> that my, my ultimate uh, status now is being behind someone else who will happily say the things that I can put in front of them. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm, yeah, I'm happy for you. You can be my puppeteer. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Another thing that I've really enjoyed that you've put through was, so I like that not only do you run your business, you talk financials with your audience. And particularly, there was one journey that I really enjoyed of yours, which was your cryptocurrency journey. Uh, <laughs> could you tell us this story, please? Yeah, yeah. So I think it was June or maybe May. I was in bed uh, with my now ex we were lying down and we just watched this movie and I was with all of his housemates and a lot of them work in finance and they'd kind of, there'd been talk of stocks and stuff like that. And for the few months before I wanted to look into stocks and I guess I was kind of, I kind of felt like a fish out of water because all these people around me were having these conversations and I wanted to be a part of them, but I didn't know even where to start. So we're in bed and I was like looking at my phone and I was like, I've got to, I've got to come up with a way to get into this game. I've got to come up with a way. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll put $500 on the table. I'll put it on my Instagram and say, everybody, I need to double this money by the end of the week. Tell me what to do. I put it out there and somebody suggested cryptocurrency. And immediately I was like, I'm not doing that. I don't know anything about computers. (laughs) All I know is how to log into Instagram. Thank you very much. But (laughs) This, this, a few people were giving me tips and I thought, oh, crap, a lot of them were women. A lot of them were young women and it made me think, maybe this is sexist, it made me think, oh, fuck, if they can do it, then I can. So I started having a look into it and I sort of went on this journey and put it on my Instagram about the process of actually getting into cryptocurrency because I, it was actually quite interesting and it was fun for me because it was a topic that, I had never been invited into, but I found, I thought, oh, I've got an opportunity here to invite people like me on the journey. And I guess it was kind of ridiculous because it was, I found this cryptocurrency called Cummies, which is otherwise known as Cum Rocket. And it's a, it was Mm -hmm. kind of like a meme coin, but it had a purpose in that you could use the money to buy like porn. It was kind of like this whole network. So I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Put the $500 into it. And it went up to $14,000, which is wilding in one week. (laughs) And I played no part in that. I always say this is not financial advice. Yep. (laughs) But yeah, I liked that because I thought it, it, it was both entertaining for me and it was so interesting how many people were interested in cryptocurrency and stocks well that's what i find fascinating myself because like it's a even as like i come into this as a a maths nerd and still like you can find the stock market and that like that financial sector very intimidating and what you provide really well is 
that you don't come in like so many of these things that you find is someone coming in being like so i'm the expert and here's how you step through you you were a luke skywalker you were open-eyed and being like i don't understand any of this world let's find out how this works anyone got any ideas and it was more enlightening than just about any actual introductory tutorial to this <laughs> financial side have you enjoyed this like getting into because like you're now quite quite deep in the stock world aren't you I am. I love it. I love it, James. It's all I think about in the morning. <laughs> it is. It literally, I wake up, I have an AFR um, subscription mm -hmm. and I go, Sydney Morning Herald, meh, reading about COVID, don't care that much. <laughs> Straight into the AFR. I'm 10 articles deep reading about movement every day. It's just, yeah, I've gotten uh, from the cryptocurrency. I took a little break because that was quite a big moment mm -hmm. and I... A month or two ago, I gave myself another deadline where it's like, I've got a month, I need to invest some money into stocks in the next month. And I figured it out. And now I've got holdings in four different companies. Mm -hmm. And every day when I'm bored, instead of going on Twitter or Hinge or whatnot, I will go onto Comsec and check out my little portfolio, see how my little things are performing, <laughs> my little monies. I have this theory that like the older we get, we are just unlocking sections of the newspaper in the supermarket that suddenly this aisle is relevant to me in this section of the newspaper and you have unlocked the page of the stock and business section. Fully. I it's sometimes I will be watching actual television and little comsec update will come up and I'll be like, I cannot believe that this that I understand this. Like <laughs> this is it's honestly a whole new world that is so it's actually been so empowering for my whole life because it's mm -hmm. taught me about business it's taught me that things are never that complicated which is i think such an important part even of making comedy like thinking oh the comedians that you love they don't just wake up and be funny like there's a whole other world that yeah. you're not privy to unless you like throw yourself in i guess absolutely and and I will say this with full credit for you, like you do throw yourself in. We've had you, we've had you around in our shows and things, and it's always <laughs> a joy to have you. Like just dive into things because I always feel like you you can have that situation where your what you do is so different to everyone else that they're not sure what to do with you, but you know what to do. You are entirely ready to jump in and be like, "Here's what I can offer, and here is how." And that's very, very impressive because even people who have been in the game a very long time get scared in that situation. And I don't think I've seen a situation where you're scared or shy. <laughs> oh, James, <laughs> you had me as a trainee writer on Question Everything. And the first day I get up on the panel as a test with Will Anderson and I was, it was so bad. I was reading his auto cue and it was just demonic. But, yeah, this, I'm definitely, I definitely fail and it's okay. I think I've learnt, I'm glad I learned early on that to fail is is fine. It's just good to try. Failing's kind of charming as well. Like, I feel that we forget about that. <laughs> like, it's quite not in the same way that, like, fucking up happens and fucking up and apologising for it is quite a nice thing to see someone do. And you really don't hold on to egg that. I think seeing someone try their hardest at something like uh, there's this old live like the last taboo in comedy is trying to do something earnestly and well and like i love that like seeing someone try something and it not work out i've never hated them for it really like it's only yeah it's it's only when someone's doing something cynically that you seem to like push against it but i'm a, I'm a big advocate for endless earnestness <laughs> <laughs> I like um it's like 
blinded earnestness. Like yeah. I think I go into things, yeah, thinking that I just <laughs> thinking that I know what I'm doing. That's a big power. I like that. I like it's a game that I will often play. Like it's the good like um I've never been a huge like imposter syndrome person because I was there when I got my way here, so I've never had the problem with that. But like <laughs> I do like the act as if idea of like whenever you are in that situation you're just like no of course i should be of course i should be here of course i should be doing this and it puts you on like it puts you on a good step i i feel like um mentally i'm i'm one of those terrible people who's at the at their best when everyone around them is in a panic like that's when like <laughs> I, I will live my whole life in anxiety and then when you're all nervous i'm ready for it i grew in this pit man like i can take <laughs> anything on <laughs> It's like depressed people in COVID. It's like, welcome to my world. I've been waiting for you. <laughs> um, something I also uh, like asking in, in the conversation I've had so far is, where would you like to end up? Like for you, what is the end game? Where do you want to be? What do you want to be doing? And what do you want to be doing after you're done with that? Huge. Cool. So... I can probably work backwards. Mm -hmm. If I have a family, I want to have a drive time radio show where I earn at least $300,000 a year mm -hmm. and that pays for things. And then the rest of the time I've got with my family, I want to create a TV show that I star in. Mm -hmm. I want to host a, a late night TV show that's like a variety show. Mm -hmm. um, I want to write a book. I want to write a children's book. I want to buy some houses. I want to... <laughs> no, okay. All of that said, I just want to be able to continue making creative work that and not be beholden to anybody. I want to own my work. I want to keep my IP and I want to keep the ability to make whatever I want because I'm in this super sweet spot right now where mm -hmm. I don't really answer to anybody. And I create things that make me happy and I can, I feel like I'm on a path towards something great, but I'm also not, you know, as much, that was kind of a joke what I was saying earlier, except I do really do want creative and financial no, freedom. I, I love that. I actually, I really like that for you because I have the same, like, like you're saying, like the thing that I'm proudest of and the thing that I enjoy the most is being able to control your work and being able to make your work. But I do also have certain milestones like that that I want to hit. Like I want to do this kind of writing. I want to do that. Type. Like I like having those moments because what you are setting there isn't just, that isn't like you didn't have a moment there that was like, I want to be a household name. It's I want to try out these different formats of things and excel at them. I really like that. I think that's like, like, I like that you have a big spread of ideas. It's not just like, I want to star in one of these things once. It's like, I've got seven things I would like to do and I will get through the list. I'm always very fond of that idea because quite frankly, I would not be surprised if you've done that in about three and a half years and we have to come <laughs> back and be like, all right, what now? Do you want to run a Ferris wheel at a carnival? What's your next job? <laughs> Straight into carny lifestyle. So, <laughs> you know what I do want? And sometimes when I get a little bit excited during certain times of the year, I decide I want to run for parliament. Um, and I genuinely feel I want to be the mayor of Melbourne one day. I like it. I like it. Did you, you know, that Nick Russian guy that used to own Eve, the club in Melbourne, he tried to go for mayor of Melbourne like last year. 
Do you remember that? <laughs> no, I did not miss this. <laughs> I'm like deeply interested in like the club world of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, sometimes I just see people like that running for these jobs and I think it's only a matter of time. If you can if you can mount a campaign to get that job, Froome's World is coming in red hot. I would love that and I would love that for a very specific reason, which is like um, it's um, there was this one of my favourite things that I have seen done in the comedy world is uh, when Stephen Colbert on his old show made himself a super pack and was like, he got an inside view of here is how these horrible shadowy organizations work and here's how they form together. He had like his lawyer opposite him in segments to play out like the necessary conversations to pretend like he's not involved running this. I feel like if you can explain to me how cummies work and how (laughs) stocks work, I would love to see the Lucinda take on how do you run for parliament? Because that is... (laughs) That is both great and it's also something that young people could absolutely use because why stay out of this system for so long? Why why should we all sit here for 20 years? I would love to see you do that. Consider oh you've won my vote. Yes. Okay, James. Well, because that's the TV show that I want to make. I was thinking I want to make um like maybe a comedy series which is me, like an influencer, running for parliament. Because I think it's the two worlds, there's too much of an overlap that nobody is talking about and politics is just influence anyway. So, yeah. Well, if you're listening to this and you are an executive at, let's say, 10, the ABC, let's not say (laughs) 7 because I don't like what party they'll make you go for, but otherwise, (laughs) contact Lucinda. (laughs) Please, I'm ready. I'm ready to run. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed that. Oh, my pleasure, James. I think it, it the, a big thing that is a big takeaway of this, I hope, is also connections that you make. Like you and I connected when I started at Pedestrian. I think you shared some of the stuff that I did or an article that I wrote. And then in the years since, you have always put me forward for things. I think no one else in the industry has put me forward for things like you have. You helped me get my agent. You still put me on things to this day. Like I got my first TV writing traineeship through you. Um, And, yeah, there's not enough of that in the Australian industry, I don't think. And, yeah, you've been such a big helper for me. So thank you. Oh, well, that's lovely. And and you're clearly paying it back. So when you have your fifth house, let me stay in there (laughs) rent-free. Yeah, I'll make sure there's a baby room for little baby (laughs) Polly. Thank you. That was Lucinda Price, Frooms. You can find her on all social media and ProClick. Fantastic follow. Definitely get on board if you haven't already. Also, I just want to know the willpower it took not to cut out the nice bit at the end there. Really, look, I, I was trying to follow the example that Lucinda had set for me in that conversation, but my instincts still say go back and delete it. So let's just pretend it didn't happen. All right, on to something much stupider. Now, you may remember an article that very much captured the internet's attention called Bad Art Friend. If you don't remember it, it's okay. 
we're going to take you through exactly what happened. But I brought on Sinead Stubbins, who is writer for The Guardian, The Weekly, has just put out her first book. And I want to ask her about this article, but also about what it reveals about, let's call it group chat culture. You know what group chat culture is. And if you don't, then there's a group chat about you. And there's a culture of that that you need to know about. So let's have a chat about this. Now, this was so talked about at the time that I was kind of worried about this interview. But then listening back to it, it is, there's something in there that's very interesting to me and revealing. And so we go over the story itself, but we very quickly delve into a little bit more about kind of unwritten rules of internet conversation and social interaction now with the whole new dimension on, you know, traditionally already difficult human relationships, if, you know, the last few millennia are anything to go by, that we've added an entirely new complicated element to it. And so Sinead and I discuss this through the guise of Bad Art Friend. All right, uh, let's bring in cultural critic and also writer for The Weekly, Sinead Stubbins. Uh, I wanted to bring you in to talk about Bad Art Friend uh, and a bit beyond what what it can teach us about our modern dynamics, you know, all of all of that kind of where we're doing the New Yorker hour bullshit. Uh, could you... Could you firstly, for anyone who uh, doesn't live online, could you talk us through what the Bad Art Friend article is? Yes, absolutely. But first of all, imagine not living online. <laughs> Isn't How it beautiful? How would you be to not live a- I mean, I can't even imagine that reality. I think, think only one I'm- person does it and it's Lunig and he doesn't seem very happy. No, you're right. No, he's happy, but we're not. <laughs> he's fine. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So bad art friend. So New York Times ran an article called Who is the Bad Art Friend? And the gist of it is it's about a writer's group and specifically two women in that writer's group. One of them is called Dawn. And it's important to know that Dawn has donated one of her kidneys to a stranger via a chain, Mm -hmm. which I thought was only a thing that happened in Grey's Anatomy. Apparently that happens in real life. (laughs) Obviously, I'm not leading an empathetic life, so I didn't know that. Um, And Sonia, another person in that writer's group, wrote a short story about an entitled white woman who gives away her kidney and then just spends the rest of her life bragging about how she once gave a kidney to a stranger. So Dawn saw this story, is like, that story's about me, which it is, and then pursued legal action against Sonia to make sure that this story was not distributed to anyone. But this story is bigger than, like, what are the ethics of writing someone else's story and, like, why has this woman defined her life about the fact that she gave away one kidney? It's actually about, like, covert online exchanges that haunt you later on because it all started, really, the whole thing is kickstarted, not because of the story, but because Dawn posts, I think on Facebook, about donating her kidney. 
and notices that Sonia has not interacted with the post. And so in a truly demonic act, emails Sonia and is like, hey, Sonia, I donated my kidney. <laughs> but didn't you know that? Like, why did, I, did you I say, say that I did that? At this point of the story, when I was reading through it, I was like, that's a good bit. That's something I would do if I posted something and you didn't react to it. I would send you a personal email be like, hey, Sinead, uh, not sure if you caught. I, I did a joke in the work slack and I thought it was quite good. So if you could just put a little smiley face on that. I can't. I wish I remembered the actual wording because it was something like, Sonia, you know that I donated a kidney, right? Like she's like, Sonia. Anyway, Sonia emails back and he's like, tremendous, something like, what a tremendous gift or something. Still doesn't interact with the post. Anyway, Dawn is obviously so shaken by this that she continues to pursue legal action against Sonia. And then as the lawsuit like sort of gets bigger and more people are brought in, it comes to light that this whole writers group, while this is happening, in DMs and group chats, has been making fun of Dawn the whole time, particularly how much she posts about this kidney that she donated a few years ago and, like, how she's, like, marching in the Macy's Day Parade It's like and has this hashtag that she uses, like, a living donor, and everyone's like, oh, Dawn and the donor again. And so Dawn, who thought she was pursuing this, like, this battle of, like, ethics in writing, finds out that everyone just thought she was a tryhard with one kidney the whole time. <laughs> so I think this is what really captured the internet's attention about this because everyone has, I believe the like online shorthand for this is soup guy. A soup guy is someone who uh, you, it doesn't matter what they say. It goes from an old Scottish Twitter post, I believe, that was about um, some, there are certain people online who you see eating soup and you're like, I like this soup. And you react with, I, I bet you fucking do. Like, it's all about who <laughs> the person is and how they become a character for you. So I feel yeah. like this, this is the crux of the story. The kidney is an amazing example of how this can happen. It's an nth degree. But this is about group chats. And this is what I want yeah. to talk to you about today. Because it feels like to me, um, about 10 years ago, let's say, on online, a lot of conversations like this would be had in the open. But it doesn't feel like as much as people do overshare online in certain ways, you don't really have that no holds barred Royal Rumble feel anymore. I feel people are too, there's too much at stake here, honestly. Like it's too easy for a, a cancellation to blow back in your face like Bugs Bunny, like putting a carrot oh, down the end of a musket. Yeah. Yeah, it's the whole concept of receipts, isn't it? Like someone having receipts of your bad behaviour and, and you don't want to put too much online because the screenshots will just come. Like I'm not even someone who says controversial things online. And even when I released a book, I deleted all of my old tweets just in case. So there were no <laughs> receipts. But I, I say nothing of any importance. But anyway, I agree. I totally agree. It's about group chats and... The great thing about the story was when confronted with the horrible things they'd said about Dawn in their group chats, all of these writers stood by what they had said, which I thought was fantastic. They were like, yeah, we hate Dawn. Yeah, we hate yeah. Dawn. Well, well done for donating the kidney, but we hate you, Dawn. I, was like, I think that's the only way you can do it, though. Like, you can't deny it. 
Absolutely. I feel like, particularly when you've gone to that level of digging up. So this was a big crux of the story is a subpoena on a group chat. And that like ran a cold shiver down the spine of all of the internet. Now, what I want to ask you today, because this threw out a moral conundrum for me. If you could subpoena every group chat, and read, and I say this as the reason I'm throwing this to you is you are kind of not to put, you're universally liked. Like there, there's, there is <laughs> not a lot. Untrue. You're not like one of those people. Like I feel there are people who are like proper iconoclasts who this would be a different question to them because you sure. you understand that there are people you piss off every day. But I mean, I'm talking to the people who are like they're just simply you know nice enough people amongst us who are just like you're not out to step on any toes. You don't do anything particularly obnoxious or awful if you I'm not had posting yeah exactly i get it yeah if you had the chance to subpoena all the group chats and you you have this file you have this manila folder sitting on your desk of all of and it's thick of all the things that have been written <laughs> right. about you <laughs> okay it's not thick but right. yeah would you read it I would probably rather get a samurai sword and slice off my own head than read that thick manila <laughs> folder because I I can't t- like this is truly embarrassing to admit but I have spent so much of my adult life wondering what is being said in group chats about me. Now likely no one is saying anything, which I don't know, is that worse? Maybe. But I have spent so much time about it that a friend once said to me like babe don't even think about it because the the things that you're worrying about probably aren't happening. Like if people are talking about you in a group chat, it's probably stuff you've never even thought about yourself. <laughs> Which like, okay, great. Now I'm going to have nightmares about that for the rest of my life. The bad things about me that I don't even know about are in the group chats. <laughs> That's actually, that is a recurring thought. I often have like when whenever you you have that moment where you're haunted by a memory, like, oh, I said that and it was so embarrassing. And having that, uh, a similarly disconcerting thought of no you know what that person that i'm worried about i said something awkward to they're probably thinking about an entirely worse thing i said another time oh that you never would have even that wouldn't have even crossed your brain as being like potentially embarrassing or yeah no No, it would have crossed my brain most of the time it would have crossed my brain that this is a fuck thing to say (laughs) do you would you read it would you read the thick manila folder i would like to think like morally like if i'm making an ethical choice on an ethics exam no i have no interest in that and i and there are like particularly when it comes to your work being out in public and stuff there's a lot of things that i choose not to read even good things like i am one of those people like i don't i want to make the thing i want to make and i don't want to listen to you one way or another but if the folder existed i know every day i would come in and check another page just to needle myself a little bit just to just to just to dig at myself a little P.S. I love that you're aging yourself by calling it a manila folder. When's the last time you opened a manila folder, James? I don't think I've ever opened a manila folder in my life, and you're younger than me. I uh, I keep a lot of my scripts in manila folders because it makes Do me you actually it makes me feel like a detective. Uh, I keep my drafts oh my in little manila folders, and I open them up and I look through them. It's the kind of thing that if people knew about me, it would go around the group chats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, expect that to be in the group chats now. Okay, well, I have another question. Because I remember you at one stage bragging about how many group chats that you are in. See, that's the kind of thing that I don't remember and hate the idea of being brought up. Bragging? Are we certain the term was bragging? 
I remember it. Ba- I remember it. Bra- well, I mean, <laughs> we can check the tape. You're the one with the manila folders. That's true. Tape. When you are talking in your many, <laughs> many group chats, do you ever have a thought like, do I trust these people in this group chat to not screenshot what I've just written and send it to another group chat? So I would say of my many, many group chats, the vast majority of them are, here is one that is about NRL. Here is one that is about NBA. I was about to say, are all your group chats called like the boys? <laughs> Pretty much. Like like a lot of it, like I, I'd be more worried like, oh, someone is screenshotting my poor bench press numbers and sending them on. <laughs> um, I would say like, not not really. Like, like in that I don't hugely, like the the... I don't hugely trust anything in that area, but I also don't step out too badly a lot of the time. I like, I, I have tiny, tiny beefs that don't, I, I don't, uh, like, I don't worry about a group chat leaking. Uh, hmm. That's not true. <laughs> no, I, like, I, I, but I think this is what, this is what gets us to a certain point. Like that mm. everyone Everyone does like there's there's the old evolutionary principle that the, the thing we had over the Neanderthals they were stronger they were faster but we gossiped and we were able to communicate better and we were able to you know drag the Neanderthals for their weaknesses until we worked out how to beat them like this is what I think really this evokes is that ev- like in the same way that everyone's winging it all the time also everyone's talking a little bit of shit all the time I agree. And it's like, it's like when you watch a documentary and somehow, and I never know how they do this, they have like a letter from Hemingway talking about how shitty his first girlfriend was and like Lincoln writing to his wife and being a bit catty. Like people were gossiping in these letters and then kept the letters. They're like historical receipts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I always think about that with um, the, there's old story of like, Kafka's stuff was found um, after he asked, like his best friend, uh, "When I die, just there's a there's a box full of Manila folders in my room. Just set them all on fire." And instead, the friend looked through it and went, "Oh, this is an amazing literary work. We're going to publish these, and this is where his collection of works comes from." And I always think, "Shit, friend, burn them. I told you to burn them. Burn them." Oh no! I mean, hey, if that friend needed a little bit of scratch, who was Kafka to say? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We all do silly things for money. <laughs> what I want to ask about this as well is, to me, it feels like there's no going back. Like once we have this, there's no like, there's no new world. Like I know there was this push in certain sex for a while of like radical honesty and look, let's just get it all out on the table and we're all fine. But that does not work because mm. not everyone has the same amount to lose. Like. Is this just like is this just we have perfected the idea of clicks? Like that we we worked out that there is a world where you are never forced to go into group pairings that you don't like, or if you do, you still have your click on you all the time. Like, is this just the world now? Well, when you say radical honesty, do you mean radical honesty between two people who do not have the same view of their relationship? Is that what you mean? Or do you mean radical mm-hmm. honesty as a society? <laughs> I mean radical honesty as a personal philosophy in that the way I make myself immune against everything is you can't have anything on me if I have said everything about me first. Okay, no, that doesn't work. 
Because the thing is, so let, let's say that Sonia said to Dawn, let's say when Dawn emailed Sonia and was like, Sonia, I donated a kidney and you didn't like my post. What's going on? And Sonia said, Dawn, I find your posting obnoxious and you're a bad writer and you're such, a, you're such an abhorrent person that I'm writing a short story about it. P.S. I really want to read this short story. Imagine if it's just not even really good. I bet it's not. Um, sorry. <laughs> like, how did that ben- How does how does that benefit Dawn, and how does that benefit Sonia? So, what we've landed on here is the moral thesis from Liar Liar with Jim Carrey <laughs> that sometimes you need to tell a small lie, and it's better for everyone. Fuck. You're right. <laughs> liar Liar had it all. I mean, but it just would so, it, it wouldn't have benefited anyone. Like Sonia was actually doing Dawn a kindness, but these sound like made up names, by the way. But Sonia was doing Dawn a kindness by being like tremendous effort donating that kidney, because then Dawn could walk away from that exchange being like, yeah, that was a tremendous effort." Yeah, absolutely. Like this is this is a real like at any point had she have dropped it, we're fine. And I think this is also what is quite compelling about this story. We've talked about this before when we were working together during lockdown about what has happened each lockdown, which is gossip droughts. Like there mm. are quite real gossip droughts when no one's going anywhere and no one's doing anything. And do you know what this is? This is really stakes-free gossip. It feels like every conversation, this one included, about Bad Art Fred is the kind of conversation that could appear in Bad Art Fred. Be like, <laughs> oh, this person is... This person's so needy and this one's a real jerk and they're all mean and all together. Like, it's... In in condemning them, we're all the same horrible people. I know. I said Sonia's story is probably bad, and I have no reason to believe that it is. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I say that? It's like I got too excited. Maybe that's what gossip is. It's getting too excited and showing off for your friends. I Do you know what? Honest to God, yes. Yeah. I think that's absolutely... Because even when you're reading about like the lines in these, I know the writers have stood by them, but a lot of them are like, I bet that played well in the group chat. Like oh. it feels like to me that you should get a measure of how many ha-ha reacts and how many exclamation points each post got because that that gives us the real sign of, wow, this person said this and everyone thought it was great, then it was probably great in the context. Yeah. I think... I also was thinking about how this group chat in this writer's group started. Like they were obviously all a group of people who knew each other and came together for a, a certain reason and then they've splintered off into a subgroup. So I just wish we knew the catalyst because there's always a catalyst to a subgroup or a Slack channel or a Twitter DM. You know, there's always something and you have to trust. It's a real leap of faith because you're like, this person obviously is just as annoyed about this as I am. Let's talk about this other person. Absolutely. The creation of like the side group chat mm. is one of the most like, it's it's the real like, do you trust me, brother? Give me your head <laughs> moments that we have right now. Because if those things backfire, they backfire. Like I'm a, I'm a big fan of Survivor and it feels like, like the moment where you try and make an alliance and it could make or destroy your game. And in this case, your game is your life and your social standing. 100% because there's nothing. I mean, we've all done it where... And it, I think it happens at work a lot. When you talk to a workmate and you're like, oh, what about that thing? 
And then they sort of react a bit weird and you're like, fuck, I've gone too far. I've broken this. <laughs> I think that's also an interesting part of like um, something that I think about in this with the wider group chat conversation is there are times when you have to be comfortable with chats existing that you're not in mm. like and particularly like when like and it's just something we you have to grow up with like there it's an element of you get old enough to become comfortable in your own skin you know who you are and like that's that's where like i know and i am comfortable with who i am so i don't need to concern myself with x and it does feel like particularly like you get these in work environments you get these in all kind of things but you have to be like it's okay I don't see this is the other thing like a uh, group chat existing is like a, 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 a cult room it's like a bar in Surrey Hills where you have to know which door to knock on like it's or, or any any bar in Melbourne <laughs> but like it's like as soon as as soon as you know they exist you have to be comfortable with me like and it's all right it's all right that they because I feel also at this stage like particularly in your groups of friends in your your um on, even online friends or however you're falling into these things, you know your little group. Like, it would be weird to be added into an established group chat at this stage. And to me, it would be, like, even more concerning of, okay, what was the selection <laughs> process here? Like, whenever, if you're added into a DM group or something, you're like, what was the catalyst? Who was the vote? How did this happen? I need to know why I'm here. Totally. I have I have two thoughts um, regarding what you just said. Um, have you ever been in a group chat where you're like, oh, I know too much now. I've definitely been in a group chat with people <laughs> I don't know well and they're saying stuff and I'm like, oh, it, this it's just too much for me to know. And you can't leave the group chat because that's oh, rude. Yeah. That's the other thing. You can't leave no. the group chat. You cannot leave. Like you, you have to let them die a slow and natural death. And there's also like level of vulnerability in creating or destroying oh. them. Like at any point that you're like, Hey, here's a message thread of five people. Let's like I, I even found this like making a, a a group with old high school friends who we have known and love each other for over a decade. Like there's no there's no worry that like adding these people in that there's gonna be clashes or stuff. We know each other too well to really be concerned about that. But all the same, it's like when you have like a seedling, like when you start a it, you have to like keep prodding it and being like, keep this alive, keep this alive. We need to keep up a certain level of conversation if we want this to live. And we all want to be in each other's lives. So please put some effort into yeah. the chat, which feels, it feels like you're sending the triple text to someone and being like, please, please talk. I know, totally. And if you leave, it's like an act of war. It's like, oh, well, what's the chip on his shoulder? Oh, yeah. yeah. 100%. But I was thinking about also what you were saying before about accepting group chat, that there are group chats that you're not in, blah, 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 blah. I think part of that for me as well was like this realisation that I am going to, fuck up heaps in my life and I will annoy people and I will upset people but I actually can't be the investigator for all my faults and just be checking in with every single person I've ever met to check that every interaction I've had with them has been okay like I have to trust that if I've really upset someone they will come to me and be like hey that thing you did was pretty shitty can we talk about it because I've I spent have spent so many years being like oh is he mad at me? Is she mad at me? Are they talking about me? And they have you know, like trying to figure out mm. what is wrong with me. What is wrong with me is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> 
And if you have any ideas, please write into the show. <laughs> You're a psychologist, right? This session's on Medicaid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. <laughs> this is telehealth. This is yeah, how great. telehealth works. I love it. It's going well. <laughs> this, this is Collie Health. Welcome to Collie Health. Oh, Collie Health. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this. This is this is a really this has been a really actually quite fun and insightful chat. Like this is this is what I love about these things and these articles is that it's so rare because we particularly in pandemic times, we just jump into each one of these new digital things as a means of connection. I like any of these things that make us talk about or reflect on the like little philosophies or, or when you realize something is not something that just you do that it is a a really recurring pattern in the world and i think this is a very good example of it so thank you very much for coming along and chatting thank you collie doctor <laughs> damn it that's a better segment <laughs> That was Sinead Stubbins, whose first book, In My Defense, I Have No Defense, is a very, very enjoyable read and is particularly good at, at pulling apart that minutiae of the modern world and those little things that speak to the biggest thing. I, it's, it's a great and enjoyable read. I highly recommend it for you. And sticking on internet culture for a bit, my next guest is... a. Uh, comedian who has come up in the last couple of years is a interesting up-and-coming comedian and the reason I want her on this show is I find it fascinating that her boom let's say has really happened in the pandemic times in the lockdown times she's a stand-up comedian who has built her audience in a time when she cannot meet her audience and is now about to head out on her first fringe and comedy festival shows to a live audience. And so we're going to talk a little bit about her journey and also what that's like to have to go and face the crowd for the first time, really. So this is Gabby Bolt, and I really enjoyed this chat, so I hope you do as well. And if you don't, not my problem, mate. We're like three and a half hours into this thing. Come on. At some point, you have to pull your own weight or at least hold yourself accountable that you have done three hours into this show and you're still complaining. Like at this point, even hate listening. Look, I've gotten in my own head about it. Let's just bring in Gabby and I'll go call someone very quickly. Speak to a professional about this. Gabby Bolt, let's just let's. Look, we're three and a half hours in, guys. You've got to just introduce her, Collie. Here you go, Gabby Bob. Gabby Bolt, thank you for joining me on this weird little project. Now, what I wanted to ask you about is you had a very interesting come up in the comedy world. And yeah. for... Well, actually, let's first let's just fill people out of this. Can you can you take people through what your experience was establishing yourself in comedy in Australia? Well, it's again, it's so hard to pinpoint because every time someone reminds me I'm a comedian, I feel like there's a moment where I kind of go, "Oh yeah, that is what I do." Like, <laughs> I 
I sort of I've always been absorbing comedy my whole life. Like my mum was a very lenient parent in some ways. Some would say uh, not a great uh, judgment of uh, ratings on television shows, but I grew up like absorbing a lot of particularly Australian comedy and a lot of Australian musical comedy. Like I, I grew up on like Tripod and Axes of Awesome and Tim Minchin and Sammy J and a bunch of really amazing acts and. But like I never really considered doing it. I think I just sort of liked that it made me laugh and it felt funny and I, it just sort of taught me that music could be silly. But yeah, I was like a full, I wanted to be a musician, like a serious musician for most of my life. And I even released an EP and I wrote my own music. I still write some of my own serious music. But um, yeah, then a pandemic happened and I was really, really bogged down in what was happening in the news mostly because it was just it was kind of just mayhem every single day for a little while there in 2020 like like and it was shocking back then so I sort of made like this little side project to sort of help me deal with how crap everything was and I was losing work as a teacher and just it was just bad and so I turned uh, the news verbatim news into musicals like one minute musicals on TikTok with a username that no none of my students could ever find me under and I just sort of thought I had the perfect like outlet really it was never supposed to be anything that changed my career and then it ended up gaining a bit of traction I ended up buying a green screen like I was going all out <laughs> and um I kept doing these little musicals I made musicals out of media gaffes as well and Ozpol and just a bunch of stuff and yeah I gained like a little audience and then it sort of got me a little bit of viewership on Twitter and things and I just sort of kept making connections one of the main connections I made was um, Dan Illich was mm-hmm. like the first sort of comedy gig I suppose I had was a podcast online Zoom sort of podcast gig and he sent me an email being like now you, you know, no pressure but if you want to write a song that'd be great and I wrote a song a day before the podcast about the Melbourne Cup which was happening that week mm-hmm. and it was like this he was like oh it only has to be 30 seconds long you know whatever and I ended up writing this like two and a half minute song <laughs> And um, it went really well. And then afterwards, he sort of said, he was like, you should do this. <laughs> he was like, you should you should do comedy. And I sort of went, oh, okay. And then from there, it just kind of kept being sort of opportunity after opportunity. And I just sort of kept taking them, which was weird because I didn't even know they were happening until they were sort of happening. So... That that it's is bizarre. just just for the full disclosure. My first paid gig was actually Rational Fear as well. No the, the, way. Well, 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 back in the days when it was us sitting in a lounge room in Bondi, <laughs> <laughs> going over like doing FBI radio stuff. Yeah. Um, back back in those days, but yes. um, well, that was yeah. actually the, our first interaction. Was um, we were both doing that show, yes. doing Irrational Fear in Melbourne, and yeah. I have to say, like at the time, I was head down in I was doing like the weekly for that yeah, year and yeah. it was a, a full on year turned out and, yeah um, crazy there so I was like uh I remember actually like you were one of the first comics that I'm like oh TikTok is real and I am so old because <laughs> we were like walking from we we're walking from where we were grabbing a drink before the oh, gig yeah. into the venue and in that step you were stopped maybe three different times by that people was- on the street that was honestly I feel like that is a very Melbourne centric experience too. like all that all that whole trip taught me was that probably 70% of my viewership was people in Melbourne because I walk around Sydney all the time and I never ever get stopped but Melbourne I got stopped yeah all every day every day somebody would stop me and that was really nuts but it was great timing because I was walking with you and a bunch of other really great comedians all through Melbourne at the comedy festival and people were stopping me I was like this is gonna look great yeah, yeah yes vindication <laughs> um but it was it was a lot of fun I, I yeah and I think I think that comedy sort of that whole trip that I was very lucky enough for Dan to take me on um 
really cemented how much I wanted to do comedy. I don't think I've ever played a gig more leaving with the feeling of like, oh, that's what I was supposed to be doing this whole time. Like, I I never, I can't recall a single music gig that I played where I walked away going, I'm going to do this professionally. I would always walk away from them going, oh, I messed up a few times or I did this or I did this. But at comedy gigs, I just... It was like drugs. Like I walked away feeling like I could lift a car or something. Like, ah, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And great. just wait until the gigs take off and then it actually is drugs. Uh- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not earning that much yet. <laughs> There's this whole thing of like all all comedians actually want to be musicians, but you're a musician who has come to comedy. Like yeah. when you're approaching a gig for both of these, do you? is it a mindset change? Because I'm always like jealous of a musician who just like all they – like from my perspective all you have to do is play the songs that people have already heard and they will be happy whereas if i just went on stage and went here are the jokes you've already heard (laughs) yes it would go terribly i still completely struggle with the concept because i'm obviously i've i've been writing my first show for like a year and a half now which is (laughs) really annoying because i thought i'd only have to write it for a couple of months and then everything (laughs) kept getting pushed back so writing a show and you're rehearsing the songs over and over again and you're rehearsing them in a way of like if you get a set at a comedy night you have five minutes so you play one song and I'm constantly like oh but if I play that song then I can't play it again like if I play this song to this crowd here this night when I do my show I'm not going to be allowed to play it again because no one's going to laugh and (laughs) it's taken a lot of comedians to be like Gabby that's that's stupid like you're very like I'm very lucky in a way that I get to re- it's the same thing I think I get to recycle a lot of my musical material because mm. if somebody likes the song it doesn't really matter if they know what jokes are coming and I think I think about that with the musicians that I love or like with the comedians that I love I listen to Tim Minchin on repeat constantly like I know every lyric to every single one of his songs I know where all the jokes are and I still listen to it so I feel like that gives me a little bit of comfort. And yeah, it sometimes feels like I'm cheating comedy a bit because I, I do feel like as a stand-up, you can't get away with that as much. But I suppose it's sort of the same thing as developing a show and you would take that show to different audiences and say obviously the same jokes at different places. I think the main thing is just constantly writing. Like if I keep if I keep writing songs, then it's always going to feel fresh. Whereas if I just write, you know, the most perfect eight songs ever and then tour those for several years, I think I'd start to get a bit antsy. I don't no, think I'd like doing I- that. Like, I've been doing this for, oh my God, 15 years now. That's mm. a revelation that's coming to me as I'm counting it up. But I yeah. have some dear friends who are doing the same jokes 15 years ago that they are yeah. doing now. But I think, like, the real challenge is, like, for me personally, even when doing a short run of shows, is yeah. not getting bored myself. Yes. Huge, huge problem. Like, I, and when, like, it's the same with writing a song. Like, if I'm writing a comedy song, all the comedy in that process is, it it escapes me. Like, I don't, like, I will write a song and I'll write the first joke of the song and I'll laugh at it that first time. And then because I'm still writing music, I have to sing it over and over again. So every single time I write a song, by the end of the writing process, I don't think it's funny at all and I think it's terrible and I'm not going to include it. And so I have to send it to like five or six people to be like, did you laugh? Tell me how much you laughed. Did you mark like a little bit? Did you laugh a lot? Is it one of those ones I could get away with being slightly serious or like I need it? Like it's the same. Like you were there when I performed um, one of my, well, it's now one of my favorite songs, but when I first wrote it, I didn't think it would be any good for comedy Um, at, ABC Sydney, I performed a song called 12 Pubs No Beach. Yeah, it is my favourite song of yours, actually. (laughs) Yeah, you and Dan have that in common. And um, I didn't think it was funny. I literally was like, this is just 
what my experience growing up was. I thought it was too serious to be a comedy song. And then when I left that performance, Dan was like, if you don't include that in your show, you're stupid. <laughs> well, I, I will say that, like, it's a very funny song, but it's also beautiful. Like, oh, that's the thing you. I like about, like, there there are so and so few times, particularly in the city, where I feel homesick, and that uh. made me feel homesick. And I was like, generating yeah. that feeling, it's the kind of feeling you get at the end of a very good Qantasad, you know? Oh, that's the dream. I'm glad I've achieved that. I just need the white shirts and that'll be sorted. I'll get the choir out for that one. No, but yeah, it's I think I like I like the challenge of emulating a feeling that people can relate to. And I think that is something really, really universal in comedy. Like even stand up, you're trying to tell a story that people will laugh at but also walk away going, Oh yeah, something like that happened to me once or like mm. oh, I remember if they know you, you know, I remember when that happened or I was there, you know. I feel like that's a real fun thing to have to do for a living, like professionally. It's like such a joy to be able to get paid to do that. <laughs> uh, you came along to question everything to be one of our writing uh, yeah. interns, which was which was a great deal of fun to have you on. But you also saw that I have very much the same mentality of you, where like creating the comedy is painful. <laughs> yes. like, there's a lot of like delight. Like I have a lot of fun doing what we do, and I'm filled with joy getting to put this on the air. Like yeah. there are there are clips that. Every time I see them, I will love. There are jokes that I am looking out for, even the seventh time we've heard them. Yes. But I, I am the, I have no joy in it myself. Yes. And like, and not convinced. Like, like once I like looking at it from a technical aspect, I'm like that joke works. I'm not like this is so funny. I love it. Yeah. Um, and it's taken to. It's weird to say that, particularly now, like we're doing shows that were in their inception were created for an audience and. In the last couple of years of uh, of Gruen QE and the Weekly, mm. there haven't been an audience. They've been yeah. like strictly we could not have one. And it's weird to say, the best thing I have gotten from this is Gogglebox. When Gogglebox <laughs> reviews one of our shows, and you saw like fuck yeah, just after we record this, they um they like. Uh, this week past when we recorded, they have just done uh, Gruen's first episode and they played out our monologue Brilliant. and the first thing. And seeing them really enjoy a joke like warmed my heart. Be like, yeah. I didn't realize how much I missed this, but it's I really such- missed this. I know, and it's that's what I mean. Like, like as much as I love the digital medium, and I mean, I obviously I got my start on on digital sort of platforms, but. I will always prefer being in a dingy room with people who don't know me. Like, there is something about making someone who does not know you at all have a good time that is the best part of performing. It doesn't even matter if it's like a pub gig, which I did years of, or Mm. whether it's a comedy gig. It's like, it's that same feeling of knowing that you've actually earned your crust a bit, where it's like, online, you kind of just put stuff out there and you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. I guess I'll put it out. This is exactly what I wanted to get to to talk to you about because yeah. you have such an interesting trajectory here that you're heading towards your first show, yes. but you have you have spent like you've built an incredible audience in a place that you can't see them, like yes. that that you don't get that instant reaction. And no. take me through some of it, like how what is this like for you? Um, well, it's it's incredibly nerve wracking. Not for, like I don't know if I really mind all that much. If like I mean. Uh, I used to really care about whether that online audience would then show up in real life. I feel mm. like there's a lot of discrepancy because a lot of the people who follow me on TikTok also follow me for this crazy rap musical, and that was a huge American audience. So sorry, I feel like for our for our oh, thing, right. if you could take half a I second to explain yeah. what crazy so, rap musical ba- means, that's too delicious a tease. <laughs> so basically, there was this trend on TikTok, and then this was back when I wasn't really 
anybody. Um, I was sort of doing my Ozpol thing, but I wasn't really caring that much about making a comedic career. And there was this trend. Somebody just started it by saying, what if Ratatouille, the Pixar film about a rat who becomes a Michelin star chef, was a musical? And then a bunch of musicians from all over the world, mostly America, I will say, but like it was open to everyone, were writing songs and creating dances and creating characters even and, and acting them out and costumes and set design and lighting design. Like it was insane. It was this amazing phenomenon and I was just very lucky to have uploaded the right song at the right time. I wrote a song for the dad's character. The dad's name is Django the Rat. And um, I wrote this song called Trash is Our Treasure. And in the end, it ended up being a part of this Broadway production, which raised over $2 million for the Actors Fund <laughs> in America. And Wayne Brady sang my song. And he's still like, in a, like, I was very lucky because out of all of the people who did Ratatouzical and interacted with their celebrity counterpart, because there was heaps of celebrity people in this in this production mm-hmm. um wayne brady has kept up with me I, I mean i even just announced my moosehead award like uh what four days ago mm-hmm. and he commented he was like you definitely deserve this congratulations and i was like wayne brady like he just pops <laughs> up and so it's just it was just this incredible experience but it had in my head it doesn't really allude with comedy that much it was just kind of this weird thing i was a part of that helped me get a lot of people but because of that a lot of those people were international a lot of them were mm-hmm. Like they don't, they didn't really know me. They just knew that I did this rat thing. And so I think in my head, the struggle is trying to not convince, but like let those people feel free to come along on this also, this other journey with me. Um, Because yeah, I don't know how many people knew that I was sort of trying to do comedy at that point at all. I think they just thought I was some composer from America at the time. And then they all found out I was this weird Australian girl. So (laughs) um, yeah, so it's sort of been a bit of a lull in like, figuring out who my audience is. And I also haven't really been posting on TikTok all that much this year because the pandemic this year, the lockdown and everything really hit me quite hard. And so I decided to sort of focus more on writing and I sort of let a lot of it fall to the wayside. But hopefully I can get it back. Once I start doing some live performances, I would love to post more videos of that to get the right kind of audience over. So yeah, it is a bit of a weird thing because I don't, I've never tested any of these songs really mm. in a room <laughs> like the way you're supposed to. Like I was go- I was going to do the Fringe Festivals and that was going to be my tester and then all the Fringe Festivals got cancelled. So now I'm pretty much just throwing myself into Melbourne Comedy Festival with the show that I've barely tested. So it's like I'm really riding off the seat of my pants. Um, <laughs> but it's fine. I've, I've kind of I've just gotten used to doing that now, which is great. <laughs> What I want to ask you about, though, is your, is your writing process different? Like, when you're thinking of, like, I'm writing a song for oh. online versus for an audience in front of you. Because I've found, yeah. like, when we're writing, when you're writing TV with a live audience, you write different. Like, you, yes. there, are, there are, like, practical things. There are, like, when there's no audience there, you don't deliver punchlines straight down the barrel and you just yeah. move on because the silence is deafening. You want to get jokes on the way through rather than hit them hard. But... I can't like I I can't imagine yeah. what this is like going the other way when they're back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like I mean, I am proud of a lot of the stuff I made for TikTok, but I feel like a lot of it was very lazy writing because I was doing it quickly and I was doing it with a massive turnaround. So mm-hmm. a lot of it was very reliant because I was I, again I kind of cheated comedy a bit. A lot of my musical stuff when I was turning Ozpol into musicals, it was based on what was actually said. So all of it was verbatim. So lyrically, I didn't have to do anything. I literally just had to take something bullshit that, you know, some politician had said and it was this crazy media moment and all I had to do was write music. So that was a very, very quick process. Mm -hmm. And I found that a lot of the comedy came from how I acted it out or how I edited it. And it had to be under a minute because back then, back in the ye olde times when TikTok was not the biggest platform in the world, it was only 60 second videos and you couldn't 
really do much with it. So yeah, it had to be snappy. It had to be, and it was very, it was just, I, I had created this perfect little box to keep myself within to make sure that it always came out with a result. With my own comedy songs, I am having the biggest problem. I like I don't think people understand. When I write a song myself, they're almost always over four minutes. Like even my original music before I was a comedian, it's almost always like a song that's I, have, I don't think I've ever written a three minute song. So, you are the meatloaf of comedy. It's bad. Like yeah, I, I go to write a two minute song and I end up with like an eleven minute three part opera. It's awful. Um, and that's been a really really hard. I I find it really hard to edit down and compress jokes into like something a bit more palatable. Is is part of the problem here, do you feel that comedy songs outstay their welcome, that like you have to keep it tight? I feel I feel like because I'm not that seasoned a joke writer, I, I love writing jokes and I think all of those experiences like question everything and working with the chaser and working with Dan have really sort of cemented a lot more skills to do with how to like construct a joke. But mm-hmm. because I don't know, I think it's also just like I feel a need to be impressive. And the one thing I think I have that is different to a lot of people is my musicianship. I feel like I have a a fair bit more knowledge in that area than, say, if I were just a stand-up comedian. So I think I kind of rely on the music emoting a lot more than the words do. And I need to sort of swap that over because my lyricism isn't awful. Like, it's not... I don't think it's that bad. I just, I think I'm constantly stuck in this world where I haven't been doing it that long with comedy. And so Mm. I'm like, oh, well, if I can't think of anything funny here, I'll just make the music funny. And then it's lengthens the song out. So I'm getting into the habit now of sending all my songs to people who can shave them. Like being like, okay, you actually don't need that second chorus. Or you could cut this chorus in half. Or you could cut this. Or if something is over four minutes long, it's because I've tested it and people have laughed and said, don't change it. Like, yeah. no, it's funny. It tells a story from A to B. And if it affects the story, then I'll leave it. But if it doesn't affect the story and I can get rid of it, I'm getting used to now just having to go, oh, God, and then getting rid of it. No, that's fair. That's little, like, little song childs. <laughs> it was actually the, the most common note I used to get when I was starting even for, for writing just then mm. was fewer words. Yeah, like, fewer take, words. Take fewer words. Uh, yeah. But I think that's – so, like, for for mine, like, firstly, I don't buy that you haven't cheated comedy and there is no way to <laughs> cheat comedy. Like, yeah. when, when so, you know when someone's cheated comedy and that's not it. Oh, but, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> what I like about your musical comedy and when I like musical comedy like this, mm. it's that the use, like, the music isn't just used as, like, so there is a tendency, I would say, and I have done it myself but like um to use uh, a rhyme instead of a joke and yeah. what i like is you have fucking jokes and there are <laughs> jokes you're but like the music your musicality shines through to make things compelling like to to like they they but like they're like the atmospheric build of the song or they help like tell the narrative of your story in the way that like what you're really doing is building a soundscape to the premise that you're setting yeah i interested when you talk about like that you do quite long comedy songs Mm. i love the idea of someone leading into that both from the point of like anytime (laughs) a comedian hears anything it is like there's 10 minutes in that oh my god what a gift yeah but also like i would just like to that that's interesting to me because you don't see it a lot and i think it's daring in its own way and if it's already you're right like i understand the idea of like trimming the fat and stuff like that yeah. but if it's if it's just good for six minutes then let's have a good time for six minutes i need to send my songs to you james i feel like that would give me the kick i want yeah no i, I there are a few songs that i have like that that it's 
I think my main problem as well is as as somebody new to comedy and also I think sometimes a little bit of being a woman comes into it where I feel this ridiculous need a lot of the time to explain where my jokes are coming from. And so in a song, sometimes that's also what takes up some of the time. Where that's fair. I'm going, oh, please no one be offended by what my opinion is about to be in the next four bars. But then, oh, this is my opinion on supermarkets. Like it doesn't. So I've had to sort of. A lot of people have said, why do you feel the need to explain the context of this joke that, by the way, is not that bad or like it's not that controversial. Like you're not going to have fruit thrown at you for saying this. And I think it's also stemming from the fact that I've not done them live. So I'm so I just want to make sure people walk away knowing exactly where I stood on something rather than leaving. Because in songwriting, the thing is you can kind of leave these vague metaphors all over the place because Mm -hmm. most of the time you're singing about love or a breakup or like, I don't know, politics or something. And it's not... It's not pushing buttons of people. It's not saying things that are meant to shock people. But with mm-hmm. musical comedy, you have to kind of do that a little bit more so that people laugh. Um, and yeah, yeah, walking that line and trying not to get people misconstruing what I'm singing about and also trying to let those thoughts be like four words long and fit in a rhyme construct is yeah. just, it's such a struggle. Like I, I tend to find that, but I do say like, I think I tend to drop the rhyming thing if what I'm saying is what I mean. I feel like if I want to say something, I'll just figure out a way to say it that has like either an internal rhyme in the one line or I'll just say it really quickly and rhyme it with something else at the end. Yep. Like I have a lot of little cheaty tactics in my lyrics where I just go, I'm going to stick a million words in the space where only maybe 20 should be and everyone can just deal with it. Um I feel that me. is, like, the experience of, like, particularly, like, when I was um, starting out writing comedy, I was like, oh, this this seems like a bit of a trick, but I think it will work if I do this. And then when yeah. you become old in comedy, it's just, it's not that you stop doing tricks, it's that your bag of tricks becomes incredibly big. Yes. So you're just like, I've, like, it's a it's any video game. I now have 40 yeah. moves to choose from, and yeah. I will just pick them up. But I feel like what you're doing is you're pulling up all these different methods and it's funny like what what you were saying then reminded me of like um this uh, uh literary reviewer saying that they could tell whether someone was active on social media or not from their writing because they defend themselves against an insane position yes that, like you would have to actively misconstrue what they're saying but i feel that is like i i once was given uh um a head writer i was working on gave me an impression of me pitching which is one of the more <laughs> hurtful <laughs> it's six years ago and it has not left my mind for That's a moment brutal. But, but it was like this it was uh so i've got something i don't think it's good it sucks actually i don't know why i'm bothering with you but i shouldn't be here anyway but yeah. if i was and i'll say and look here's the idea we should talk about donald trump like my exact <laughs> my exact experience in comedy like i actually i wrote a joke on twitter the other day where all good jokes are um and i i call i've been doing this thing lately where i write a poem called but they're not poems they're literally just thoughts it's written down in a funny way mm-hmm. and uh one was called uh, a poem called workplace validation and then it's just dot 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 i don't need it dot 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 i really don't and then at the bottom do you think we should do this idea oh i'm god no actually never mind actually now that i'm saying it out of my mouth it sounds horrible oh it's awful isn't it you know what i'll just never breathe again like don't worry about it i'm never gonna actually pitch any ideas to- oh i don't even know why i said anything and i i do that all the time uh somebody i think it was charles firth had to yell at me on the podcast like a week ago just because I kept apologizing for my jokes. Like I kept going like blah, blah, blah off the cuff and I'd think it was a little bit inappropriate and then I'd go, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, oh, sorry. And he'd go, it was funny, shut up. (laughs) It's, It's such a common experience. I just feel like I can't wait 
to get one show, even just like one playing of one show under mm. my belt so I know vaguely what the outcome is going to be because that's the, that is the part that makes me want to shit bricks. It's literally just not knowing how people are going to walk out of the room once I'm finished and I can't wait to find out but it's also one of those like, uh, what's the cat? The, the cat that you don't know whether it's dead or not. Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, it's Schrodinger's show. I don't know. I, I don't know whether I want to know and I don't know whether I don't want to know. I think you will find people are going to be absolutely delighted. And if anyone <laughs> listening to this would like to come, can you please let them know the details of the show? Yes. Well, I'll be playing, if you're in the Sydney area, and if preferably if you're double vaxxed, because that way you get to heckle me. Um, if you're in the Sydney area, the Factory Theatre on the 16th to the 18th of December, I'll be debuting this show that I'm taking around the place uh, called I Hope My Keyboard Doesn't Break, which I've kind of Macbeth myself with the title there a bit. Because <laughs> I guarantee you now something will break. Um, <laughs> it feels like... Like the kind of show where it has to break in the third act now. Yeah, like- maybe it should just turn off and I'll go, well, that's the show. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then I just won um, funding for the Melbourne Comedy Festival as well with the Mooseheads Awards. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I'll be doing a one to two week run in Melbourne next year, but I, I don't know the details. I have a feeling it's going to be at the Butterfly Club, but I haven't sorted it out yet because I don't know how any of it works and my admin skills are terrible. <laughs> The guide will come out with all this detail when you're yeah. looking to book MICF tickets. It will be a heck of a show to go. I think, honestly, Gabby is one of the real rising stars in Australian comedy. So oh. get on early because it's a real... You can be a real dick about it when you see someone great early. And you'll be like, oh, have you not heard of... I've been following this person for years. And- oh, God. I'll be one of those band shirts. Yeah, exactly. Name four of her songs. <laughs> oh, my God. The dream. Gabby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, James. Anytime. That was Gabby Bolt. Highly recommend you check out her debut show so you can say I was there when. Now, we at The Collie Project, and it's just me at The Collie Project, but me at The Collie Project want this to not just be a bloody ball terror of a program we also sorry wasn't expecting to say that as it came out my mouth we also want this show to do some good for the world i guess let's go with that and as such i'm trying to be a bit of a cultural ambassador in this next segment so i brought in my dear friend rock who has emigrated to Australia from Fort Worth, Texas. And I'm trying to do some of the work here of looking at our country through an outsider's eyes. Now, Rock is the host of Delete Your Account. He's a fantastic writer, but is also tragically an American. And I want to know what is it about our country that still does not make sense, or at least from her perspective, because I know a lot of the stuff of our country that still doesn't make sense, but I thought there were more fun bits, the silly little bits, let's say. <laughs> we'll, we'll take care of that. I'm going to leave the bigger structural things for another comedy podcast. <laughs> but here is Rock and your guide to Australia through the eyes of a Texan.
So, Rock, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I am honoured to be your Australian cultural ambassador. Now, you've lived here for a while, but I understand this is a truly baffling, baffling nation. So I thought that the way we would run this is you would bring me a, a concept, a term, whatever it is you do not understand, and I would do my best. Now, I do not know ahead of time what this is going to be, so... I have been running through my head. What are the things that she might want explained by me? What would it make sense for a Texan coming to Australia? And it turns out it's most of the country. So I really don't know where we're going to go with this. But could you take it away? What What is it that you want explained? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me on. I appreciate this. And I'm expecting a copy of my own theme music in the future. But so one of the things that's always bewildered me about Australia is the shortening of words like McDonald's and afternoon and service station and chocolate. So why do you all do that? And why do some of them not even make sense? Like how y'all shorten afternoon, it becomes Arvo. I I just, yeah. Well, firstly, that absolutely makes sense. Um, and it's because uh, I would say in Australia, every noun is our friend. Uh, like firstly, we, 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 we are calling them by their nickname. It's not McDonald's, it's Maccas. It's not the service station, it's the servo because they're our friends. You know what we're talking about, our mate, the servo, you know. <laughs> it's not so baby. Yeah, it, it's a little bit, but like ev everything cops it. Like, so it's ev every name. I'm, I'm just going through like the everyone I knew from my soccer teams back as a kid from from Muzza to, to, to Brazza and Brazzo and, and Brazzers. I went I, I played in a, a hardcore team. Uh, I, yeah that, I, that is horrifying. That that like my my last name was one shortened Shamso and my my last name is Shamsadine. So can you fucking imagine that? Like there is yeah there's a lot going and, and then there's chocolate is shortened chalky. It does sound like a nation of children. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I it's you're right in that it's kind of an anathema to Australianness because we do like it. It's the kind of thing that you would expect from a, a very fast-paced place, somewhere that like <laughs> we don't have time to say the whole word, but we absolutely have time to say the whole word, and we. <laughs> take our time saying the words that we're shortening. So, like, it might be Arvo is much shorter than afternoon, but we'll say Arvo and really take our time so there, there's no there's no time-saving factor to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, – I refuse to call McDonald's Maccas. Like, I'm not going to – no. You, you all can have that forever. I've taken on a lot of other words. Like, I no longer say bell pepper. I say – capsicum and thing and i don't say gas station i do say servo so you it's infiltrated my brain like a disease i found so um from everyone on the other side of this we like you play translation bingo essentially whenever you're cooking any recipe uh how how difficult was like it's it's weird to say this coming from america but how was the language barrier for you well, some of the things I would easily get confused with, like coriander is our, I think it's our parsley, and you all refuse to fucking say anything but coriander. Um, and doing the recipes and cooking, because I do cook like as a hobby, it wasn't that difficult. It was always kind of funny because I'd read a recipe and I'm like, this reads like someone is making 
random noises for no apparent reason. <laughs> what would what do you think was overall the hardest part of the early transition here? Um, being treated like an American and not even in a negative way. I wouldn't mind being treated like an like oh fuck I hate you people kind of thing. No, it was always like oh my god, like welcome to our land kind of experience. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I would go somewhere and I would try to avoid talking as much as possible because then I would be hounded by people going, oh, how is it? They think it's like in the movies, like we're living a lavish lifestyle in California and, and sipping margaritas and just, oh, I would love to go to America. It would be so amazing. I'm like, dude, no, you would not. You would absolutely fucking hate it there. It, it, traveling to the U.S. is fun. Don't get me wrong. Living there is a different kind of nightmare. And I think a lot of Australians feel like it's, like the movies because you all love watching american stuff like yeah. constantly <laughs> well is there an equivalent of like let's say sydney was picked up by a helicopter and moved to the united states where where would like and i'm talking purely on vibes where would sydney be what state do you feel like the this city belongs to Honestly, I, I would say, and this is an, an, an insulting way, it's very Dallas in a lot of places. And Dallas has changed a lot. Um, I, you all even have cowboys. You, you have Australians who dress like full-on cowboys, which is pretty, that was a, that was a huge shock to me because I'm, despite being anti-American, I, I have a lot of love for where I come from and, and from Fort Worth and seeing that was kind of jarring. I'm like, what, the, that's, that's our thing. That's stolen Texas valor. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm deeply invested in Fort Worth because you have my favorite named sporting team in the world, the Fort Worth Mad Ants. I have a lot of Fort Worth Mad Ants uh, uh, here in my home. That's incredible. One of the other things that uh, that troubled me, or not, it's not troubled me, about um, about Australia in general was y'all. Y'all had, I'm keeping it on the language issue. Another word that was, that really just stunned me was Suki Lala. That one, I, <laughs> I actually got, I, I didn't, I hate that word, that phrase so much. I, I don't, it makes me like hurt. And it, it it's like the word moist. Whenever I hear that, I'm like, ugh. If I, if I may, you're being an absolute Suki Lala about it. <laughs> you need to tell people what this means. <laughs> Can, can we let's do some diagnosis here when did you first come across the phrase Sukilala? within the first week i was in australia <laughs> i'm not even kidding it was somebody telling telling their kid they were being one and i i stopped and was like what the fuck is that when you what are did you just say gibberish like what <laughs> that's incredible because uh, it's a phrase that like Doug Wright, the second you said it, it was one of those, like, if it's a film, I'd have a flash to every time a parent is calling you one and you're being dragged back into the car or whatever from where you're throwing a tantrum. I, I both, like, am, am shocked that it is still around, but also... Yeah. It feels it. It feels universal to me. I would have assumed every culture had suki la la. It is like it's like the tenets of music or mathematics. It just appears everywhere. There are always suki la las. You need to tell them what it means, though, because at this point, if you're not an Australian, you are like, "What in the hell is this weird, fucked up thing you just said?" <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> a suki la la is someone having a sook. It's someone having a whinge. So if you are if you are uh, crying, if you are making a fun, it's particularly children, but it's also devastatingly used against the boys or the fellas at the pub or whatever. <laughs> like there was there was this certain period where, and I think like this is not just Australia, but like just growing up, that everyone went from like primary school kind of you know oh you're gonna have a cry about it to like trying to intellectualize their insults you can see this online a lot of like the uh, you have the perspicacity of a blah, 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 blah. and then we got a couple of years on and went no it's actually much better to say what are you gonna have a cry about it <laughs> that is the more devastating yeah. insult and suki lala is a fantastic example of that i honestly think there would be a lot of political capital in bringing back the term suki lala <laughs> I can't think of a Texan version of that because, yeah, like you said, it means like a whiny baby. That's what we would say. You're a big old whiny baby. The only other yeah. weird insult I can think of that's because I, I feel like there's also a, a threat of you're being an idiot to it as well. And so the only other word I can think of that might be weird is calling someone a dip. You're being a fucking dip right now. That means you're being an idiot. Yeah, no, that wouldn't that wouldn't work well here because dips are delicious. <laughs> it's, it's a very good thing to be. Yeah, I think I think we need to get into that at some point about how weird y'all's food is. Cheezels, twisties. Like we have and then oh don't even get me started on the names of Pringles Spag Ball. What in the gut no. <laughs> well, it feels like we've got a whole season planned out here. <laughs> um, here's here's something I want to talk about. How much have you found uh difference in mentality and particularly what what i'm thinking about here is um i would say the kindest way i could put it is americans are much more forthright in that i remember yeah. the, the first time i came back from america there was an american on the flight with me and as we we're at the baggage carousel he came up and started a conversation with me and i felt almost obliged to go i'm so sorry mate we don't do that here we do not just <laughs> yeah. Don't talk to me, of course. No, we're, we're on separate journeys in this life. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I agree with that completely. I think it is because I'm the type that likes to talk to random people if I'm having to stand around for a very long time or I'll make jokes. And you all, you all, are, Australians are very chill. Don't get me wrong, but you're, uh, you nailed it. I, it felt like the air was sucked out of the room when I tended to do that because everyone's just like, I have no time. It's the Arvo and I'm going to get my Avo and I'm on the way to the Servo and I don't have time to talk to you right now. Have you embraced any of these? Are there any of those short heads that you've caught yourself <laughs> saying now, like even in spite of yourself? <laughs> yeah, Servo. I say that all the time because it would be really weird for me to go, I'm going to go to the gas station. <laughs> and even then we didn't at back home. I, I would never say gas station unless I didn't know where I was going. I'd say I'm going to 7-Eleven or the QT or whatever. We'd call it usually by where we're going. Um, uh, but yeah, I say Servo. And I, I do not say Avo. I'm not, that, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> you say you say by the sunset <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is this is uh, i think another big cultural change is swearing and i hear this comes up a lot oh, which yeah. is strange to me because americans like my opinion of american which is a pop culture opinion but you guys swear plenty but yeah. it feels like an, an australian swear to my reckoning is more a casual it's just part of the stream whereas yeah. like Amer if americans say it they mean it as the harshest thing whereas for us it's more of a comma 
Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I love cussing, but I didn't cuss as much as I do now um, until I moved to Australia. I, that's And then the big word that I never used until I came to Australia, I'm sure you can guess it. It's cunt. I never called anyone a cunt because in the U.S., if you call someone that, that is like you have reached the depths that no other person should be reaching. There, I, I remember in class, we were reading a book or somebody was reading a book that was called that. And it was a big thing. Oh my God, the C word. Now here, everybody's a cunt. Your mom could be a cunt. The, the word is just like everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's like the, the classic Australianism on this point is that your good mates are cunts and mate <laughs> is one of the worst things you can say about someone. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know the Americans were so adverse to it and found out on a open mic in the US. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Ooh, you're talking about the oxygen coming out of a room. Ooh. Yeah, and, and there are actually layers to the word cunt. There are different ways to use it. Oh, he's a, he's a um, what's it called? Like a good cunt. There's a bad, like a very sick a sick cunt. Yeah, like there's so many different come types on, of Come cunts. on, Rock, sick, not know, good. I know, you have, to, you have to give me a shot here, but there, there's, <laughs> there's so many layers to this damn word. You, depending on how it's used, it could be you're somebody really cool or you're a terrible human being who doesn't deserve to live. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although I feel like it's, it's strange, but we don't... I, do, I think it's more on the good side to the point that I don't think we swear particularly when someone is truly reprehensible. If someone's like my taking my father as an example, the worst thing someone could be is stupid. Don't be stupid. You know, that's that's the worst. Oh, it's stupid. That's the worst term. He'll call someone a fucker in a heartbeat. But to be stupid. Woo. You hold that. One back. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's so true. You are all very creative uh with your insults i i i don't know i just i i was never used to that we do have a lot of, of funny phrases and words i guess but that you all have like a phrase that i can think that's not an insult is bloody oath which is like oh yeah that's true so you're swearing an oath and it's so true that it's bloody <laughs> like that's or bludgers that one is a fun one to know because everybody in the media uses that a dull bludger um so it's like a well basically the american version of a welfare queen that was that was fun to learn um so yeah there's like and then oh one, what was one that one of my friends taught me dag i don't know if that's a common one but it means someone who's like geeky or something do you know where dag comes from oh god I'm afraid to ask. no you have to tell me so a dag so he, here's another example. so dag is fairly soft like you you're a dag you you know you're you're dressed a bit like you know your your style's a bit past you know you're a bit of a dag <laughs> what a dag is is um the bits of shit caught in a sheep's fur around its oh, ass God. in a sheep's wool around its ass <laughs> i just uh, why <laughs> <laughs> if someone called me that, I would not assume, knowing where it comes from, that it had anything to do with being an <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it comes across much worse if you're like, like, oh, you've got your shirt tucked in. You're a bit of the shit caked into <laughs> wool on the back of a sheep. Oh, my God, that is fucking... Oh, what about Drongo? That's another good one. So Drongo is great, but Drongo 
to my reckoning, isn't really used that often. Like, yeah. it's slightly, it's, so here's something that you might have dealt with a lot, which is that when talking to an American, every Australian gets about 25% more Australian. That, yeah. like, we will pull out, like, bloody oath is something that, you know, maybe you would say five times in your life. But yeah. if there's an American around, oh, bloody oath, everything's fucking corporate. You know, like, all right, cop, I get on over it. You know, we, we just play it up a lot. Like, we, we do perform for Americans, I think. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's much any other nation. I think it's specifically Americans we perform for. Oh, absolutely. You all, there's even um, a steakhouse in, uh, in, in, like, not, it's around, I don't know where it is in Sydney, but it's in Sydney. And it's, built around the theme of the south and texas and the menu i i I wish i can remember it but it was so fucking awful it was offensive because of how hard they were like they're like how do y'all come join like it was like what what australian would ever say these words let alone an american living in texas that would say anything remotely similar to what you're saying and then they would spit peanuts on the floor which i i just sorry i have to stand up for my countrymen here because (laughs) if the people from the land of the Outback Steakhouse are worried about our cultural appropriation here. Like, f- frankly, you, you, the Outback Steakhouse, what I know of this is your big selling point is a blooming onion, which in Australian parlance, the closest we get to us is us saying fucking onion. Like, that's what that means. I'd be like, did you see Tony Abbott ate a fucking onion? You would say, that's a blooming onion. Like, that's... Yeah, I, I, never... I have no idea what that cuisine is, and I never want to find out. Well, I, I've I've never eaten at any such establishment in my life, um, and it, it's I, I'm actually offended on your behalf. A bloomin' onion is apparently a fucking onion that's fried after it's been cut up a certain way. So it's just it's basically a big old a big old onion made out like an onion ring. That's what it is. And I we used to there's so many Americans. I don't I'm sure not as many as they did earlier that used to think you all said you know put some shrimp on the Barbie. The, the commercials for, for that restaurant were fucking hilarious. You all don't say shrimp. You say fawn. So yeah. but you do have a lot of Barbies. You do. You all love barbecue. I, I can recommend uh, a uniquely Australian steakhouse for you. Uh, I, I wonder if you've heard of this at all, which is the Hog's Breath Cafe. I have not. The Hog's Breath Cafe is uh, – it. do you know what? I – this is the thing, really thinking about this, the the part that um, tips it over the line is cafe. Cafe is <laughs> far too, far too lovely a term for a hog's breath. Like. Oh man, the, the way y'all do these restaurants, it's the Americanization of certain restaurants in Australia and Sydney is almost offensive like they everything american is like we have five patties of beef and 10 pounds of cheese like okay we get it we're horrible fucking people who eat garbage (laughs) we went to the states at the end of our honeymoon and i had to be told that uh very explicitly and multiple times not every meal is a challenge they're not not putting this in front of you to see if you can eat it and then you win something it's just too much food for a human being to eat (laughs) Yeah, it's not. It, it really isn't normal. I I lost so much weight after moving here because not everything, like you said, was a big old buffet. It's like whenever they call something a big uh, brekkie here, it's like a normal human amount of food. It, it is like 
I'm I'm not that compa- like the American meal would be your big brekkie. That is like the normal American meal. So like ten sausages, four eggs, a whole <laughs> loaf of bread, <laughs> like a, a ton of butter. <laughs> I I had a actual visceral reaction to that because I always think of the big brekkie as a real like the big brekkie is a hug over institution but it's a real like I'm already going to feel like shit today I'm going to have this and then I'm going to lie on the couch knowing that I have enough sustenance to get me through the next day and a half and I only need to turn over to vomit basically yeah that's a normal diner breakfast honestly if you've been to a diner they're like here's the big stack of pancakes and usually a stack over here is like Two pancakes for like $20. In the US, it's like, okay, give me $5 and I will literally make every pancake possible out of this jug that's been sitting in the back of the diner for like two days. So my big thing of going over to the States was I wanted to try the food. I was huge on the candies. I wanted to try every, like, oh, I to translate that for you, but I wanted to try every lolly that I had heard about on um, on television. I wanted the Twizzlers. I wanted all these things. They're all absolute shit. You can't make a candy. Oh, yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah, um, you also can't make coffee. So No. Absolutely not. But um, was there anything here that when you came over, you're like, I'm trying this. This ha- this is first on my palate. Like, I know we force feed you Vegemite, but was oh, there yeah. anything that you want to try? Yeah, I hate Vegemite, by the way. Fuck every person who likes that stuff. It is the most disgusting garbage. And everyone I talk to is like, no, you're eating it wrong. If there is a food that requires a certain method in which I have to consume it in order for it to be palatable, I refuse to consume it. It is not going to happen. So, so like, um, like sexuality, Vegemite expri- exists on a spectrum. So, like, uh, this, and it's a regular, like, this is maybe, this is the real cultural point for Australians and a massive, like, the debate that everyone here has an opinion on. And even in our household, it is a regular, like, probably the thing Miranda and I argue about most is what is the appropriate amount of Vegemite? Because I want to smear. I want a good hug. I want to, I want to burn a little bit when I bite into <laughs> it. Whereas Miranda is more, uh, she she wants butter on toast that has met Vegemite once in a party and will probably <laughs> remember him if it was brought up, but doesn't really know them that well. Yeah, no, so you're a freak. You're There's something absolutely wrong with you and Miranda needs to know that immediately before this continues any further. I am glad, <laughs> I, I, I'm willing to be the father in this situation to take this kid away from the Vegemite. My sister likes Vegemite. I'm, I'm going to be sending her a gift box soon and she wants that. So I I'm unfortunately have to be giving my money to big Vegemite <laughs> in order to do this. But the, I'll, I'll tell you something, the candy in Australia is great. Um, food here is different and anyone who says otherwise is lying. Like when I tried a Sprite in Australia for the first time, it was different than the Sprite in the U.S. I think, Ooh, that's Sprite, interesting. yeah, I think our Sprite is better probably because it has things in it that will give you cancer. So like whenever you all have, um, Fruit Loops and there isn't, uh, the dye red Fruit Loop, there's different colors because there are different, um, I guess it's the TGA that controls what kind of, of things we can consume or whatever. And so they have things in there that won't kill you like they do in the U.S. In the U.S., it's just like here is um, pig anuses that we for some reason put into this box of cereal, just so you know. Um, but Violet Crumble was one of the best candies I tried here. And Golden Gay Time was the best ice cream I've tried here. So Golden Gay Time is the best ice cream. You will not be beating a Golden Gay Time at yeah. any point. I, I, and I love the name. Who doesn't want to have a gay time with food? I mean, come mm-hmm. on. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And also a, a wonderful lesson of how nationalism works because I found out three seconds ago that Sprite is different. And as soon as you said Sprite is better in the US, I went, fuck you. No, it isn't. And they're like, how do I know that? I have no idea. I have barely tried Sprite here, let alone over there. No, but I will tell you, uh, though, when it comes to things like uh, coffee, you all know your coffee. Uh, American coffee is the most revolting crap, but Starbucks in Australia is horrible, too. I don't like Starbucks. It's, like, very, very sweet. My theory is that, um, like, there's a running thing about there's, like, Australian cuisine as a meme of, like, we don't really have Australian cuisine. But I think we do. It's just breakfast cuisine. We absolutely <laughs> rock a brunch. We know how to cook for yeah. brunch. We have a very distinct brunch that has started to be exported around the world. But, like, I think Australian cuisine is breakfast food. Our, yeah. like, we don't really have a, like, here's our Australian dinner other than, you know, overcooked sausages on a barbecue. But, like, <laughs> breakfast is ours. We've got that down. Yeah, we, I, I completely we, agree. Like, I really do. Even I'm a vegan, so I don't – unfortunately, I can no longer give reviews on Australian barbecue, though – I think we can fight about who has better barbecue, the South in the U.S. or Australians. And, oh, you know what? Screw it. Let's talk about Mexican food in Australia. What in the god dang heck is about – what is wrong with you people? The most revolting food I've ever had in my life, mozzarella cheese on a taco that costs like $10. And it, it is genuinely – it's like – what can we do to offend not just Americans, but Mexicans? Like, stick it to them. The food is awful. You don't know what a burrito is. You don't know what a fajita is or a fajita, as one of my friends called it for the long <laughs> And And then there's the, the quesadilla, which my friend called a quasadillo whenever we went to the U.S. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I shouldn't have let him order, but I let him order at a at a mall in Texas. And he goes, can I have a... The <laughs> The he thought it was an animal. <laughs> God, it was so funny. We just sit there, me and the guy cooking kept laughing because I, oh God, you people are incredible. <laughs> uh, this was actually an argument I had last night when I was trying to talk Miranda into Mexican food. And she <laughs> just, she like acted disgusted. And then she was like, you understand Mexican food here is made for white people. And I was like, yes, <laughs> That's my people. That's, that's, that's <laughs> no, who I be, baby. No, no, no. I disagree with her. It's not even for white people. It's for people who just can't taste food, man. It's like, oh, so they literally put cheese into a tortilla that they got from Coles. Like the absolute worst thing I've ever eaten in my life. That actually sounded quite appealing when you were saying that just then. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rock, thank you so much for joining us and good luck on your cultural journey. <laughs> and come back again and we'll take you through more of our horrible, horrible nation. All right, until next time. Bye. That was Rock. I highly recommend her podcast, Elite Your Account. Really good listen, really sharp political analysis, which was betrayed by the level of stupid shit I asked her to talk about. I'm just going to pause here for a moment because here's my suspicion. We're in a very long show here, very long by design show. And I reckon some of the sneakier ones amongst you who aren't planning to listen to the show, but will listen to the start and the end to see what's actually revealed there. 
aren't going to check this point of the show. This is just before our final conversation. This is our penultimate conversation, our, our penultimate link. And so here is where I'm actually going to thank you for listening to the show and say that um, if you have any thoughts or feedback, I'd love to hear it unless it's negative. Uh, but I would like to hear what you think of the show. Uh, as previously discussed, I will disregard it if I don't care for it. But, you know, I love hearing praise is what I'm asking for. Um, but honestly, thanks for sticking with this thing. I hope you've had as much fun as I clearly have doing this. As for when the next one will be out, it's an open question. But we have started interviewing guests for it. And it's already looking very good. So... I'm excited to bring it to you when it is ready and not a second sooner. Now, if you thought the first four hours of this thing were indulgent, we're finally getting to the only subject on God's green earth that I actually give a shit about. I'm talking about professional basketball. And I have brought along... Justin Hamilton, who is equally a basketball sicko. And we're talking about here the upcoming season. So we're at the time of release, about a month into the season now. And listening back to this conversation, it's odd how little has changed really. We're still kind of figuring out what's happening in it. Now, for those of you who aren't sickos don't worry there's the vast majority of this conversation is about why is this game so fascinating to us why is it so hypnotic why has it drawn us in and trying to pull apart the soap opera element of sport particularly american sport we get into some of our sicko talk later on in the conversation which, look, I will finally give you permission to exit out of the show if that is not your thing because you have done your due duty at that point. But we also do make an effort to make sure you can follow what we're talking about. And it's good drama. It's a good uh, good time to get on board, as I mentioned at the top of this interview. Always a good time to get on board the NBA. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, even if you aren't a basketball fan at all. Because I always find for myself, it's interesting to listen to people who are passionate about a thing, even if I'm not necessarily passionate about it myself. I can listen to people talk about billiards or their watch collection or whatever. It's listening to someone care about something that's interesting to me. Is that interesting to you? Don't answer. Can't hear you. Don't care what you have to say. But if I did, that would be a great answer. So here is Justin Hamilton. He and I are going to talk about basketball in a conversation that was supposed to go for 15 minutes and is probably closer to 40. Enjoy. So this is an amazing time in US sports. It's maybe one of my favorite points of the year because you have 
a whole lot of just stuff going on. I am a bulk sports consumer. I like to obsess over a lot of them. We have uh, right now, baseball is leading up to its World Series. The NFL is just happening. Hockey has just started, which uh, of these, I'm, I'm into... I'm into the NFL. I kind of am across the others in a way that you can flick a channel on a Sunday and be like, okay, great. But yeah. my obsession is basketball. And Justin yes. Hamilton, your obsession is also basketball. And yes. what we have discovered through our chats when we should have been doing actual work backstage at Question <laughs> Everything is that we both love this for the same reason, which is the drama and the storylines. Oh, the drama is delicious and it is even in the off season it is compelling and i am i'm addicted i listen to podcasts uh 12 months of the year about Mm it i get frustrated there's like there's a a week in august where nothing is happening (laughs) like it's literally one week it's after the uh the uh the the rookies coming through Mm -hmm. and the draft and and it's just before uh, you know they start to finalize teams and and that week is murder (laughs) so depressed it's like come on someone do something that's why i've been wrapped with built uh with uh, ben simmons because it's like, oh, that drama's been going for a while. So that's kept me bubbling along nicely. It absolutely So I think we're trying to get to this, like why why basketball is so good for this. And I think partly mm. it's because there are so few players that matter. Like um, mm. every other sport, you, you follow soccer or you follow NRL or any of these things. You need to know about 15, 20 guys at any one time just to follow your team basketball you really need to know five guys of which two to maybe three of them matter and you can really then obsess with every element of that person's life yes yes and uh, also uh it's not like uh from a sport point of view uh the stars they have to play offense and defense so it is Mm -hmm. It's not like just one side of the game. They're constantly in motion on the court. They're identifiable. It's a, it's a good uh, TV sport because you're mm. up near the court so you can see everyone. You're absolutely correct. There's only a couple of players that really matter. So that means you can follow like another team and still have a bit of a sense of what's going on with them because you're across their one or two st- uh, stars that they have. But also then when you start to really... Uh, really concentrate on a team you can you can find the ones that you love a little bit more than everyone else so when the golden state warriors were having that great run sean livingston he was my guy Mm -hmm. i love sean livingston because of the whole story of looks like he's going to be a star did his knee took years to come back from it looked like he was never going to find a place found a place so when he came on the court, I was even more wrapped, you know. So I, I think you're completely correct in that uh, uh, breakdown of why it works so well. Yeah, I, so I was trying to get into hockey, and I've tried this a couple yes. of times. And I've never quite made it, and it's because, like, <laughs> it's so hard for me to tell who is who. And then, yeah. so my working knowledge of how hockey is, like so many amateurs in this, is the Mighty Ducks. And yeah. <laughs> I, I forgot the entire element that when the camera, like, pans to the left, half your yeah. team will change all of their guns. So you come back right. and there's a whole new collection of guys on the court and nothing else yep. has stopped, which is, I'm sure if you love ho- hockey, is very impressive and very important. And I have no idea what was happening. So it was almost like a prank was being played on me when I was trying to follow just <laughs> anyone I could ca- latch onto as, yeah, that's going to be my favorite player. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's so true. It's like, hang on a sec, where'd the rest of the team go? You know, I I didn't really understand uh, the appeal of ice hockey until uh, I went and saw it live. And once I saw it live, I felt like it was a better live sport because mm. then you can kind of see uh, the people uh, coming off the ice, coming on the ice. And then when they come onto the ice, it's like... Like they come on at three at a time, and it's like the Tie Fighters coming in to take out Luke <laughs> at the end of Star Wars. It's like really thrilling. But as a as a as a TV sport, it's a little bit better with high definition yeah. uh, television. Because back in the old days, it was like, why are they playing with nothing? That is, do you know, honestly. So, um, Seattle got a team this year, and I was like, great, I like Seattle teams. I'm gonna follow that. That can be my team, and I I could see the puck, and I was like, this is so yes. much easier. Yeah, it makes a real difference, right? But back in the day, it was like, oh, why are these people aggressively sweeping eyes? <laughs> and the other thing that's great, like to bring us back to basketball, basketball yep. is a great television sport because mm. it's designed to be a great television sport. So, like, yep. this is uh, uh, just to tell a bit of a law for anyone who doesn't know this basketball in its early days was dying and it couldn't make mm. primetime radio for the finals and it's because yeah. a team called the spurs who exist in some form the, to these days but this team found out this great trick which is kind of brilliant which is let's say you are a, a, like you're on 16 points the other team is on 10 points if you yeah. just hold the ball and never give it to them until the game ends, you're going to win that game. And yes. so they just kept the ball and they stopped, like they killed multiple years of competition just by getting yes. a small lead and then just never giving the ball back and never trying to score, never doing anything with it. And then it wasn't until a fan of the game said, well, I like games that get about 80 points each. That's my favorite kind of game. And to get 80 points each, you need to put out about 120 shots. So if the game's yep. 48 minutes, 120, we're going to divide those two. We're going to get 24 seconds. Every 24 seconds, someone has to take a shot. And this is yep. where the shot clock comes from now. So it means that when you're tuning in, every 24 seconds, something has to happen. It's not like yes. one of these you're watching... Like, I try and, like, call in Miranda when the half an hour of really interesting test cricket every year is happening. Be like, this is it. Come in. You have to see it. This is the moment. <laughs> but otherwise, there's hours that's compelling to me but means nothing to anyone else. Right. She can watch basketball because there's at least yeah. something going on all the time. Yes, yes. That's so fascinating, isn't it? The That story about just... Like, could you imagine watching that game? Yeah. Like, they're just sitting on the ball and you're like, what, like, what is happening here? Uh, basketball's always been very good at, uh, you know, when it advances, it always does a really good job of finding ways to fix anything that it goes into a cul-de-sac that stops it from being mm. fun. So remember when uh, the defences in the 90s and early 2000s just became so complex and so tough and so hard to beat. And uh, the NBA never forgot that it's entertainment. And it just went and said, well, you know what we'll do? We'll just change a couple of rules. And then, bingo, games sped up, scores are back up. And it's, you know, like you still have the traditionalists who get upset about it. But I'll be honest, like I'll like my big statement for this podcast is I think Steph Curry's the second most important player since Jordan mm. because of the way he's changed the angles and the the speed of the game. That's so much like it is a um it's got geometry is a factor so much more. And I think you're saying that, like I think you're entirely right because there are very few moments following any sport 
there are very few moments where someone fundamentally finds a new way to play. Like, to put it in terms for, for like, let's say soccer, you suddenly have a player who can consistently score from the halfway line. And then the way you have to mark everyone from then on changes. And because everyone has to move up to the halfway line, there's space everywhere else for all the normal players to score their more traditional goal. But it just opens the game up and it makes it more fun. And it's also like circus stuff is the other remarkable thing. It's amazing. Like there is a lot of this stuff that becomes routine because you're used to looking at it be like, this is a ama- this is thro- like in the very simplest term throwing a ball through a hoop from very yeah. very far away while someone else who is probably about 7 feet is professionally employed to stop you from doing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Like it's really exciting and it it goes back, you know, like they changed the uh uh, they introduced a 24-second clock to speed it up. They made the key wider when uh, uh, Wilt Chamberlain came mm. into the league. Uh, then they got away. Got, uh, they introduced goaltending to stop people from smacking the ball away before it could get in the ring. You know, in the early 80s, they go, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to introduce a three-point line, which then spread everything out again. And it takes a while for these things to be uh, adopted into the game plan. But it's always it's always evolving but it never gets to a point where it's not basketball. Do you have in your back pocket a, if you could put the, they come to you, they say, Justin, we are looking to revolutionize the game once more. We need a new rule or we need a new interpretation. How are you going to transform the game of basketball? Oh my God, that is such a good question. I don't really, you know, you know what I would actually do? This is probably a little bit boring. Um, but I would give uh, each team only one opportunity to question a call in a half. Yep. That would be my thing. Uh, I think the big flaw that basketball has at the moment is that uh, all the... And I also believe that what the umpire calls, unless it's like, you know, checking to see if a, a shot went... Uh, went in after the clock ran Mm -hmm. out, stuff like that. Otherwise, whatever the umpire calls, I think you have to take into account human mistakes at some point because we accept human mistakes from players missing shots or or losing their dribble. So I would... Uh, the big flaw is that the last five minutes of a game can take half an hour and it's like, fuck, you know, like what is happening here? So the, the only sport that has really nailed technology in my opinion is tennis yes and it's and and it's fun for the crowd as well it's the whole yeah it's the most exciting part of the time and then when it's really close it's uh, it's fantastic tennis reviews yeah yeah Yeah, they've nailed it so i would i would have one review for each half Uh, but otherwise i think the sport is in a in a really good place and they've they've introduced a new rule that we haven't seen yet but we'll see soon which is uh, stopping guards from dribbling backwards into players who are running forward <laughs> and getting a foul because too many free throws is a, is a killer as mm-hmm. well. But otherwise, I think the sport's in a in a really good shape, and I, I, there's good coaches like Spolster and that who you know mix things up with zones, etc. I, I like having zones in and uh, seeing the the texture of the game change like that. There was one. Um fascinating thing so i think like one of my rules personally i believe every sport could be improved with a short multi-ball period in any game <laughs> i think particular like 
great in basketball, but amazing in soccer, incredible in test cricket. Okay. Oh, yeah. Jesus. You get two overs. We're bowling at both ends at the same time, yeah. try and survive. Fascinating yeah. to watch. That I would call Miranda oh. in. Here's the half hour. That's oh. great. Yeah, yeah. Like, imagine that. Like, it's because, like, one batsman is trying to run a single, but the other batsman <laughs> is trying to defend a yeah. bounce. Like, that's great. No, no, you've sold me. I mean, <laughs> a multi-ball uh, moment in basketball would be fun too. It's, it's got to be like, it's a minute. Yeah. Like you've got one it's minute. one minute. Like and, pinball. And it changes the tactics because like both teams have it as well. So when do you call mm. yours? And, yeah. and like, presumably you're both inbounding. Like, there's going to be moments where two people take shots at the same time. It's it's going to change the whole game, frankly. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, the other one I would love, so we're just coming off, um, to get us onto the storylines, we're just coming off a season that had mm. one of the great storylines, which is um, uh, the player Giannis Antetokounmpo, known as the Greek Freak, uh, who... Uh, was this find from from Greece came over to a team called the Milwaukee Bucks who have never been who haven't been successful in about forty years the seventies they haven't been fifty years so yeah what did they uh, Kareem and uh, Oscar Robertson won the championship in seventy one yes I it? think so and then yeah. Kareem mo- moves over to Los Angeles so like yeah they um they've been a long time and and. This is one of the players, like, uh, the, the thing about Giannis is one of the most lovable players in the world yeah. and yeah. Um, just an athletic freak, like, purely, like, amazing to the point that, like, even for people who watch basketball all the time, it's like suddenly there was, like, Mr. Fantastic from the Fantastic Four is there oh, yeah. and could actually yeah. stretch in ways that you didn't know the human body could move. Well, in the finals, he hyperextended his knee and kept playing, and it was like... I felt like I did an injury on the lounge watching yeah. him do that, but he kept playing. It was full on. It was incredible. But the the thing, one of the joyous storylines about this is his weakness was free throw shots. And now yes. free throw shots, even when you care a lot about the game and you understand their fundamental importance, are boring as hell. But right. because he was so in his head about them, he would take a very, very long time to shoot these shots. And the crowd would count and it wouldn't be a fair count it would be quite a quick count because you are supposed to have 10 seconds and they would get a lot of joy 10 11 12 13 14 15 (laughs) and it really like it made me wish like i wish we had at least one little chant for every person going up to the line from now on i want everyone to be like the idea of just that it's known as like the loneliest place on court. I want that to be like a proper psychological moment. It feels like, oh, yeah. like it should feel like the first ball of the ashes. Anytime you're there, that you're really right. in it right now. What would, what would be a, a chant that you would have for a player to put them off? Oh, oh, I, I've got one that, and it's, and it kind of hurts me because I love him, but for Steph Curry, I'd have the crowd going, your mom's harder than your wife. Like, <laughs> his mum is beautiful and single. <laughs> uh, I I feel like the the very I I'm still bitter over my favorite player James Harden um right leaving yeah uh like leaving our team to go to Brooklyn who are yep. currently a super team so I feel whenever he would get 
onto their free throw line. I would like something along the lines of, you've got two shots, Kyrie's got none. Right. <laughs> yes, great. Great. A little Andy Vax uh, uh, chart. That is fantastic. <laughs> With Harden, you could, there's a lot of places you could go as well. Your favourite strip shop closed, you know. Didn't he have the strip uh, the strippers place that retired his jersey? Oh, yeah. That was so famously he would be, there would be some photos of him partying till 3am. And usually when you're a fan of a sports team and you see those pictures of like your favourite player is out till 3am, you're like, oh, this is a very, very bad side. It would almost exclusively mean he was going to drop 40 points in the next game. Yeah. Like, it was, yeah. you were worried when he got a good night's sleep. Whatever's going on with his internal chemistry thrives on this situation. He's the most uh, like Michael Jordan than any player, and that's more his all-night all stamina. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to ask, coming into this season... Mm. What are your favorite storylines? So I, I'm pitching this particularly as if this is your first time to get into basketball, 75th season, always a good time to get in, which is what we usually say about Survivor, even 41 yeah. seasons in. Like, it's always a good time. Great time to enter <laughs> yeah. Survivor. It is, it is a great time to get into basketball, 75 seasons in. You don't need to watch the past ones. We'll catch you up. But yeah. what storylines are, are you most excited about for this year? All right. There's there's a lot. Um, so I think there's the obvious one in the Ben Simmons Philadelphia drama. Uh, for anyone who hasn't followed it, Ben Simmons is an Australian basketballer who plays for the Philadelphia 76ers. He had a kind of meltdown uh, emotionally in the mm. last finals that he played in a series that his team should have won. He was just not there in the last quarter for each game. He had just kind of checked out. We've seen it happen with all players. They have these mental blocks at some point. But he decided and his management decided that he did not want to go back to Philadelphia even though he had another four seasons left mm -hmm. on his contract. And so he held out. And there was it's the first time that we've seen a, a star player hold out from his team and the team did not blink. And he just started to lose money. And now he's gone back to the team. Philadelphia, a notoriously tough town if the fans turn on you they turn I think he can win them back I think if he goes out and plays that first game and he gets booed all he needs to do is drill a three-pointer yes yeah absolutely I like I'm highly of the opinion that he should not do anything but shoot threes he should consider himself yes. Seth Curry for this entire run and only yes. hit threes but you're right I'm I'm fascinated I'm fascinated by this because this is a town that is most famous for booing Santa Claus. Like they, <laughs> it's insane. They, like they're not they're not a forgiving a forgiving sporting town. <laughs> I don't think no, Santa did anything to them. They just no. didn't want to see him. And yeah, and so I I love this as well because there is a lot of there is a lot of internal drama here. Every so you see these clashes in teams and they usually move people on, but not usually with this much time on their contract and not usually with team members just openly throwing each other under the bus the way they are right. here. Like yeah. this is in pure drama terms, this is some messy shit, this one. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's full on. He was, uh, you know, I like their coach, Doc Rivers, and, uh, you know, I like Joel Embiid. I find him to be immensely entertaining. Mm. But both of them threw him under the <laughs> bus in the, at the end of the finals. You know, Doc Rivers, when he was asked, can Ben Simmons be the point guard on a championship team? And the correct answer is... It's too soon to be talking about this kind of stuff. He's a great player. We've just finished the finals. We've lost. We're going to have some time to just re, you know, recoup and yeah. get back on with that. But instead, he was just like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was brutal. You know, no wonder he felt, you know, unloved from the whole situation. So... It, you know, if he stays, that's fascinating. Like, mm. there's uh, there's a couple of teams that I wouldn't mind seeing him on. I think he'd be interesting at Portland. But would Portland have to give up too much to, you know, get him and therefore not be, uh, you know, still be a middling team? I Look, I love Draymond Green, but Draymond's comments about the coach and uh, the ownership uh, in his interview with Kevin Durant and... You know, what about a Draymond Ben Simmons <laughs> straight up swap? That would be fascinating. That that would be, uh, <laughs> and also it's going from someone who can't shoot to someone who just doesn't feel the need to at any point. But it works for right. him. He's made it his yeah. thing. Um, I also love part of this drama. So, like, we had Media Week, which is uh, yeah. a fantastic time in the NBA because what happened in the seventy sixes here is management would each night make smooth things over and say, look, he's a great player. Here's our official statement. He's still part of this team. We want to see how this goes. And then someone will put a microphone in front of Joel Embiid the next day and it would blow up all over again. He would say, this guy sucks. (laughs) Yeah, he has no filter. (laughs) And then what this is also buried is the second fun storyline, which management of this team have also brought in a man who Joel Joel Embiid kind of ruined the career of. Andre Drummond, who he famously, like any time he would play, he would dominate dominate him and then put up Instagram pictures of it, including like setting his location as in your head or stuff like that. Like just like, this is a player who is famous for his trolling of other players. And if there was one man in the league, he owed it's now he's back up and we got wonderful again, basketball. You can obsess over every element of this. We got the moment that they met in the training room on camera where clearly Joel is not thrilled about Andre B. It's it's for TikTok fans. It is a couch guy moment of yeah. what's happening here. It is like purely you can get the micro expressions going on. You're like, oh, you. This is not the best day of your life by any means. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Like he did ruin that guy. Like Andre Drummond was a pretty serviceable st- uh, center. Mm. You know, like a really like solid and dependable. And he just took a battering from his uh, matchups with Embiid and now that he's the backup is like what is going on with that team like do did we need more drama here well according to Philadelphia yes I think that's what they concern so you have teams in the league that need to win championships and you have teams mm. in the league that just need to fill hours on podcasts and I respect yeah. them for that they are going they're going drama heavy and I love it yeah what about uh, Brooklyn how are you feeling about the whole Kyrie uh, situation once again second example of management not blinking yeah exactly so Kyrie has uh 
has by all accounts seemed to not want to take his like to get vaccinated. So he was yeah. kind of he was kind of muddy about the whole thing and just staying away from the team. And then reporting from the athletic seems to show he is in no real surprise to anyone who has followed him, but he is anti-vax and does, has no intention of getting this vaccine. And this is like, so why this is particularly a problem from them is uh, that uh, Brooklyn requires players to be vaccinated to play. So you are, you'd have a player on your team then who cannot play their home games. The Brooklyn yeah. management said, just get out of here in general. We don't want you around. So now it's like, can you, can you convince your free spirit aunt of basketball <laughs> like right. can you convince your crystal loving aunt please just get the thing i i want you at christmas dinner i think you're yeah. fantastic to have around please yeah. just do this thing for us it's fascinating because like kevin durant moved there and one of the main reasons for going there was so he could play with Kyrie. Mm. And, you know, nobody wants to come out and criticise him. Everyone, like, player-wise, mm-hmm. everyone is, you know, treading very carefully about it and it's his own truth and he's got to do what he wants to do, etc. But the fact remains, um, you know, get vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can play basketball with your friends. The thing that's uh, fantastic, like the thing I love about this is there are a few players in the league who have done this. And like, the, so it's, it's quite a good analogy for Australia really, because the mm. league has an unbelievably high vaccination rate, but mm. the people pushing against that get a whole lot of airtime because it's a fascinating <laughs> story. And it yeah. particularly lands on Kyrie because Kyrie is the one that matters. Like right. he's the, he's the only player that really moves the needle for their team. Like um Andrew Wiggins, uh, Golden State yeah. Warriors, Andrew Wiggins held off getting vaccinated and the team were like, well, don't show up then. He's like, whoa, 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 no, no, I'll, I'll get it, I'll get it. I was just, I was just saying, you guys, you guys still want me, right? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> what was he doing? Like, what was the turnaround? It seemed like it was a story that he wasn't vaccinated, and then suddenly I read it was just very quiet. Oh no, 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 he's vaccinated now. Yeah, it was, it was that they started withholding checks, and he was like, yeah. well, no, I, I would like to still get paid, please. That would be yeah. very good. Yeah, it turns out money is pretty tasty, especially when it's millions of dollars that you're losing at any given point. Basketball has an almost wrestling, like WWE-style quality where players can return from injury and it's like they're playing their theme music and they come in and it changes everything. Like, there is a world where, you know, Kyrie sits out a lot of the year even, and then mm. when the chips are down, he shows up with a little band-aid on his arm being like, I'm, it's coursing through my veins, let's do this. You know, I'm not even a Kyrie fan, and I would love that. <laughs> I would be totally into that. But, you know, that Brooklyn team, I think doesn't really... Like, of course, it's not that they don't need him, but they'll survive without him, and probably for me, is uh, potentially still the favorite. Yeah, I think that that's the other part of it. It's like it's almost good to have this drama because otherwise, it feels like a, a near certainty. Like as much yeah. as it's never a certainty, like it feels like you have an overwhelmingly dominant force that can't get out of its own way, and that's great yeah. to me. Um, another yeah. another one, and perhaps they're they're the other favorite uh, that I'm enjoying for storylines is. The Lakers, which are going for the Space Cowboys, can we get all the oldest men and put them together and show the youngins one more time how it's done? 
It is, you know, I'm a Lakers uh, fan, have been a Lakers fan since I watched them lose 4-0 to Philadelphia back in uh, 1983 (laughs) and uh, then watched them lose to the Boston Celtics 4-3 and, uh, you know... In it's kind of embarrassing to admit because I was young and I didn't really understand geography or anything, but uh, I always looked at uh, the Lakers like they were like the Western Bulldogs of the <laughs> NBA. And it wasn't until much, much later, like way too long, when I realised, oh shit, they're Collingwood. They have been completely wrong about this. I think I had the same moment with that that I also had that I suddenly realised how rude the name Hot Lips was on MASH. I was way too old before I realised that as well. But so it's like, so I really like LeBron. I've always, uh, you know, he's remarkable. I think he's a, a, a remarkable man as well with all the stuff that he's done. Doesn't always get things right, but I don't think his intentions are ever, you know, awful. And he's remarkably like pretty, like for someone who has been on national media since age about 15, he has yeah. remarkably few public screw-ups. Like, even, and yes. even when it is, it's like, it's more of the cringe variety than the arrest yes. that man variety. Yes, the uh, you know the decision when he left uh, Cleveland to go to Miami, and he did that uh, special called the decision, and he got roasted for it, like absolutely roasted. And even though it was tone deaf, like that special still ro- uh, raised millions of dollars mm. for disadvantaged youths. So it was, and y- I'm thrilled that I've never put an hour of bad television to wear, but I can imagine it's really heartbreaking. <laughs> Oh, yeah, like, you know, I've, I've heard that it can happen, but uh, let's not talk about some of my Channel 10 exploits, but uh, yeah, no, but at the moment, it's, oh, James, it's doing my head in because never a Carmelo guy, he's on the team. Never a Dwight Howard guy, literally did not like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sports not like Dwight Howard, he's on the team. Holy shit, two players I have sports hated all my life. Rondo, already won a championship with him uh, two seasons ago. And Russell fucking Westbrook, like what is happening? Like it is, it's like an all-star team of all the people I didn't want all on my team. And now I'm rooting for them. I had a similar uh, event when my least favorite player at the time, Chris Paul, came to the Houston Rockets, and right. we came as as Rockets fans would say, we were a hamstring away from a championship. That yeah. we we had the drop on Golden State. We were probably winning the final. If you win the final, you win the championship that year. Uh, if you win the Western Conference Final, you win the championship that year. And he went down with a hamstring injury. And he played brilliantly all year. And when he yeah. went down, part of me was very disappointed. And part of me was like, yeah, proven right. <laughs> <laughs> if there's anyone I can blame this failure on. It's <laughs> yeah. When you, when you can feel comfortable in your spite and anger, it's, like, it's the only win you can take from a situation. Yeah, that was a yeah. Chris Paul is one of those ones as well. Like I, I'm waiting for him to sign up. You know, maybe, maybe that, two more hamstring tears in a couple more years, he'll sign up with us. But he annoyingly like, and I feel you're going to get the same moment. They win you over, and it's so annoying when a player you don't like wins you over. It's like when, like, I'm sure you have to say, like, when you realize a comedian you doesn't don't like that much is actually a great person, and you have to be like, ah, oh, fine. Yeah, that's so funny. You know, uh, I can actually tell you the the sportsman uh, who 
did that to me was when I was younger and was an avid follower of the NBL, Tony Ronaldson. Like <laughs> Tony Ronaldson was my bugbear. He always used to beat my team. And then one of my closest friends, uh, ex-basketballer Brett Wheeler, went and played basketball with him. And I met him and he was a delight. <laughs> what a nice man. Like just so sweet and fun and what a great guy. <laughs> It's like, damn it. I enjoyed not enjoying him. <laughs> um, I think it is a good sign of uh, my own obsession that this was supposed to be quite a short segment and we have pushed well, well, well beyond oh, one of them. Yeah. But can we get one more? What is your other big storyline oh, yeah. that you would like to follow this year? Okay. So uh, but just before we finish up on uh, – just to finish up on the Lakers, mm-hmm. um, I think – so what I'm kind of hoping is that Russell Westbrook during the season keeps us ticking up the wins. What because I think so. Yeah, you know, yeah. Let kind of kind of let him cook a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. and because he'll bring like he is an intense player and he brings passion all the time. Uh, you know, LeBron's in year 19 or whatever it is. So if we can get him to relax and rest a little bit during the season, not coast, but just not have as much on his shoulders, and then have him fresh for the finals i think that could work in our favor and that will definitely win me over what i'm very excited about for your team is um the lakers have some of the most fashionable players in the league but then also yes. lebron who's an absolute wild card <laughs> like yeah. like it's it's mostly like incredible to, but i think Westbrook will push him to just a couple of outrageous decisions that are that are well off base. Like like when he came looking very much like a soccer mum. Like those kind of choices. You know, a, a full suit but with little shorts. Like the kind of yes. choices that he makes once or twice a year could come up four or five times a year, and I'm very excited for that. Oh yeah, I'm excited for that as well. By the way, when you started mentioning his sometimes fashionable, uh, questionable, fashionable choices, I went straight to the shorts as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wrapped that you brought that up. Um, so I haven't told you the the number one story that is the story that I am all in on. This is the story that I'm the most excited for. Oh, hit me! It is. I am chomping at the bit. The return of Clay Thompson. I love Clay oh, yes. Thompson. I love Clay Thompson with a passion. The I love Steph. You know that Golden State team was one of my all-time favorite teams. Uh, the way they play together, it's not just the way they complement each other in their styles on the court. What I really love about them is they quite clearly have egos, but if the other one is on a roll. They're just as excited as if they're on the roll. Yeah. So if Clay is knocking him down, Steph Curry, one of the most important players in the last 20 years, he's getting the ball to Clay. He's just going to keep getting him the ball. He's going to keep getting him the ball. If he if Clay shoots more three pointers than Steph did in a game, Steph's celebrating as much as Clay and vice versa. I, so I love that symbiotic relationship. He makes me laugh. He's just a really funny guy. Oh. And I, you know, the last two seasons have been really disappointing to not have him on the court. And so uh, I was always a fan of his dad when he played for the Lakers. Mm -hmm. And I want to see him come back. And I just want to see that sweet shot raining down. I agree. He's like, he is one of the funniest people in the league. And one of those like just naturally brilliantly funny people. But I I agree. Like, like, so 
what I loved about that team, even when they were destroying some of my favorite Rockets teams I've ever seen, what I yeah. loved about that team was that they were having a lot of fun on court. And like yeah. you were talking about, like it wasn't just a, um, oh, well, I'm going to pass up this shot and give it to you because you're having a good night. It was like borderline video game playing disrespectful the way that oh, yeah. they would turn down just just open paths to the rim anything you want just to get the guy who has had 13 three-pointers and he's being guarded by four other players let him take yeah. another one yeah 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 they get him the ball and you know one of my happy places when i'm you know when you you know what it's like especially when you've been working in a studio and you get home you're kind of a bit wired but you're also tired as Mm -hmm. well one of my go-to's is game six of the Golden State Warriors versus uh, OKC where they had to win in 2016 to stay in the series and that's the one where Clay erupts for 11 three-pointers I honestly believe that that series that they lost to Toronto in the finals if Clay stays healthy I reckon they take out that finals I think Clay had uh, once Durant went down, I think Clay went straight back into his old role. Mm. And that game that he went down, he was already at 32 points in that game. You know, he was on fire. So I I want Golden State to be relevant. Like it's, a, I think it's good when the superstars of the league are on teams that are relevant. And uh, I want Clay to come back. I want to see, I want to see Steve Kerr strutting the line. I want to see yeah. the corpse of Andre Iguodala pull out a few <laughs> defensive moves here and there. Who knows what we're going to get with Draymond? Uh, I want to see Andrew Wiggins as a third option. I think he might be a perfect third option mm. and I'm really curious to see all these rookies that they have ready to go and not just because one of their names was Kaminga and it's just a name it's, that I want to say with excitement it is a lot of <laughs> I feel the same about uh Shengdu <laughs> you same, right? uh, no, so it's going to be a good season I reckon absolutely and do you have just quickly before we go and so we can all regret this in a few months who do you think will take it out Oh, good question. Um, okay, let's go with... I I reckon people are... I think people are disrespecting Milwaukee a little mm-hmm. bit. So I would like to see a Milwaukee-Lakers final. Oh, I would like to see that as well. Giannis will spend the whole time just trying to dunk on LeBron. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no matter absolutely. what else happens. Yeah, like, and I'll be barracking for the Lakers, but because LeBron, you know what it is? It's the it's the old chieftain warrior going up against the the new guy in town. Mm. He's already got a championship under his belt, so I think that's like narratively wise. That's super exciting. Yeah. But also, Lakers going up against um, uh, Brooklyn or Golden State going up against Brooklyn, like seeing Steph and, Dur- and Durant go up against each other. No, and knowing how weird Durant is about that kind of. Yep. Golden State time, like I would love nothing more than to see Steph and Clay lay the smack down. I, I'm I'm a boring old player that I want to see legends be legends, so I want to yeah. see LeBron get another ring. And I know, yeah. like I know that's that's a fairly boring answer. Like I would like to see the best player of the last twenty years be the best player again. But I would get a lot. I I feel like he will be shortchanged leaving his career with only four championships. Only yeah. four. Only four. Yeah. <laughs> only four. But, you know, like he, he cops a lot of shit for not having won uh, every time he's been in the finals. But a lot of the time, his team wasn't the best team. And also, he was in the finals for 10 years. Like, it's, yeah. it's not, I don't like the, like, I feel like 
a lot of these sports have a bad time of just saying era crossing. Well, you don't really yeah. do that in like, like particularly in Australian sports, we don't have a lot of that. We don't have a yeah. like, is, is, um, you know, Nathan Cleary better than Andrew Johns or, you know, right. is Michael Clark better than Steve? Well, we just like, this was a great team. This was a great team. This was a great team. Yeah. There's a lot more of like, it's not good enough for LeBron to be LeBron. He has to be better than Jordan. And like, yes. I feel that's an impossible ghost to chase, but also like, yeah he's had like just for career wise i could talk about this for 20 years this would be a yeah, this would be yeah. an hour long extra podcast yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. like, but but just for the sheer consistency like i i've realized i'm at the stage with him that you get with an like older relatives which is like you're watching me like i'm gonna miss you so much and i can't no, i don't want to yeah. agree i want to enjoy the time we have i don't want to grieve early but i'm gonna miss you so much <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm going to miss LeBron as well. I just, I know you got to go, but I'll give you a quick sliding doors moment. Mm-hmm. You know the, the probably the best game he's ever played, which was the losing game one of the finals against Golden State, <laughs> yes. where he just was unstoppable. If Cleveland that season trades J.R. Smith instead of Dwayne Wade, Wade is in that spot where J.R. got the rebound. Oh, oh, I like it. I like it a and, lot. And you know what Wade's doing? He's putting it up. Scoring the damn basketball. <laughs> he- it, it, it doesn't matter if he scores it. He puts it up. And because JR didn't shoot, that's what broke LeBron. Yeah. And he went backstage and then punched something and broke his head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least yeah. according to the official report. But that, yeah, yeah. That's, that's an incredible moment. Yeah, I, I think about that, uh, like, weirdly too much. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining me. We'll bring you back on to talk just more and more American sport because it's yes. it's so much of our obsession and we didn't even get you all the other codes we're obsessed with. So Hi. we'll be back. I am here and I'm ready to go whenever you need me. That was Justin Hamilton, who showed the big squid you can catch in your podcast app. You can catch it in your podcast app. You're not a child. You clearly know how to listen to a podcast, and therefore I am absolving myself of any further responsibility in teaching you how to find that show. That brings us to the end of this show, and traditionally, at this point, podcasts will ask you to rate and review Sure, I'm not going to do that. I don't think this is going to come out regularly enough for that really to be an issue for us. Uh, And also, it's not why we're doing this. What I will ask is, if you did enjoy the show, and frankly, you're five hours in, so if you're not, you're glutton for punishment. But if you did enjoy the show, or if you enjoyed one particular interview in the show, go message that person. It is so nice, no matter what level you're at, in comedy or in whatever endeavor you're on, it is so nice to just get a message saying, I listened to this thing you were on and I really enjoyed it. No one gets tired of hearing that. So I would say, if you've enjoyed this show, pick someone, pick two people, pick five people that you enjoyed hearing from in it. Let them know you enjoyed it. That also helps me because it lets me know what you like and won't really affect my decision of what to put in the next show, but it's good to know if I'm ignoring your opinion or if I'm doubling down on it. So, you know, all feedback's welcome. (laughs) 
I will also say at this point, thank you to Fraser Harvey and Aaron Dobas for our theme song, The Collie Project. Still not, still not super keen on the lyrics, but happy to have it all the same. You can actually catch our work together. We did a album called Rockin' the Boat with Rick Sexton, which you can find on Spotify. And not many people have. So if you find it on Spotify, you're really doing quite well. <laughs> I've enjoyed putting out this show. And I say that because it's not often, as I've talked about on here, often the process of making something is great stress to me. And I've enjoyed this. I like putting this together and piecing it together and having an excuse to talk to people whose opinions I really value about stuff we don't talk about much or just things that delight me. So I hope it's delighted you as much as it has delighted me. And until next time, remember, I don't have a sign-off for this show. Now, I don't intend to think of one because how old would that be? This is not the kind of show that has a sign-off. In fact, that's my sign-off. <laughs> I've decided this on the spot. This is this is my Walter Cronkiteism. I get to the end of the show and I say, this isn't the kind of show that has a sign-off. The collie problem And you know he's got him The collie problem You know he's got him the collie problem You know he's got him The collie problem